everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 319. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my host, David Bixenspan. And Bix, uh, hope everything is going better for you uh, this week than it was last week. Better is a relative word, Chris. For those who don't know, uh, we mentioned in the halftime report that Bix had some issues due to uh, Ida hitting the east coast the remnants of ida yeah a tropical storm ida here hurricane ida in the gulf states so um yeah it has some flooding and stuff like that and bix had to deal with that so uh much lesser flooding than you're seeing on the news and on social media like thankfully but still frustrating to deal with after replacing stuff and as we at least as of our, the beginning of our recording, this is still in a hotel because they haven't fully fixed everything yet. Yeah. So anyway, we'll uh, we'll hope for the best and get Bix back to normal yes. uh, as possible. But anyway, let's go to our week here that we're going to talk about, and uh, it's a very interesting time in wrestling history as we are going to discuss the very first. Monday Night War, as we go to the week that was September the 8th through the 14th, uh, proper week of 1995. First battle in the war. Yeah, because Nitro was unopposed on his first show because of the U.S. Open. So here we go. We'll begin with WCW. After months of hype, the first head-to-head meeting between WCW Nitro and WF Monday Night Raw on September 11th turned into something of a double disappointment as far as the shows were concerned but a clear-cut victory for WCW in the ratings war. Nitro in the first head-to-head meeting drew a 2.5 rating and a 3.8 share, as opposed to Monday Night Raw, which did a 2.2 rating and a 3.2 share. The number of people watching wrestling during that one-hour time slot was the largest for any one-hour segment since the Hogan-Flair match at The Clash last year, and largest for any Monday night in years. Nitro's replay did a 0.9 rating. With the exception of a new opening, the tape Raw show was as much different than typical Raw. Decisions made this past week to maintain Jerry Lawler as a color commentator on Raw instead of Doc Hendricks, who at one point figured to get the role. The show had two feature matches, Razor Ramon versus David Boy Smith, which was fine, but then the ordinary. Largely to continue the three-way feud with Razor, Dean Douglas, and 123Kid. After seeing that feud on television, it reads a lot better than it actually comes across. Post-match Kid uh, Ramon conversation, basically a kid monologue challenging Razor for next week's Raw was flat. Shawn Michaels for Psycho Seal was about as good a match as you'll see sit in, but it was in the two-and-a-half-star tops range. Interesting was they exposed that they aren't live, but airing highlight clips from next week's two TV main events. Owen Hart, Yokozuna vs. Men on the Mission, and Kid vs. Razor. Nitro, on the other hand, was a huge letdown after the great job that was on the previous week I pushed in the show. The show drew 3183 paying uh, $28,000 for the house. Tickets were 10 and 5 at the Knight Center in Miami. But with a paper, it was a sellout of more than 5,500. The Hulk Hogan-Lex Luger match of the century turned out to be a match with a beyond-bad finish and a post-match angle that was the epitome of a skit that didn't work. The debut of Nitro with no competition from Raw, but competition from the opening Monday Night Football game drew a strong 2.9 rating in its first airing and a 1.2 for the Midnight Replay. The number was stronger than the debut of Raw and better than Raw traditionally averages when going up against football. While WCW was apparently thrilled with the number, everyone knows the first set of numbers that count are this week's. Both groups were taking different approaches to the head-to-head. WF ignored that there was any competition, including not even really beefing his show up. Over the weekend, they made no mention of Luger, including editing all references to him and things involving him off every television show, 
but throughout the weekend, hyped Raw more than ever. WCW, on the other hand, had Eric Bischoff not in the WF for continual hour, decontinual hour, gloating about Luger coming to the Bush Leagues to play with the big boys and saying he won't be the last one. Several men- mentions that just nine days ago, Luger was in WF. Having Stephen McMichael say, don't turn the channel, I'll watch a show named after Uncooked Egg. Changing, changing might return this name to VK Wall Street, VK being short for Vincent K. And Bischoff, he went so far to tell viewers not the channel, sir, because the other show was taped two weeks ago, and Shawn Michaels beat the big guy with a super kick, and he wouldn't be able to get a green belt with it in the corner karate studio. When Luger was in trouble during the Hogan match, Bischoff said that Luger was rusty because he hadn't been facing tough competition. Noting that their world champion was barely a mid-level guy here. And some East Coast markets TNT purchased what Dave was told was a great commercial that aired midway throughout Raw, telling viewers that if you want to see real wrestling and not a kiddie show... Tune to TNT and see wrestling where the big boys play. However, after Bischoff came under tremendous criticism for knocking McMahon too hard, Dave's told that would be the end of it, with Bischoff apparently feeling this was his response to five years of media knocks by McMahon, and in particular from McMahon's letter several months ago to Ted Turner trying to get Turner to fold the company because of it being a poorly run company that was embarrassing Turner's good name. (laughs) Of all the Vince Ted stuff we talk about, that was the one that never gets talked about. You know? Well, you know why that is, at least in part, because he did not release this letter to uh, Dave and Wade. No. As he would starting a few months later. But but still, I mean, it's, it's, it's just not... <laughs> Vincent Man actually wrote a letter to Vincent Man, I mean, to Ted Turner, telling him that he needed to do that. <laughs> God, look at this shit. <laughs> God, your company's terrible. Did he, they put Flair in a fucking wick. <laughs> Isn't he who you paid Crockett for? You dirty son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, man. Only I am allowed to be a carpetbagger. <laughs> there are two schools of thought to each group's tactic. One school of thought that the knocks only give death the exposure and remind fans that they are at the same time. Years ago, this is what we were all taught, but time to change. Now Bischoff's totally out of control, and even though some of the knots were shocking, some fans were always taped two weeks ago when they were live, giving the result of the main event away, <laughs> and a few inside ones were funny. By the end of the show, Bischoff was totally annoying and came off like a bratty child. However, whether it be political campaigns or soft drink and phone company commercials, everyone knows that negative advertising is effective at today's marketplace. More so by WF ignoring Lugard's deal on television, which the vast majority of his fans are aware of. Well, it was a long-time company policy because of the exposure and taught this jump guy. WF came off as a company hiding the truth from the fans. The results, a lot of fans who aren't familiar with the background, were asking why WF snoring something important to its own storylines. And WCW came across as a more upfront and truthful organization. What do you think about that? As far as being taped? As far as... No, as far as the... Um... The whole Luger thing, the Luger, um, ignoring of Luger by WF and how WCW was just fully just throwing it down their their throats. I just don't understand what the point in acknowledging it directly would be. Yeah, I mean, it's embarrassing. It is embarrassing, but you know, I you you could just you could just come out and say. That you know, a statement on television, which they had done, had done. I don't know if they had done by this point in time. Said that you know, just say we wish Mister Luger the best of in, in his you know future endeavors on television. 
Had they done that already? I kind of think they had. With I mean, they did the savage thing. Yeah, but that was different. It but was. I, I, I kind of, I, I think there was something I'm I, I maybe missing. Maybe maybe it hadn't happened yet. Maybe it's the the warrior thing. The year later, I'm thinking about. I don't know. But I mean, it's one of those things where it's kind of hard to ignore, and. The fact that, you know, Bischoff is coming so hard at him. Um, I mean, he was he was relentless, you know, on on uh, on this show that we're, we're going to talk about. I mean, given the way the results of the show and this first time he's done that and all the other stuff he was doing. I mean, he came out guns blazing. And do you think that he did get started getting annoying towards the end? On that first head-to-head show, yes. Definitely on that one. He would tone it down in subsequent weeks where he would do stuff like that. Although he did it, keep up the where live they're taped a lot. I think the thing is, to me, is that it's fine to do that in, in doses, but when you're taking away the time to put over your own talent, that's the problem. You know? That's the problem, because you need to devote your time to your talent. But that's anyway. a problem they would have anyway, though. You know, as time went on too, with the let's go to the back to see what's going on with the NWO stuff. Yes. Now, something right. that I guess comes up a week or two later that we should mention briefly, as far as Vince's call to start showing highlights from the next week's Raw. His argument, which I think was the best possible way to approach it, was doesn't hurt Melrose Place. Why should it hurt us? Well, hey, th- that's the era of when that started. Of you know, next week the show, on, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think people is, don't it, realize it just how recent a development that is. Yeah, and it's funny because then like uh, other soap operas started doing that. And Days of Our Lives in it for years now, but they quit doing that a few years ago, where they would show tomorrow on Days of Our Lives. They quit. They quit doing it because I think it was. I think they were saying it was affecting their ratings because people would pick and choose based on who they expected an episode to be centered on or something. Yeah, because yeah, because you know more often than not on soap operas, like the you'll you'll have days where you'll have some actors on, and then they won't be on the next day. It's revolving the storylines around. So, yeah, th- th- that was a, that's definitely a thing. All right. In comparing the two shows, both had strong opening atmospheres. WF had a new open, as did WCW. WF had stronger announcements, but that was by default, because WCW's trio is among the worst ever. Mongo Ben Michael was actually worse the second week, because he's still clueless, has nothing to add, no name value. He clearly doesn't know any of the rest, except guys like Hogan, Stain, Flair, and Savage, who are already names, and just don't need the announcers to help get over. Even though Sabu tried to commit suicide, the announcer was so bad, his debut had no impact at all. Bischoff tried to call moves in the Sabu match and called most of them wrong. Dave gets the fact he at least tried. As an example, he's more motivated to learn than McMahon, which means if McMahon doesn't get with it, Bischoff will pass him by as an announcer. Still, with Bischoff, a somersault plancher became a moonsault, and a clothesline on top to the floor through a table became the Arabian Press. At one point, when Sabu nearly killed himself taking a bump on the concrete, Instead of selling the injury, Bobby Heenan started telling jokes, which completely ruined Sabu's efforts. Oh, we'll be playing that in just a minute. But, um... Mongo, I mean, they wanted that 
guy, that third guy to be somebody that wasn't a wrestler and somebody who could be entertainment. And Mongo had already been involved in wrestling. You know, he was in WrestleMania angle the, uh, earlier that year with Reggie White and Lars Taylor and all them. So I he's a guy who had been in very the, well, too. Yeah, and had been in the WWF. So you're, I mean, you're actually taking somebody from WWF when you're taking him. But, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a train wreck early on. Bischoff, Heenan, and Mongo definitely were not a cohesive unit. Absolutely not. But Mongo won a local Emmy. That's why what? they hired well. him. They said they were bringing on an <laughs> Emmy award-winning broadcaster. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But, yeah. And what like Raw's announcing was that was that much greater either when Vince and Law are doing their thing, so... <laughs> yeah for two groups in such fierce competition the quality of the matches themselves were equivalent to a bad week in New Japan and probably worse than any Sunday AAA show none of the angles came across strong WF had the advantage for the second round and that it did have a much better job of building up next week's show and WCW hardly has a match with the Hogan Luger interest level the counter web WCW had a strong job building up this week but they failed the follow up the only mention of the next week were the end of the show and it sounded like a typical Saturday night show from the build up yeah, I mean, you run Hogan and Luger <laughs> on that second show. I mean, what are you going to follow up with? I mean, that's the thing. Um, it's kind of like that deal where when you go on a first date, and it wasn't the first show, but when you go on the first date, you don't want to take the girl you're going out with to the, the fanciest, nicest restaurant in the town because you've already got to the high level you kind you kind of want to start in a nice range you can't you know, you set know, expectations too high yeah because well, where else are you going to go from here you know what i'm saying you can't go any higher if you're going to the number one restaurant in town everything else is going to be below and hogan and luger is a match that you know never been done before big match long big time match. magazine dream match could have been big money in it. And you shoot your wad, you know, right here. And we talked about this when we did the uh, show covering the first Nitro. Where we, I think we both at the time said that it would have been better off to do some type of tag match. Hogan and Savage versus Luger and Sting or some shit like that. You know, build it. Build it. You know, don't do the singles. But they're going, you know... This was their answer to going head to head with Raw for the first time, and I mean they did what they did, but it's also I think weaponizing they... the surprise from the first week in a very specific way too. But the thing is, is that it didn't have effect on business or ratings. It, they were they were, it was less, hmm. you know. And, and think about that: they drew that two point nine rating against Monday Night Football and on Labor Day, and they come back the week later. With competition from Monday Night Football and Raw, but st but still drew less. And then in the building, drew well, just a little do less with head to head. Oh. I know, but you, you do that in the building, and you just do over a little over half a house hmm. paid. So really, what have you done? I don't know. I mean, like I said, I, I think it would, it would have been much better if they would have just did the tag match and go from there. But, but it is what it is. They're also they're also very lucky that, <coughs> excuse me, 
there ended up being no long-term consequences to the Sting Hogan match that you saw live. No. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah. All right, so uh, let's talk about Nitro. WCW immediately opened the show announcing that Big Van Vader wouldn't be on the Fall Brawl pay-per-view, claiming he hadn't filed his, filled out his correct papers and had gone AWOL. Vader was officially suspended for the Fall Order of Incident, and what his future with the company is right now is unknown. But the consensus seems to be that if they can't get rid of him, they will. That if they can get rid of him. Vader's contract through the end of March of 1999 at approximately $750,000 a year. And obviously doesn't want to blow the deal and has apologized to everyone involved. WCW had ceased to desist letter WF claiming Vader's under contract, and any contact with him, they would consider tampering. As Mina pointed out in the long run, if Vader's let go and Luger's given the spot, Vader will almost surely go to WF, and for a one-for-one trade, it would come out as it would come out to be, WF's clearly getting the better end of the deal. Well, maybe, at this point in time. He could also choose Japan, where apparently, because of the New Japan UWFI deal, he may be able to work major shows for both groups. WCW didn't make any moves regarding Vader last week because its lead attorney, Nick Lambros, is on vacation. Shocking. But from the commentary on television, things look very good for Leon White. Besides war games, Luger will also take Vader's place during the scheduled main event on next week's Nitro against Ming, and for all subsequent matches, Vader was booked for. You know, I'm pretty sure we talked about Vader on the last show. Um, do you think Vader was screwed more because he wasn't a Hogan guy? As far as do I think a Hogan guy would have gotten away with the Orndorff thing? Yes. Especially since didn't, uh, was it in the Orndorff pie or something? I feel like some Melter, someone addressed it recently and was like, if you look at it now, it's someone basically trying to intimidate and go to subordinate into a fight. Mm-hmm. Not that Vader was not being an asshole at first, but that turning into a fight is clearly on Orndorff. Yes. So, uh, quite possibly, yes. Granted, this is also the company that had its weird handling of Dustin, Darso, and Mike Grammer earlier in the year. Yeah. Vader just, I mean, and I think they probably want to get rid of that contract, too. $750,000 a year for three and a half more years? Yeah. So, but Vader did it to himself. Yeah, nobody blamed but himself on that one. Do you agree with that? He instigated the situation. So, he, yes, to some degree. All right, Nitro opened up with Sabu versus Alex Wright. Sabu was hurting, appeared from both his hip and his shoulder, but did a lot of suicidal spots. Did some assault plancha, then set up a chair on the floor and ran and leaped off the chair to a leg whip. The right moved and he splattered on the floor. Wright delivered a drop kick on the floor, a drop kick up top, rope followed by a dive of his own, suplex off the top. Sabu came back with a reverse leg, whipped to the throw, but Wright hit a German suplex. The one move Bischoff called correctly for a near fall. Sabu got behind Wright while both were standing on the top rope and used a Rana for a pin in 357. After the match, Sabu got a table and came off the top rope to the floor with a clothesline with both going to the table, and the referee reversed the decision, so Wright was declared the winner. This match is very good while it lasted, but way too short. And the announcers never mentioned Sabu the rest of the show and didn't get him over well during the match. Two and a half stars. All right, let's watch this and then we'll talk about it. Here we go. This is Sabu's first uh, match on Nitro on nationwide television. And yeah, it's something, something else. His first match on national television, period. Yeah. He's going to be here a long, long time. I love you, though, Weasel. Thank you. Get it. 
and it's Alex Wright. Oh. Suplex, belly to back suplex. He's got a almost had a pinfall. See, that's Carter what I'm talking about. Resort to the tactics. Mr. Wright took him over, and I know that hurt the back of his head as much as it hurt Sabu. What's he going to do now? It can be just about anything. The Arabian moonsault, the Arabian face buster. This guy will do just about anything. Oh. Oh, a super you can't predict the one, too. Did he get him? Yes, he got him. don't know where they are. I mean, this is the debut of Sabu and comes in and beats uh, Alex Wright, knocks him off just like that. What an impressive victory. Impressive victory indeed, but it is not over for Sabu. Alex Wright, as I mentioned, coming off a tremendous win last night over Diamond Dallas Page. I dare say he was not 100%. Did Alex Wright just smack his head? Not to make excuses for him, but he just got a face full of ring. I guess you encourage that kind of stuff, don't you, Reed? Well, yeah, I, I never took any cheap shots with a bunch of 10 other guys playing behind me. What's he got here now? Furniture. No, he's got... Hey, he didn't come in here on a rider truck, but he's bringing the furniture with him. He's going to hit him with the buffet table. I'm afraid he's not going to hit him with that table. It might get worse. It might get ugly. Where's he going now? He's going to make him the buffet. No, he's not. Alex is no. out. He has no idea. And he broke the table. Both men hit. Sushi. Great. Let's hear. Wait a minute. Let's go to Dave Pinzer. Ladies and gentlemen, referee Nick what, Patrick what's going on has reversed his decision and has disqualified Sabu. The winner for disqualification is Alex Wright. Yeah, for what? He beat the man in the middle of the ring. How about this a tilted manslaughter? This was after the match. That is justice. You have to abide by the WCW rules. Look at Sabu here. Goes up by a top rope right on Alex Wright's shoulders. For the one, two, three. You can go to your room, but he's not done yet, this man. That was top the Arabian rope. press, Bobby, and he does it better than anybody. Don't invite this man over for Thanksgiving dinner if you got a big table. All right. A lot more action still to come. Whatever you do, don't leave us now. Sabu killed that man <laughs> and himself. Something I never. I don't think that was a gimmick table. I th- I thought it did look like it was constructed to be gimmicked, but was not a typical part of the board table. I did think it was gimmick, but the thing I really noticed that never hit me before: Sabu is clearly doing this weird flying clothesline through a table because he does not want to do anything that is a traditional bump from how much he is hurting. Oh, yeah, that's right. Didn't lay it on the table. That too. Alex could be, you know, Alex could have been a little loopy there. Because, yeah, I mean, did you notice that too? It looked like he bonked his head on the floor and nobody noticed. When yeah. He onto the floor. Like, you could hear it. Yeah. But, yeah, I remember watching this. Like, I mean, going, holy shit. You know, I, I thought that said, I mean, I thought that said when WCW was going to be one of those things that. This is going to be crazy. He's going to be the next cactus. I thought he's going to come in there and he's going to get over and all this other stuff. And boy, was I wrong. But yeah. it, I'll tell you what, you know, you look back at the, at, at the early days of Nitro. You got all these guys coming in, these uh, guys coming from other promotions and these surprises and all this other stuff. 
it, it's serious stuff than watching this compared to what's going on in AEW now. A lot of it's uh, some similarities there between AEW and the early days of uh, WCW Nitro. Yeah. <laughs> because you look at, I mean, all in a two to three week time span, you got Luger, Sabu, Benoit, Eddie, Dean. You got Liger on Nitro. Yeah, that New means Japan Liger's guy. return? <laughs> Liger's returned to WCW after what, like three years? Yeah, I mean, there's so much similar to the early Nitro days and what AEW's doing right now. You've got big stars in dream matches. You've got New Japan guys. You've got, you know, the exciting, more exciting athletic show in the ring. You've got, yeah, got all these debuts. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. All right, next up was the Ric Flair interview, which was a total waste of time. The idea was for Lex Luger to come out and tease to the crowd that Luger would be turning heel and going with Flair and the Four Horsemen. Luger showed up with about 15 pounds of added muscle, reaffirming Dave's faith in the predictability of mankind as a whole. <laughs> it is interesting how Luger looked noticeably bigger in WCW as he comes in than he did when he was in WF, isn't it? Fascinating. <laughs> well, adding weight at a quick rate is one of Lex Luger's <laughs> Allocates. <laughs> and you made it rhyme, too. All right. Yeah. Sting beat VK Wall Street to keep the U.S. title with a crossbar the top of 412, a nothing match, start on a quarter. Take that, VK Wall Street. Then we got Randy Savage over Scott Norton at 539. Norton spent most of the match destroying Savage's back. Savage sold it good. Only problem was when he did his run-in later in the show, he had stopped selling it. Finish saw the Dungeon of Doom, who comes across the most inept group of main event heels in history, doing a run-in, and Norton crashed into the shark, who somehow was knocked out and fell on Norton's legs. Norton was then trapped on the ground, so Savage delivered the elbow to the top row for a pin, two and a quarter stars. Oh, yeah, we got to watch this, so let's go to that clip. Well, also, everyone keep in mind how we got here. Was Scott Norton debuting, like, did That's he another? Play pull yeah, apart with debut. Randy Savage? Yeah, it was a hot angle. With a legit main eventer. Yes. Again, another debut we totally forgot. Yeah. But anyway, keep that in mind. Keep in mind that they set this up as Scott Norton basically being a new main event level heel. And... Mm -hmm. A man much bigger, much stronger, and much more motivated right now. What is this? Dungeon of Doom! Dungeon of Doom! Was he trying to turn him into a popsicle? How did Savage do it? I'll tell you how Savage did it. The Dungeon of Doom, it all backfired. 500 pounds. A shark. But I'll tell you something, Savage is hurting. He will not be 100% for war games. I can guarantee you that. A little dissension in the Doom family here as well. I seem to remember you guaranteeing a lot of championships. And came up empty. 
Well, it wasn't anything. No, I've never done that. That's a lie. And what's going to be going through the mind of Scott Norton? He had a tremendous opportunity to debut here on Nitro. And let's face it, he blew it. Thanks to the Dungeon of Doom. Randy Savage taking advantage of the situation. And he comes up the winner. I knew he was going to come in overconfident, and that's when you miss those little tricks that Macho Man has under his belt. All right, we'll be back with more action right after this. Oh, and on top of everything else, we get Bischoff burying his new heel, who's also his friend in real life on commentary. <laughs> the thing about this is that, boy, the Dungeon of Doom look hokey on Nitro. Yes, they I mean, it, Nitro had the, the the way Nitro had already you know been with the aura and everything and starting like it did. Dungeon of Doom came off as like this low rent act when they from were a the I mean promotion. from a different from yeah exactly. I mean it was it it didn't look like that on Saturday night or syndication, but here on Nitro it looks that way. Mm-hmm. That's it's crazy, <laughs> but yeah. And Scott Norton, you know, I mean, they found a way to have him lose, you know, and, and still kind of protect him at least. But, yeah, not the best. All right. Ne- uh, so we have Hogan and Luger next. Hogan won by DQ to keep the WCW title on 528. When he added weight, Luger looked even more clumsy than usual, and it was bad. Wow. Made worse because all the hype going in was Bischoff calling it the match of the century. We've all talked about Luger. It's shocking just not how not over he was live. They traded a few no-sell spots of Hogan in the Bayface role, although the crowd was kind of split and flat for a Hogan match. Finish saw Hogan do the Superman comeback, complete with a leg drop, when the inept heels all tapped Hogan for the DQ. So he at least gave the impression he was going to beat Luger. Hogan stabbing his and destroyed the heels off 30 seconds, making they want to see the war games really bad, while Luger did nothing. Still saw the devastating leg drop. Savage got mad at Luger for not helping when Sting defended Luger and won him on the War Games team. Now, badly at this skit where the fans could have cared less, Hogan asked Luger where he was coming from, and Luger said he agreed to be on the team and provided Hogan gave him the title rematch he had promised Vader. Oh, let's watch this greatness, shall we? Okay, so first of all, before we even play this, I had totally forgot about that wrinkle because Luger never gets that match. Nope. They forgot it, too. Also, I don't want to forget about this. Um, did you see that Luger was on Briscoe and JBL's show? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. The, yeah, I saw some of the stuff from that, yes. He talked about the Bruiser Brody thing and was like, yes, of course I was scared shitless. <laughs> he had razor blades on his fingers. <laughs> I, love the Ron, I love the Ron Simmons story. Oh, I didn't see that. The one of the, the one about Ron Simmons and, and weightlifting? Mm-mm. <laughs> and, and then the one JBL told, oh, it's great. You know, Ross Simmons showing up in blue, nothing but no shirt, blue jeans, a cowboy boots, going to the gym and just tearing it up and just walking right out, nothing, <laughs> saying nothing. <laughs> All right. But, but, but Luger talking about Simmons and when they play against football against each other, just great, great stuff. All right, let's go to the videotape. Did he think he won? Hogan is lifeless. He is not moving a muscle. Luger thinks he won. Covers of one, two, and a kick out by the world heavyweight champion Hulk Hogan. The Hulkamaniac starts screaming. The blood starts pumping through his veins. The red, the yellow. Hogan's going to pop through his feet in a minute. I know this man. Luger, be prepared. 
intestinal fortitude that man has shown every match throughout his career. After being in that torture act, after being picked up and almost snapped in half. He was playing possum. You've got to know he was playing possum. And he no. buried that boot right between the eyes. Oh, no, no, no. It has erupted here in light of the decision just handed down by the referee for the second consecutive week on Monday Nitro. Again, Hulk Hogan, we have to sort some things out with Fall Brawl coming up this Sunday and War Games. You're short a man. I understand Vader does not qualify to be part of the Hulkamaniacs when you meet the Dungeon of Doom. Well, you know something, me, Gene? War Games is one week away. It's not bad enough that Vader has already gone AWOL. They've got an extra man on us, brother. It's three against four. Luger comes out here, get in my face two weeks in a row, gives me the run for my money, the match of my life, brother. Where are you coming from, Luger? How come they didn't lay their hands on you when they jumped on my back? Which side are you on, brother? I'd like to say double goes for me. I'm asking you also. Hey, 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 hey! Let's hear it, let's hear it. Where are you coming from, Luger? What about it? Well, hold on, man, just a minute. One at a just, time. Wait a second, just look around here. Look at this. Look at this right here. Does this look like something big? Hey, come on, man. Vader's out of the picture. And it looks like the total package. Come on. With all due respect, he gave even you a run for the money, Hulkster. To me, to me, this would be... This is the team. Look. This is the deal. No, it's not the team. I'd rather go four versus three. Because if we win, we get the taskmaster. Buddy, I'm going to tell you something. Bottom line, I'd rather know that nobody's on our side helping us rather than getting stabbed in the back by Luger coming in here and showing something different than what needs to happen. Gentlemen, what are the time Hey, here? let me just say something, Macho Man. You and I have nothing against each other, right? Exactly. Okay, you want to win war games, right? Exactly. Well, so do I. That means I vote Luger into the team, man. I vote him in. I respect that. But I need to ask you a question. All right, go ahead and ask. How come the Dungeon of Doom attacked Hulk Hogan and the Macho Man Randy Savage and didn't touch you and Jimmy Hart? Wait a minute. Are you saying that I'm not red and yellow? I'm the one, in case you didn't know it, went back to get you and Sting to help the Hulkster. Okay, gentlemen. Listen to him. Listen to what Jimmy's trying to say. 
Wait a minute, oh. brothers. Let me put this all together. Are you saying that we should let Lex Luger take Vader's place in war games? Yes, yes. Hoaxer. Yes. This is America, baby. Innocent to proven guilty. You have the final vote, baby. It looks like it's your call. Bottom line, I vote no. So it's one to one, brother. I'm telling you, I got a feeling that he ain't right. You can have, you listen, Macho Man, you can have your vote, but you're only one of four votes. Okay, brother, you want him in, you want him out. I'm torn apart. But the way I look at war games, when you put all the men in the cage, we'll find out what everybody's made of Luger. Would you be our partner, brother? We want to test you in war games. Yes. Tell him! Tell him! Don't make a fool out of me! Don't embarrass us! Do it! I'll step in there in war games and I'll stand with you side by side, blow by blow. But one condition, I want that title shot down the line. You promised me. There's some unfinished business here. He's got an ulterior motive. Get back to you. You heard it, Miji Oakland. Mongo, Bobby the Brain Heenan, the newest addition. It is now four and four. Lex Luger, believe it or not, the newest member for Hogan's team. I'll tell you, don't miss this pay-per-view. I'll tell you, I still don't think you can trust Singh. I don't think you can trust Luger. Savage gives you his word. He'll be there. I don't know if you can trust Hogan or Jimmy Hart. Something's going on down here. Something smells worse than that tarantula in the derby he's got there. Hey, we got a weasel and a rat here, so we got the rodent family covered. But these boys got more problems in the Dungeon of Doom. I'll tell you that right now. They better get their collective poo-poo together, or they're going to get beat. All right, we got a lot of great action coming your way next week right here on Monday Night Show. Don't forget if you haven't. All right, enough of that. Um, Man, when you know what's coming later, both at Havoc and a year later. What? Why didn't they play all this up? They had it right here. <laughs> okay, that goes to what I'm getting to, that this is actually tremendously booked by Kevin Sullivan. Yes! And yet they never played up a second of this footage. With no, either with, with either the Luger turn or the Sting angle. WCW, everybody. Think about this for a second. I didn't remember that it went this deep, that Savage is immediately correct with his skepticism about Luger and Hart. I didn't yeah, well, even Luger, remember the Jimmy yeah. Hart part. Jimmy Hart! Yes! I had no memory of them teasing the turn, did you? Luger, yes. Jimmy Hart, I totally forgot no, about Hart, that. No, Hart, I mean, that. yeah. Hart, I mean Hart. Yeah, Luger, yes. Luger was always the one that was always teased, but I totally forgot about Jimmy Hart. Yeah, and... It perfectly fits in with everything that happens with Luger and Sting in the next year. Yes. As much as people make it part of the canon of the storyline now, because it fits, do they mention the I trusted you, you didn't trust me thing once? No. It's something, but it's like, it's something that people kind of accept as being part of the storyline now, but I don't remember it ever coming up. It didn't come up by them. I think people brought that up themselves, but they never did. And and here's one of the parts I love, and also how, we'll get this in a second. If you really think about it, I think the sting as gullible fool thing is kind of overplayed. Here's something I love about this, too. Other than Jimmy Hart, no one's really wrong. Savage is right not to trust them, but Sting is not wrong to trust Luger, because Luger continuously does right by him 
Yeah. Like, we've said it before. This run of Luger is legitimately one of the most nuanced characters in the history of professional wrestling. Yes, absolutely. Like, he's comedic at times, and there's some goofy stuff like him turning in the background of other people's turns, but he has conflicting motivations, he's human, he... You know, it's just different. Mm Mm-hmm. It's different from, like, outside of, like, certain places like Memphis, where you have these, you know, relationships built up so much week to week for so long. You know, yeah. where you could always have, you know, like, a you know, Lawler and Dundee could go from feuding to teaming at any moment. Like, outside of stuff like that, like, I can't think of that many examples other than this. So they had this. They don't play it up at all when Luger turns on Hogan. No. Nope. It's... But clearly, clearly, this is what Kevin Sullivan's planning. Yes. Because why, why, why would Savage even put Jimmy Hart out there? Nobody saw that coming. Yes. Also, I'm kind of curious. Obviously, they don't have the idea for the NWO yet. Oh, God, no. I wonder if Kevin Sullivan had that fake sting angle in his back pocket for something. I'm pretty sure that was definitely, I mean, something that was, you know, an idea that was thought. I mean, they already had done it once, in a way, and not in Halloween Havoc 90. Yes. Which they didn't follow up on. And I don't think it was mentioned on TV at all after the pay-per-view. But but Sullivan wasn't in the company at that time either, so no. there's that. But but yeah, I mean, the, the, the Luger-Jimmy Hart mentioned there, I mean, it's just, wow. When you look at what happens. It's right there in front of your face, and it just doesn't even get brought up again. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Crazy. Yes. I also find um, it interesting that given Hogan and his creative control and stuff, that it's Savage that's a lot, that ends up being booked to look like the smartest person in the room. Absolutely. And, and the thing is here, too, is, you know, we, much as we talk about WF and WWE, you know, with their theme pay-per-views being a big hindrance. Boy, it seemed like War Games was a big hindrance for WCW right here. I mean, that they had to do it, but well, it was so Well, you don't have anti- to do it at fall. But they felt they had every fall brawl has had one. Well, they but every fall brawl had had it for the previous two years, and it was already the plan. But it didn't. They need to change it. They shouldn't have done it. I mean, they could have done the Hogan Luger singles match on fall brawl. Mm. You know, and could have and could have saved War Games. You know, if you're going to do that November pay per view instead of World War Three, they could have War Games. Mm. You know. In, in November, I mean, they're saying, they're saying they should have done. I mean, they had handcuffed themselves with this, and War Games was so anticlimactic. I mean, compared to what Nitro's got going on and all these new people in the company and this and other, it's like the War Games seemed like the the last thing of a different era of the company. Yes. Other than Flair and Arn, I mean, Flair and Arn was the big thing, you know, on that show and everything going on there. But well, actually, you know what the real farewell is, although they get rid of a lot of the cartoonier aspects of the dungeon by then, but really it's uncensored that is the end of the Dungeon of Doom as Topsy is. Well, yeah, but I'm saying as far as the era before Nitro. Sure. Alright, more details on the Luger situation. Luger definitely didn't have a contract with Titan Sports, although I apparently promised he stayed through the end of October. And was negotiating a new deal, which is why they were still pushing it. Reports are Luger signed a two-year guarantee deal with WCW, so Luger remains the master of contract negotiations. 
There are reports that each fan was involved with this deal and promising Luger three tours per year, but others have denied that's the case. Hmm. Like Lex Luger is going to go to three tours a year in New Japan. <laughs> we know his history. Remember, though, one of the sticking points that led to him leaving the previous time was that, what was it? It was that he had an exception that he could book himself into New Japan and get paid by New Japan instead of having it paid as part of his guarantee through WCW, and they weren't was... letting him do that or something. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like he doesn't have an interest in going to Japan and making money there. No. But it, I, it seems like he won't go to Japan if it's not extra. Yeah. Torch reported a sabu suffered a tailbone injury in his match last week in Japan, slowing him down considerably in his live Nitro debut. He was well, there's that. gingerly. That's a word, yes, he, <laughs> he could use. So, yeah, there is that. All right, um... Crap, I just closed up my tab. <laughs> Let me open that tab back up again. Close it by mistake. Hit the wrong button. Oh, that was As I scrolled. Great. All right, the first Eddie Guerrero D. Malenko Nitro match list have been moved to October 2nd in Denver. Although Eddie and Dean will be appearing in dark matches at some of the tapings. Oh, gee, I wonder why they're running Denver so early. <laughs> yeah, old, good old Zane. September 25th in Florence, South Carolina is going to be completely changed because they're anticipating a loaded up show from WF. It's to be live. The original lineup was nothing special. So expect them to load up Nitro as well. Uh, trying to remember what was on that show um the florence south carolina nitro let's see i'm looking that was alice right disco kurosawa Pitt, Pittman, sullivan savage ming luger no they did not load up that show not <laughs> no line no uh no no jacking up that show yeah i mean it... Really, in some ways, the most marketable match on that show is the DDP Johnny B. Bad Dark match. And Raw, let's see what Raw did that night, September 25th. They did Janetti Skip, Swim Guns, winning the tag toss from Owen and Yoko, Undertaker, and Davey. Uh, yes, so that on the much more marquee show. Yeah. All right, uh, it appears the deal to bring Lanny Poffo in doing the Gorgeous George gimmick is dead. People get confused by that. They think that the Lanny Poffo Gorgeous George thing was later on. But no, it was in 1995. I think people get confused because of the Stephanie Bellers stuff. That, well, oh, uh, that's, it's not that's, just that. That that's when he must have gotten the rights to the name or whatever. No, it's not just that. It's that people think it happened in the NWO era when that wasn't the case. Well, he's under contract into the NWO era. Dad, yeah, exactly. But no, that's not what the deal was there. Um, Vader, Hogan, Savage, Sting, Kevin Sullivan were all in Los Angeles this past week filming an episode of Baywatch, some which was shot at the Bass Beach pay-per-view show. Hogan and Vader did more stunts to add to their match. Oh, yes, the WCW Baywatch episode, a true highlight. Wait a second. This was after Vader Orndorff? Looks that way. Huh. Interesting. I guess they didn't really have any way around that, since he still technically works there. Yeah, and, it's, and in the Baywatch thing, you know, that was a deal's already been done, so they had to type that loose in. So, and they're, hey, people are professional. So. Dusty Rose was be replaced by Bobby Heenan on Saturday night. Expect more Dowsey changes as well. 
Gene Oakland's contract expires this week, and both sides are said to be far apart when it comes to doing a new deal. Oakland is trying to use Titan as a leverage, saying that he could get Todd Pettengill's role and run the 900 line there. But the folks at WCW don't think Vince would replace Pettengill. No word on whether Oakland would continue in his current role when negotiating a new deal or not. Well, he does. And he gets a new deal. Yes. Yes, it was not like Oakland's uh, contract disputes in the WWF where he just disappears for weeks at a time without explanation. Yes. <laughs> Which is one of those things that's really been forgotten to history. Yeah, because, well, I mean, because he, he would be there and he would not be there. I mean, if you watch on a week-by-week basis, you know that. But if you're watching in doses, you don't really recognize that. You know, you only really notice it like if you're watching 87 week to week and then you're like, hey, wait a second. Why is Craig George doing all of the stand up interviews and event centers and I'm not event centers, um, WWF magazine segments. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what happened. I previously taped Vader Handicap Squash to air on Saturday night this weekend. Oh, it's WCW. Well, I mean, got to air it. So, yeah. Disco Inferno appears to be getting a big push while well, there is no hype for Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, and Dean Malenko. Judging from the Sabu situation, appears these guys are being brought in to alleviate criticism of poor pay-per-view and house shows. But there, there appears to be no intent to actually push any of them or give them a chance to headline. That too. Uh, yeah. I'd say so. Malenko Sting headlines a Nitro within like two months of the debut. Yes. Yes, so that definitely changes. But Disco did get, you know, did get a push too, though. Of sorts, yes. They did a great interview on television where Aaron Lundy, Arn's wife, talked about the flare match with Arn interrupting. It's when the few wrestling angles actually look realistic rather than contrived. It seems they're building to this situation where Arn and Flair are so low down that they're even worth their own lot wives into believing they aren't getting along. It reminds me of a situation about 15 years ago with a famous Dusty Rhodes Ole Anderson feud in Atlanta. Ole turned babyface for several months, teaming with his brother Lars and the other faces, and feuding with longtime partner Ivan Koloff, but it took months before he formed a tag team with Dusty. Wound up with the Assassins against Dusty knowing the cage match, he decided to pick a special referee, so wound up with Ivan being picked by the Assassins and Gene Anderson by Dusty and Ole. When the match started, everyone destroyed Rhodes. The gimmick after was that Ole was so low down, he even lied to his brother Lars, who remained a worthless babyface after this angle. <laughs> You mean his no good brother Lars? Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, they're heels. <laughs> you know, they're supposed to be working this this deal here, and um, and yeah, you got to work work your you know work the the wives too. You know, if this is what the, the story is. Yeah. You know. And so. it's an interesting twist to add some realism to to involve them anyway because. Um, Beth and, uh, what's Aaron's wife's name again? Aaron. And Aaron were, and I believe still are, very close. Yeah, the, the promo was not online. The The rest of the show was hmm. the match, all the matches for Saturday night, but the promo wasn't. And Saturday night you had matches like Vader against Bobby Starr and Scott Demore. That was a handicap match. Uh-huh. Joel, Joel Marrow, under the match was the grappler. Against Cobra, DDP against Eddie Jackie. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Mark Marrow had two brothers that did jobs on WCW TV? I guess. Uh, Ron Thompson, Julio Sanchez, and Bobby Hayes went against the Dungeon of Doom, Kamala, Ming, and Zodiac. 
Jaime Bad against Dick Slater, Pillman against Barry Houston, and the Blue Bloods against Sting and Savage, which are main event of Saturday night. Hmm. Over the weekend, uh, as well as syndication, and this stuff's on YouTube on our friend Monsoon Classics channel, there's a Brian Pillman Ric Flair match that happened on Pro on, on, on our Saturday. So, yeah, everybody go check that out. Because Pillman wasn't doing the whole thing yet. That comes a fall brawl when he gets involved with Arn. Yeah, he's still just California Brian here. Mm-hmm. With his hair, hair extensions and all of that. Now, on television this past weekend, we got two different Cobra Craig Pittman stories, which now makes three. The original story, which never made the air, was that Pittman left him in Vietnam. Time frame ruined that one since Vietnam ended 23 years ago. This past weekend, they announced that Pittman left him in Desert Storm. Well, Cobra said in his promo that Pittman left him in the jungle. Debbie show everybody. How does this happen? Okay, let's see. So, Craig Pittman's about 36 at this time. <laughs> which, so, yes, they're, they're try- their, their original plan was to age him even more, yes. And Jeff Farmer was 33. Former Jeff. So, Vietnam, huh? <laughs> Why not? Also, how about Dave's spelling of Vietnam? <laughs> Viet yes. Space Nam. Viet, um, kick Space Boxer. Yes. Word of the future. <laughs> oh, my God. Three different stories. Mm. TV ratings for the weekend saw WCW do a 2.4. Main Event did a 1.8, and Pro did a 1.4. I like that he forgot the name of the show and thought it was still called WCW five years after that ended. Well, not five years, <laughs> excuse me, three and a half years. WCW Saturday Night, baby, yeah. WCW, which is running Johnson City, Tennessee for Nitro next week, is now on the ABC affiliate in the market with 30 minutes overlapping the Smoky Mountain show on the NBC affiliate. I guess Johnson Not City for long. Is- Go ahead. Johnson City, where Ric Flair allegedly lost his black robe even though he was wearing it at the WCW Saturday Night tapings later that week. (laughs) Yeah. See, okay. I know there is a real... I probably need to pester Conrad for what exactly the real story is with that robe that was on the A&E show. But... I just don't get the point of putting together the fake backstory like that. Why does it have to be Johnson City, Tennessee? Who knows? WCW, but it's from the torch. WCW bought ad time during Action Zone on the local Atlanta, Georgia cable affiliates, advertising Nitro. No word on it running elsewhere in the country. I have no memory of this. And uh, there was some concern in WCW's front office Monday morning. Oh, this is false from the torch. I love this story. That uh, um, Monday morning, August 28th, I know it's before a week, but just follow me. When they received word, the ECW and Paul Heyman declared war on WCW at their house show the previous Saturday night. They wondered what that meant. ECW, what were they planning to do? Speculating perhaps ECW would send their fans to the Nitro broadcast in Atlantic City and disturb the ongoings. The Atlantic City taping on October 23rd has now been moved to Huntsville, Alabama for that reason. On Worldwide last weekend, Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan jumped on the air at the Randy Savage Paul Orndor, that Shivani said, I guess this means war. Heenan concurred. This means war. He had a contest comment seemed to be in response to ECW's declaration. What? 
That's why I put this in here, mainly. That and for the fact that they moved Nitro because of this shit. <laughs> They're going to sick their fans on Nitro. Are those fans also the GCW plants now? <laughs> oh, my God. Sick them. Can you imagine Eric frantically calling Zane? Zane! Atlantic City's off. I mean... They're going to send Hat Guy. It's Paul Heyman. Of course, they're going to say shit on their house show. He's, he's rounding up his fans. We declare war on WCW. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh... And, and, so, and so, shouldn't somebody tell Wade that war games was happening on the pay-per-view and that may be why Bobby and Tony are talking about this means war? You think that might be the reason why? Also, they may have done the voiceover before they knew what the change to the main event was. Yes. So they may have to be doing extra vague commentary on this episode of Worldwide. Yes. W's everybody. All right, let's go to the Land of the Rising Sun and All Japan Pro Wrestling. Mr. Amasawa retained the Triple Crown, beating Akira Tawe on tw in 2050 after three discus elbows at the September 10th Budokan Hall main event for a sale of 16300 Tawe dominated the match and said look good while losing. So my final was the annual team survival war with the team of Toshak Kawada, Giant Baba, Abdul the Butcher, and Masafuchi, outlasting Stan Hansen, Kenikabashi, Junakayama, and Takao Mori. Start out as a tag match. Remember, lose the falls, replaced by another member of the losing team. Until one team can't feel two men and the match is lost. Abdul did a rare job in the second match, being pinned by Kobashi's leg drop off the top rope. Oh, can you imagine the miserable shape he'd be in right now if he did that regularly? Oh, God, yeah. It came down the hands of Kobashi against Baba and Kawada. As Kobashi attempted to kick Baba in the head, Baba ducked and he wound up kicking Hanson. Later, as Hanson went for a tackle on Kawada, he moved to Hanson up and knocked Kabashi off the apron. At this point, Hanson turned around and was given a high kick by Kawada and pinned to lose the fall and the match. After the match, Hanson attacked Kabashi, knocking him over the guardrail. Kabashi came back and got the advantage on Hanson until Hanson used a lair just as Baba stepped in to break things up. After the card, Baba, in his role as promoter, said that he doesn't like doing grudge matches or feud matches in all Japan for credibility reasons and claimed Kabashi wouldn't wrestle Hanson on the next tour despite them doing two angles on this tour. When asked about the next Budokan show, which is October 25th, Baba said he hadn't even thought about the show and was thinking more about October 15th in Nagoya with the tag title match and then asked reporters if they would rather see the tag titles defended or Triple Crown defended at the Budokan. That, think about that mentality, folks. Baba doesn't want to have grudge matches or feud matches. Um, Did he not watch the best match in the history of the promotion a few months earlier? <laughs> The most grudge match, feudish match in the run of that entire Kabashi and Masawa versus Holy Demon Army feud. I guess that doesn't. I guess that doesn't count because they. That was it. it it's built off of a more natural competitive rivalry, it, whereas yes. this is just dudes getting hot during a match. Yes, I mean okay. you're shooting angles here. That's the thing, Bix. That's the difference. He means shooting angles. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, if you think about it, I mean, all Japan did not do a lot of that yeah. for all those years. They did it, but they didn't do it a lot. They definitely weren't New Japan. 
when it comes to that. New Japan uh, even did in all the time. earlier years, they didn't do that many angles compared to New Japan. No, New Japan did all the time. That was the difference in the promotions. Yep. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting when you think about it. In the certainly in the early you know well seventies into early eighties at least, all Japan had the more Americanized in ring style. New Japan had the more Americanized booking. Yes, absolutely. Yoshinari Gawas hit Dan Crawford in 1337 when the Cradle won the PWG title on that show. Something we mentioned uh, last week, I think, in passing. Yeah. Arrest the results. Masao Inoue Storosako beats Yoshikaguchi Kaguchi and Monokia Moss, man, 1309. Bobby Duncan Jr. and Kentaro Shiga in 410. Jumbo Shruta and Joel Deaton team with Mitsuo Momoto to beat Ryokaku Izumina, Mighty Inoue, and Haruka Egan in 1411. Ogawa Crawford in 1337. Kabala Tua to over Richard Slinger and Johnny Ace at 12-28-8. Patriot, the Eagle, and Lacrosse. So, yeah, we get George Hines and Jim Steele, Wolf Hall Field, team with the Patriot. They beat Doug Furness and the Fantastics in 1703. Then the survival match, which we just read, where uh, Hanson and Kabachi lost to Kawada and Bob in 1941. And then Masawa with Tawai in 2050 for the Triple Crown. Why did they do Survival War at Budokan and without so many top names? Probably because they felt that they had had to do it. Kind of like where WCW had some war games. Well, wasn't Survival War usually a Korokan thing? Nope. Budokan. The famous one from 92, isn't that a Korokan? Yeah, but they had kind of moved it to Budokan. But it's it's a less marquee match if you're doing it at Budokan because by having to have a Budokan level lineup, you have to take a lot of guys that would normally be a good fit out of the match. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I need to watch more of the Masawa Tawe matches because they they're different from a lot of the other All Japan main events in that era. From the one I've seen, they're more slower paced, like strictly storytelling matches, which isn't a bad thing. But it's they're fairly different from the other big all Japan matches of this era. Yeah, if I remember there it was good shit. Oh, I'm shocked. Yeah. But every you got one thing like every other combination pretty much had something that more closely resembled what we think of as a nineties all Japan match. Of the you know, all the other permutations of the big four or the big four plus one or whatever you want to call them. Whereas that for for whatever reason Masawa and Tawe matched up differently from the others. Yeah, Patriot worked at least half the worked at least the last night of the tour with a bad leg injury and could barely stand up and only tagged in twice briefly during the six man. Well, that's not good. No, no, it's not. But he was okay in the end, I guess. Here's the thing: he did that when he went to the doctor. He didn't go to Indianapolis. <laughs> yeah, New Japan. The hottest thing in Japan continues to be the build-up for the October 9th Tokyo Dome show with UWFI versus New Japan. At the UFC, we'll be talking more about that later, the Japanese there were raving about the angle at the dual press conferences and saying it was the hottest thing in the country in a long time. The angle's being played out all the way. The gimmick was this past Wednesday that UWFI announced card and basically one-match show with Nobuhiko Takada, Nobuhiko Takada versus Keiji Muto with both the UWFI and IJBGP World Heavyweight titles at stake. The other match announced by UWFI, the angle was that New Japan told the UWFI to make the card itself, <laughs> was Shinya Shimano against Tatsuo Nakano, Kesuke Sasaki against Masahiro Kakihara, Riki Choshu against Yoji Anjo, Masahiro Chono against Yugo Miyato, Jushi Tadalari against Naoki Sano, 
Takuki Azuka versus Yoshiro Takayama. Shinjiro Tani against Kenichi Yamamoto. And Yuji Nagata and Tokamitsu Isuzawa versus Kazushi Sakuraba and Hiromitsu Kanehara. UWF has number two wrestler Kiyoshi Tamura is not on this card. And they're probably at their own internal angle that he doesn't want to be part of this show because he's trying to change the wrestling style to Pancrate style and less pro wrestling style. Besides, it appears, to, it appears today this line of book is booked for New Japan to dominate the undercard. You know, everyone agrees the best thing for business would be for Takata to win the main event because it sets up all kinds of business for matches with Takata's champion against numerous New Japan wrestlers. New Japan usually does the best day for business. You know, lots of Japanese fans don't believe New Japan will allow its world champion to lose his title to a wrestler from a small organization, which brought precisely why the match is going to draw the heat at will. And guess what they do? <laughs> they switched about. No, they don't. Oh, no, no, they don't do it on the October 9th show? No, Muda wins with the figure four. When did they switch the title? January, January 4th. 4th. Okay. Hey, okay. All right. So they do the absolute wrong thing here because not only do they have Mudo go over, they have Mudo go over by submission with a pro wrestling hold. Yeah, yes. See, I had it switch. I, I had it in my mind switch the other way around because it makes more sense that way. How would that have made sense? Well, your memory's fooling you, though, because also then how would they have gotten to Takata versus Hashimoto? Or did you yeah, think Takata versus Hashimoto was January 4th? I can't remember. Anyway, but this is this uh, this is not Ricky Chosha doing the right thing for booking here for business. No, but I love the reason that Tamara's not on this show. <sighs> I mean, he doesn't work any of these shows. Yeah, I don't think he does, does he? He doesn't work anything for New Japan. I mean, he doesn't even Nothing. work with New Japan guys on UWF shows, I don't think. Nope. Well, he was always a UWFI guy. A UWF guy. He was in New Japan. He didn't have any dealings with them. Okay, of the let's look at this. Let's of the guys who are on the show, who has been in New Japan and before, and who isn't. Okay, Nakano has, Kakihara hasn't, Anjo has, Miyako has, Miyato hasn't, Sano has, Takiyama hasn't, um. Yamamoto hasn't, and Kanahara hasn't, and neither is Sakuraba, but Sakuraba also is a huge pro wrestling fan. So it's, well, about, I mean, it's about half and a half. Maybe a little more. Yeah, but, Take, yeah, but Takayama was in pro wrestling training, though. I mean, he trained with Mark Fleming and Luthez and, and all that crew. That's a good point that he did go through more of a regular pro wrestling school when he went... Wait, so was Takayama the only one who went to North Carolina or Virginia? Excuse me, Virginia. It was him and Katow. That's right. So was he in the New Japan Dojo? No. He was UWF, UWF Dojo. It was 89. How does yeah, Katow factor into that, though? Well, because Katow was sent there, you know, by New Japan, but Takayama was already there. Oh, so he was sent there by UWF. Yes. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So, yeah, about half and half on this show. But again, all those other guys, though, would be pro wrestling guys or do some type of form of pro wrestling. Hmm. Somewhere along the way. Tamara doesn't until way later. Even though UWFI gets pro wrestling. Let's be serious, but yes. still. It's also the most pro wrestling of the shoot style groups. Yes. But anyway. All right. Um, the next day, Chono complained to the press about wrestling Miyato and says he's going to attack and finish off Miyato in the parking lot before the show begins. 
Shono Miyato are playing off the old heat because Miyato was the spokesperson a few years ago when Shono held the NWA world title, and Miyato did the much-publicized grandstand challenge for Shono to fight Takata when the two companies were at war with each other. <laughs> and I take it that the reason that Miyato is the spokesperson is because he's one of the more trusted shooters? Uh, kind of like Anjo was. But we saw that worked out for Anjo. Yes, but Miyato ends up being in charge of the snake pit in, in Japan. Yes. There's a bit of a difference there. Also, I'm guessing I'm guessing it's the usual deal, too, of, like, the Gene LaBelle thing. Use the smaller guy who can shoot. Yeah. Because Miyato is, I gotta think, other than Sakuraba, he's probably the smallest guy on the roster, right? Yeah. In addition, the first promotional match appears to be September 23rd at Yokohama Arena with Anjo and Nakano going against Choshu and Kazuo Yamazaki. And this is of enough for you because Yamazaki was originally to face Shiro Koshinaka of Haisian Guy. Koshinaka lost his chance to work a main event match on such a big show, so it'll probably work that into the storyline for you with both New Japan and UWFI down the road. Now, the new angle they are working involves the rules. The two groups had a meeting supposed to decide what rules these matches would take place on September 8th, with UWFI represented by Ken Suzuki, Anjo and referee Wada, and New Japan represented by Tetsuo Baisho, Ford Ronald Antonio Noki, and King Front Office Man, Katsuji Nakashima, <laughs> and Katetsu Yamamoto. Well, there's two crooks there. Not and definitely not Katetsu. New Japan says the match should be under New Japan rules because the vast majority of the crowd would be New Japan fans and because New Japan fans won't understand the UFI point system. Both men start fifteen points and lose a point for a rope break and lose three points for a suplex or knockdown, and if so runs out of points, he loses. Well very rarely the matches end when the points run out, and the rules or pinfalls aren't counted. And there are submission matches. New Japan's story goes, and also correctly, thinks the crowd will understand pinfall finishes better. Choshi seats leaving up to the members of each group's front office to decide the rules. Sure. Anyway, so the announcement of the rule compromises during this upcoming week. Yeah, what kind of... Li- yeah, if I ain't got no fucking leverage here. So they are not going to be in the New Japan rules. I mean, I think this is an angle anyway, but... Well, of course it is! <laughs> Although we have Tetsuo Baisho and Katsushi Nakashima being out there in public, so that's always good. Inoki's mm-hmm. yes man and Choshu's yes man. So, yes. There you go. I'm sure they have plenty of friends in the local business community. Fine upstanding. <laughs> oh, Baisho, I mean, he was part of the whole thing with Inoki in 83. You know, the whole money laundering thing. So, absolutely. Wasn't it technically embezzlement? Well, either or. It still <laughs> was illegal shit. Hi, Gun was turned this week. The shows were headlined by a tag match with a New Japan team, Chono team, and a HI team all feuding. And it's pit for the show which two would meet first, and the winner would face third. Key on the card stuff was a junior heavyweight feud with Wild Pegasus and Grand Hamada teaming against Sabu and another partner, usually Norionaga or Black Cat. Well, we have some results here. Kawasaki, Japan on September the 8th. We have Shinjiro Otani over Tatsuya Takeiwa. Hiro Saito over Kunio Kobayashi. Akito Saito and Michio Shihara defeating Isamateri Nishi and Tadao Yasuda. Noronaga and Sabu of a Grand Hamada and Wild Pegasus. Koji Kanamoto of El Samurai. Osamu Kito of Ken Komura. Then we have uh, Hiroshi Tenzan Masuyo Chono going over Rikicho Shunyo Shakiyatsu. And Tenzan and Chono defeating Koshinaka and Testoshi Goto. So there's your Heisei Ishingan show for the week. Yes, and it's Interesting to see here something we talked about when we did the Sabu Patreon shows. How, at this point in the year, Sabu has just kind of stopped being part of Shono's group. Pretty much. For no apparent reason. 
Yeah. Which is also interesting because who did we deduce was paying politics with him because he felt he should be the junior heavyweight of murder rank? Chris Benoit. Wow, Pegasus. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which, listen to those Patreon shows if you haven't the uh, Fuck Sabu series because it was something neither of us had ever thought about before, but seeing everything laid out back to back, it would be very hard to argue with us at this point that Benoit wasn't politicking behind a lot of the Sabu stuff that was going on. Oh, God. He, I mean, he was all over it. But it's one of those things you only spot if you lay everything out back to back. Yes. All right. Big Japan Pro Wrestling. Shinka Jika and Kendo Nagasaki's Big Japan Pro Wrestling ran a big show in Nagoya on September 13th with Kendo against Nikolai Gordo, the older brother of Gerard Gordo, what was billed as a Valley 2 Do match inside of a UFC octagon. Dave presumes this match was worked. Since Nagasaki was knocked down twice, he came back to win 847 by submission. Cheeky thing. Satoru Sayama is running a Valtudo show on September 25th at Tokyo Komazawa Gym with Nagasaki facing kickboxer Gene Frazier. Sayama himself will have an exhibition match against his first rival from the early 80s, Kunio Kobayashi, now a Paisiation guy. Based on the tapes Dave's seen, Valet Tudo, which is a shoot, it's the deal that Craig Pittman did several months back, is terribly boring. Because the guys hang on to the ropes and nothing happens. There are no rope breaks, but they follow the ring. They're dragged into the center of the ring and put in the same position as when they fell, which looks so contrived, and then give them the signal restart. Yuki Nakai, the 156-pound guy who scored the controversial win over Craig Pittman, and also beat Gerard Gordeaux when both his eyes were closed before losing his sign Grace, he will be in that tournament. Seattle's protege, the newest Tiger Mask, started his past week mentioned looking for wrestling. By Tudor show will be seven singles matches rather than the tournament, as has been the case on the previous two cards. <laughs> so at this point, Yuki Nakai's blindness in his bad eye is so kayfabed that he's pretending he's coming back. <laughs> yes. Wow. And I love Dave bearing Valley Tuda. Well, if you're going to have ropes for MMA and not have rope breaks of some kind, or rest instant restarts, or at least ban holding the ropes, then, yeah, this is how it's going to turn out. Mm-hmm. All right, Big Japan. What a show this is. September 13th, it's Yoshi Sports Center in front of 3,500 fans. We have Koichi Kimura beating Shinji Katase. 29 Fujita over Crusher Takahashi. Ichiro Yaguchi over Yosuke Yosuke Kobayashi, Abby Jr., Seiji Yamakawa, Ryuji Yamakawa, over Masiko Kochi. <coughs> and now we get these matches. Bruiser Okamoto over Jimmy James. Yes, the Dallas Jimmy James. The Blackbirds, Iceman King Parson and Action Jackson, defeated Yuichi Taraguchi and Yoshiaki Yatsubix. That's... That's even more unlikely than Eddie Kingston versus Rusev opening a major pay-per-view. <laughs> you think Iceman did the Mama Says Bees That Way Sometime promo in Japanese or in, in Japan? I hope you had a barbed wire Rudy Poot stick. <laughs> and then our main event was Nagasaki over Gordo, Nikko Gordo, in the Valatuda match. That main event. 3,500 fans! That man better be a work, because if there's someone I'd trust less to abide by the rules in a shoot than Gerard Gordeau, it'd be Gerard Gordeau's older brother. 
Too bad Iceman didn't get involved in these Valley Tudo matches. That'd been a hoot. Or Axon Jackson, Baby Sis could return and corner him. Oh my god. Oh. The Blackbirds in Big Japan. That's wild. No, and no Harold T. <laughs> Harris, though. Well, he's long gone by this time. And it's not Brickhouse. That'd be even wilder. Just the new Blackbirds. All right, FMW. Their show of the week was in Maybashi. Maybashi City Gym front of 600 fans September 14. Yuki Nabano over Yukari Ishikura. In your opener. Hisakatsu Oi and Riki Fuji over Koji Nakagawa and Makayato. Masato Tanaka over Tetsuro Kuroda. Bad Nurse Nakamura, Sharshashuya, Miwasada over Megumi Kudo, Combat Toyota, and Kori Nakayama. Almost 20 minutes, picks. Then a six-man street fight. Mr. Pogo, the Gladiator Mike Awesome, and Horace Boulder beat Mr. Danger, Mr. Matsunaga, Bad Boy Hino, and Hideki Asaka. And then we have a tournament going off of the FMW Grand, uh, Grand Slam Brass Knuckles title. As Super Leather beat Wing Katamura in a tournament match, and Hayabusa beat Katsutoshi Niyama in another tournament match. They are not drawing without Onita. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. They're going through some hard times here. And also notice that the person who ends up bringing attendance back up is booked fourth from the bottom, right in the middle of the card. Kudo. Yeah. Yep. Who was booking that made the call to kind of run with her in a bigger spot anyway? I guess was Arai the booker? I don't know if he was. I don't know how much creative power he had, so I can't tell you. Because um, it's not like there's a senior wrestler figure in the office, really, that fits like they'd be the booker. I, I mean, Pogo. He might be. Maybe. Because Onita's not here. Goto's. And we're not talking about him and IWA, so. Yeah. Maybe Pogo. Well, speaking of IWA, IWA Japan in the September 10th issue in the College Sports, Tarzan Goto challenged Hickson Gracie after receiving wins the NWA title from Dan Severin. This is a grandstand deal for sure, for obvious reasons. Yes. Tarzan Goto gets Hickson Gracie. Oh, my God. Oof. That meant something else. IWA opened their latest tour on September 13th in Fakui. Fakui saw Main event was a bookhouse match where Tarzan Goto and Mr. Gamsake beat Cactus Jack and Bob Barrigale. Headhunters and attack. Yes. The headhunters and attack Goto and Gamsake with chains, causing Goto to challenge for a two on four match against the foursome, which went to a 10 minute draw. This is uh, Goto and Gamsake challenging the headhunters for IWA tag titles, but Gamsake was pinned in 19 minutes. All right. It's your 1800 this show. We had Keizo Masuda and Katsumi Hirano over Takashi Sato. And Daisuke Tawe. Kyoko Ichiki over Emi Murakawa. Shinobi over Keiso Matsuda. Leatherface over Yoshika Abe. Headhunters over Keisuke Yamane and Shoji Nakamaki. Lamamanumi. And then we have all the uh, other matches here. So we have Bob Berga doing double shot in the shit picks. Teaming with Sounds delicious. Jack. Yes. So we get... Uh, we get Bob Bergale and what he looks like, and Cactus Jack what he looks like. Boy, that's a, a dream for uh, for some people, isn't it? The brutal slab Cactus Jack beats up hot muscle jobber Bob. Well, wait, they're teaming. Oh. <laughs> wow. 
But Barrigale had potential, though. If he was anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, he was a good... He, like, he was a good athlete. He could do some interesting things. Like, put him in a different environment, he could be okay. You know? Um, by the way, since we were on that note, uh, Jordan Breen sent me a YouTube comment he found the other day on a Barry Windham versus Curtis Thompson match. Yes. I have seen so many Wyndham versus Thompson live and on TV. I always wonder if Wyndham is gay. He gets satisfaction <laughs> beating muscle jobbers like Thompson and at times need to adju adjust his tight. Lots of body slams and suplex. <laughs> wow, to see Thompson in pain from the multiple slams and suplex. Amazing to see Thompson reverse body slam and yet received two count pin from Wyndham. Wow. <laughs> oh man that's actually my favorite thing about the muscle jobber youtube commenters is how so much of their discourse is projecting the desires onto the wrestlers in the ring having their same fetishes mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's like that extra level of engagement yes anyway enough about victor <laughs> Michinoku Pro Wrestling. They ran a show in Fujisaki on September 14. We have Taka Michinoku over Masato Yokosuji. Kendo over Masakara Mahika. Wilita Wilkins Jr. went to a no contest with Yoni Genjin. Taka Mas 4 and Hanzo Nakajima defeating their Hiroshikawa and Steve J. I'm assuming that's a British wrestler. Yes, and Katakun Lee and Great Sasuke defeated Grand 91 and Super Dolphin. So there's your Michinoku Pro Show. Tokyo Pro. They ran Fukushima City Gym on September 12th for a 6.50. Takeshi Miyamoto and Akihiko Masuda over Imai and Kei Tsukata. Shumi Masasaki over Bruzo Okamura. Apollo Shigawara over Jun Kikazawa. Ebisan. Uh, Kikutaro. Hiroshi Tanaka and Yoshiro Ito over Yuichi, Yuichi Fukaya and Musashi. Not K1's Musashi. Masashi Oyaki over Kishin Kawabata. And our main event, Great Kabuki and Takakuba Benkei over Takashi Shikawa and Ryo Miyaki. Oof. <laughs> oh my goodness. When by far the best match on paper is Aoyagi versus Kawabata. <laughs> and I like the Battle guys, of two guys. But... A battle of two guys that would be in, the, in undercards in Noah 10 years later. Yeah. What a scummy, yeah. what a scummy show that is. Oh, and then they goodness. mysteriously you, get a money you gotta, out of nowhere. <laughs> You go to that show when you leave, they need to give you a bar of soap. But that's a dirty show right there. <laughs> all right, all Japan women in Hitachi, Japan on September the 8th. We have Yoshiko Tamura over Mina Taniyama Bix. <laughs> so, yes, we had the future Tanny Mouse uh, against Yoshiko Tamura and your uh, future Neo main event in the opener here. That's oh, it gets better. Nobui Endo and Masai Watanabe uh, went to a time draw time of draw with Yukashina and Yumi Fakawa. Well, at least there's one good wrestler in that match. Masai Watanabe, Masai Genki. Oh, Escomita and Toboko Watanabe over Reggie Bennett and Shafuto Asari. Hey, 1995, it's is fine. Mima Shimoda and Rie Tamada over Mariko Yoshida and Kamiko Mikawa. Aja Kong over Mika Hota and Toshio Yamana, Kyoko Inoue and Takako Inoue. Defeated Manami Toyota, Sakashigawa, and Karo Ito. I'm just going to guess that that co-main is violent. Just a little. 
But yeah, that's a loaded roster. Then you have JWP, they ran Matsumoto on September 12th. We have Hikari Fukuoka versus Saburo. Cutie Suzuki over Rico Amano. And Kanyo Kutsu, Bolshoi Kid, and Danamai Kansai over Hiromiyagi, Dev Masami, and Mayumi Ozaki. You know, for as limited a roster as they have, it is a pretty loaded one. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, I mean, there are 10 wrestlers on this show. Yes. And, and I think this is the, the matches. Yeah, because we've seen other JWP things that are this that are like this with three matches. The only one I don't really know is Saburo, but everyone else on that show is at least very, very good. Yeah. Alright, um CWA as we go Eurasia on this. Hanover Germany on September 9th. We have David Taylor over Drew McDonald. Ben Doom McDonald. Cannonball Grizzly over Jojo Lee Bex. That would be all elite wrestling Satoshi Kojima. Yes. Tony St. Clair over David Finley by disqualification. Franz Schumann over John Hall, future JBL. And then Ulf Herman and August Smeissel over Rod Price and Big Tight. You made a bet. Interesting group of foreigners on this tour, I'd say. Yeah. So let's see. We've got a regular in Grizzly. We've got Ko- Kojima on his excursion. Plus John Hawk, who's really about to become a regular. And Rod Price and Big Titan. Mm-hmm. Which I guess also shows you that New Japan is not necessarily the only Japanese promotion on good terms with Otto. Yes. Yep. Kind of interesting seeing seeing him here. And that by the way, boy, Kojima has not aged, has he? He looks good. God bless him. Because he's been wrestling well, 30 years now. Yeah. He started in 91. So God bless him. It, it probably helps that he has boiled his style down onto something very simple for a long time. But it works. I mean, he's one of those guys who, you know, he is older. But you know you're going to get something approximating the same match you would have gotten out of him in his prime. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go to Mexico now, and we'll start with Triple A. Focus this past week has been to build up new stars, replace those that have left. In particular, El Trio Fantasia, Super Muñeco, Super Rabbit, and Jugadero, and the children. Rabbit being the best of the three. And the new character is a Frisbee in Vegas, along with bringing Pedro Aguayo Jr. towards a regular. Frisbee is one of my all-time favorite Luchador names. Yes, and little do they know... I mean, my much more talent's about to be leaving now. So, yeah. <laughs> They're about to take a hit. Well, when, okay, when in 96 does Conan leave? Well, he promotes, you know, in Tijuana early 96, but it's not too long after that. But that's still AAA affiliated at first. Yeah, early 96 is when he leaves, when he goes to WCW full-time, basically. Okay. And now, do you remember who Super Rabbit was? I'll tell my hand now. So these days he's best known as Pierco Elbariqua. Oh, Salsero. Yes. So mainly Salsero, but also Kendo Star, who I always forget is not Kendo. Um, and uh, what was this other one I saw here? He was the well, second, about... he was the 2005 to 2008 Hijo del Piero. Yeah. What about Vegas, though, Bix? Okay, Vegas. You're wanting me to guess this one? That's why I said it. Yeah. 
Vegas. I forget. Was there more than one? Was there more than one Vegas? I don't think there was more than. Yeah, there was more than one. But this is the this is the favorite. Okay, so this is the one that is Black Warrior. Yes, yes, it is Black Warrior. Now, can you tell me who the other two Vegases were? Oh, um, no. Okay, one is uh, Black Power, Johnny Guzman, not John Bonello. And uh, the third one was Mr. Mexico. Well, there you go. Now, do you remember how we figured out that the John Bonello thing happened? Um, I just got it's a translation thing because it's John Vanelli Guzman. Right, it's that he's John Vanelli Guzman. So somewhere, I'm guessing someone transliterated from a Japanese magazine or something, and Vanelli and Bonello got mixed up. Yes, and uh, the reason there's a super rabbit is because there's a baby rabbit. Suki. Yes. And Hugadero I'm not familiar with. Hugadero, let's see who that is. Wasn't that Fonzie's girlfriend on Happy Days? <laughs> oh, that's Toscadero. Little Toscadero, okay. It's uh, Tiger Man. Tiger Man, uh, the, the luchador, not the Eagle Pro Wrestler. And then, okay, so Frisbee, I forget, did Frisbee have any other names, or was he just Frisbee? Um, I think it was just Frisbee. Let's see real quick. Did I check Lucha Wiki, which really we should just have open whenever we do the Lucha segment. Okay, Frisbee 1, which I is this one, I guess, is the former Power Raider Rojo. So wait a second. <sighs> okay. Lasser, okay, it's Lasser, I think. Yes, at this, it's let yes, from September to November '95. This, so Frisbee is Lasser. All right, there you go. One of the one of those wrestlers I always wish we had more tape of. Yeah, because he's one of those guys from the little we've seen. Like, I don't think he was a Ninja Turtle, but right, but he still had a similar role, like with the Power Raiders. Like that's a guy who, from the other gimmicks we've seen him in, you could tell he could just go. Yeah. Oh, he right, the other... in California, too. Okay, so that's another place we would have seen him. And he was also the original Skyda. All right, the shows for the week, September the 8th, in Ciudad Madero, which your 9,500 fans saw the trio Fantasia beat Los Payasos in the opener. Fumito Guerrero Pero Jr. went to double count out, with Hubi once again doing a great job of carrying Perito, who is very young here. Heavy Metal had his first match back as a Technico team with Latin Lover and Frisbee going over Blue Panther, Jader Estrada, and Fuscarera. Metal said to be wrestling a lot better in his new role. Headliner saw the four menaces of the key letter, Ash Romensko built from New York, because he's a gimp. Uh, KGB, actually from Los Angeles, but built from Russia, Tom Howard. And Nico Suna, actually from San Francisco, but built as being from Samoa, Tom Kid. And Pentagon, Ashley from Mexico, but Bill from El Salvador, beating Conan, Octagon, Mascara Sagrada, La Parca by DQ, and Pentagon did a fake foul for the third fall finish. Didn't it actually turn out, though, that Espanto Jr. was at least partially Salvadorian? Or Salvadorian? I mean, may, maybe he may have, some, may have that in some blood, but yeah, he's from Mexico. And for those who don't know, yes, original Pentagon is Espanto Jr. Yes. And then the other big show of the week was September 13th in Angos Calientes for a cell of 7,500. With the first uh, Pedro Aguaya and Nico Suna non-step singles match, 
But Ray Mysterio Jr. and Fuzz Guerrero won their respective corners. Third fall finish saw DQ on Pero refusing to stop the stomping the hell out of Nico Suna. Nico Suna crossed himself. Wait a second, a Technico lost a fall by Rudisimo? Well, that's Pero Aguayo. Yeah, sure. Uh, Fuzz Guerrero attacked Pero at the match, so Pero Jr. made the save, getting a monster push. So the father-son tag team feud and both teams brawl for a few minutes. I like that booking in the sense that I get that he's the elder statesman babyface, but you, you, you really did need to see more of the old Paro than they gave you. Yeah. Now, the rest of the show uh, had Hoovy, Pedro Silva, and Vegas beat Perito, Frisbee, and Rey Mysterio Jr. in the opener. Cibernetico, Mascara Sagrada, Tedebus Jr. beat Chicano Power, KGB, and The Killer. And Heavy Metal, Latin Lover, and Petero del Ring defeated Blue Panther, Huvito Guerrero, and Sakosa in a steel cage match. And of course, Pantera del Ring being the future Safari Efisto. So there you go. 9,507,000. Not bad houses for the week, for the big shows for the week for AAA. Absolutely. Not bad at all. There was a lot of talk of running a major show in November with Conan against the Encadas and a Caballero Coach Caballero match on top, but it appears Conan's having the Weaver stitches removed and is going with the almost bald look because of having all that stuff on his head hampered his wrestling. Because he was afraid to try some things for fear the hair would come off. And it would be embarrassing. It's some of a career risk because everybody facing Mexico has a, either a lot of hair or wears a mask. However, Dave feels he doesn't want anything handicapping or holding them back when he debuts VCW. He's better bald here, but in Mexico he was better with the hair. I don't think he, he was ever the same in Mexico without the hair. Hmm. There was something about it. I can't really describe it, but there's something about it that really added to his aura. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it gave him this look. Yes. Uh, so I love the idea that he's taking out the extensions because he feels they will impede the work rate wrestling he needs to do to survive in ECW. <laughs> well, he thought that's what was going to happen, but it did. All right, CMLL. They retaliated this week from the deal where they were left embarrassed by Tenebulous Jr. jumping back to AAA right after appearing that night in Rio Mexico. By snatching Mascara Dos Mil and Universal Dos Mil, who debuted on September 12th at Arena Coliseo. The two younger brothers of Cien Caras, while not good workers by any means, have been headliners seeing me forever and were two of the bigger named Rudos in the country. Cien Caras, the longtime Rudo numero uno in Mexico, stand with AAA. These are definitely the two biggest names to jump, with the exception of Santos, since the war began. Okay, first of all, as we all know, El Rudo numero uno de Mexico is El Satanico. Yeah, but Cien Caras was a bigger draw. I know, but literally his nickname is El Rudo Numero Uno de Mexico. I know that. Um, that said, oh, Mascara Año Dos Mil and Universo Dos Mil, not good workers by any means. Well, <laughs> Dave was consistent at least on that in his thoughts. Yes. Remember when it freaked out Alvarez that I was trying to get him to watch that Universo uh, Paraguayo Jr. match? <laughs> yes. Because he was convinced that the Dina Mutes couldn't have a good match. Well, they buried him for years. So. Didn't Bob Barnett advertise his Lucha compilations as Dina Mutes free? Yes. And I think that's where a lot of that comes from, too, is from those fans that were Lucha fans before Dave became a hardcore Lucha fan. But you know and what? And stealing that in. But Dr. Dr. Lucha wouldn't be that down on AAA main events. Dr. Lucha was higher on AAA main events than anyone else. 
Yeah, but there were. I mean, it was more than just him, Bix. I know. I'm just saying, but the main Lucha specific. I don't think. I don't think John D. Williams was a huge fan of the Dinamitas. So, Sigh. there's that big ass laugh. Nods. All right. <laughs> All right, September the 8th, every Mexico headline match with Santo, Ultimo, Dragon, and Cortezon de Leon. Chris Jericho, what a team. Over Negro Costas, Emilio Chalas Jr., and El Satanico by his qualification. Match wasn't as good as you'd think, though, given the participants, with the main focus being Negro destroying Santo throughout, ending in a straight fall win for the Technicos at their second fall DQ for destroying Santo. Costas got a large percentage of the cheers because a lot of fans see him as their wrestler since he had been a Technico to Rio Mexico to restarting his rival with Santo on September the 1st. And Sato was coming in from the rival group. Rest of the matches on this car, which for some reason I didn't put on here, are Carlos de la Muerte, Carlos Vigardi Jr., Mucho Cota over Mascara Magica, Niebla, and Pantera, El Dandy, Etagarza, and Shocker over Felino, Quejos, and Shua Guerrero, and El Bariqua, Miguel Perez Jr., and Enrique Santana over Dos Caras, Arrealisco Jr., and Silver King. El Bariqua, of course, being Fidel Sierra under a mask. And then September 12th, which we mentioned the, the uh, Dinamitas. Arena Coliseo drew 1,000 fans for the for the Headhunters uh, going up against Rodrigo Jr. Silver King and Corazon de Leon and La, La Fiera and Vampiro uh, beating Apollo Dantes, Grand Marcus Jr. Mano Negro in your main event. They're getting people to jump back. Yes. Um. So that's helping. So their roster is about to start getting better. Well, it helps when. The peso has crashed, so thus all of a sudden you're not competing to pay Americans a quarter million dollars a year. True. Absolutely. You know. But anyway, yeah. But they're on their they're, way. They're on the rise. They're on the rise, absolutely. Yes, and that is quite the main event on paper. Yeah, but it just didn't work out that way, sadly. No, no. Uh, okay, here's something to think about that just hit me. And maybe this is really what helps Jericho in a way. I mean, helping launch AEW is probably his biggest legacy as far as Hall of Fame and stuff at this point. But now that you throw in the new, the last New Japan run, this is a guy who has been a long-term headliner in a money-drawing position in the U.S., Japan, and Mexico. And yes. that never really hit me till now. Yeah. You know, not that he was a huge draw in Mexico. I'm, although I'm guessing his best drawing record would be in Monterey, where we don't really have any records of it. No. But still, you know, he's a key headliner here. You know, it's pretty impressive, especially when you consider, like, when you think of people who had success in more than two, you know, major wrestling countries... It's usually someone who's more like a chameleon junior heavyweight. And I know he was a junior heavyweight for a lot of this, but still. It's still someone you think of like a Benoit or an Owen Hart. Mm-hmm. It's not someone being pushed as a headliner. But he was. Yep. And because he pretty much had to. They needed new faces. Yes. New foreign faces. Mm-hmm. And he had the look, and he had a style that adapted well to Lucha to the point that probably a lot of the issues he had in WWE, other than the working too stiff ones, probably had a lot to do with just how much of his formative years, especially his first run as a main eventer, were in Mexico, stylistically. Yeah. 
Very possible. You know, I mean, think about for his first God, like at least several years as a American TV wrestler. And I don't even mean this as an insult or a negative, just it's the reality of how the styles different from each other. Just how much floatier his work looked than everyone else on WCW and WWF TV. Yeah. He looked like a guy who spent a lot of his formative years in Mexico and maybe didn't adjust as well as he should have. But he made up for it eventually. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for the first half of the show. It's halftime. So have some great 1995 commercials. We'll pivot to the halftime segment where we'll talk about Patreon. We'll uh, hit the plugs, talk about IBTV, all that good stuff, and then come back and we'll talk about Ultimate Fighting Championships. A very memorable show for many reasons, and Dave Meltzer on the ground, live. At the Municipal Auditorium in beautiful Buffalo, New York. Buffalo, hello. And uh, it should be a very interesting show as we talk about my guy, the King of the Streets, Marco Huas, and a whole lot more after the break. Tonight on Talk Soup, introducing Tan Master George. My one and only exes from Nacogdoches, Texas. She came to Hollywood to try to be an actress. And on E! News Daily, Willie R. Beat Murder One. We'll talk about the new Thursday night competition. And more of our sneak peek at 7. Plus, on Howard Stern, Howard's got Fred's wife in a compromising position. If they've got video here, confess now. Talk Soup, tonight at 9 at midnight. E! News Daily at 9.30 and 12.30. And Howard Stern, tonight at 11 and 2. It happens here on E! understands that the simple act of petting a dog can make people healthier and happier. It's even been suggested that people who own dogs lead longer, fuller lives. Now, knowing what dogs do for you, wouldn't it be nice to do the same for them? You can, by feeding your dog Iams every day. It's more nutritious because its quality ingredients are more digestible. Iams Dog Food, good for life. From the Iams Company. I was a size 16. I was fat. And that's when I decided to go to Jenny Craig. Now at Jenny Craig, lose 20 pounds for $20. Call 1-800-45-JENNY today. Now I feel great. I get into this dress. I start to cry. Oh, my gosh. I just put on a side eight. It's Visine season. Time for red, irritated eyes. Time for Visine. The only eye drop recommended by pharmacists 4 to 1 over any other brand. So effective, it gives you 100% of the relief you need. Visine. It gets the red out. Current Affair. Check your local listings for time and station.
There's the Hubble. The Voyager. The Space Shuttle. But none of these things get you closer to the stars than Eve. We're first in line as they arrive at events like the Academy Awards. We're on movie sets. We're up close and personal. Whoa! It's like a celebrity playground in here. The only other place with this many stars is the nighttime sky. But you don't need a ton of rocket fuel to get close to us. E, closer to the stars than anyone else. Hey, man. Hey. I'm making some grilled cheese sandwiches. Do you want one? Sure. Dear Alfred. Alfred? Here are a couple things to make living on your own a little easier. Love, Mom. Cool. Yikes. Hey, check this out. Nothing turns a sandwich into a satisfying meal like rich, wholesome Campbell's tomato soup. So you know your family's eating right, even when you can't be there to cook for them. There's nothing like a home-cooked meal. You said it, Alfred. Campbell's Have you ever put your heads together? I see a slight tear in his When you're not together. And you recommend immobilization. I see no need for surgery. See? You will. And the company that'll bring it to you, AT&T. The Super Volume from Braun. As it dries your hair, it adds volume. Instant volume for straight hairstyles. The Super Volume from Braun. Every week, E! features a new film from the director and actor's point of view. This week, Showgirls. Saturday, 1 Eastern, 10 Pacific, only on E! Did you enjoy that, Uncle? What is nightstand? And Neil is someone we'd all like to beat the crap out of! It's wild. And you are? Heather. It's wacky. Nice Heather we're having. <laughs> it's about being informed. We're back and we're confessing our butts off. Heck, we've all been ashamed about something. Is he going to spit or anything? In fact, we're working to make Nightstand completely shameless. Watch Nightstand. Comedy doesn't get any more better. All right, we're back. I hope you enjoyed all those great 1995 commercials as we pivot to the halftime segment of the show. We'll begin talking about Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. Where we'll have a new show coming out very soon. So be on the lookout for that as we discuss the 25th anniversary of the New World Order. The formation. The formation of the New World Order. All the stuff went on there. Going up all the way until Eric Bischoff joined the group. And then it became overcrowded as hell. So we'll talk about everything from the beginning to that point. So be on the lookout for that. Should be a hell of a show. Maybe just one. Who knows? Could be two. All depends on how everything falls note-wise. So be ready for that. Of course, the last one we did was on uh, Superstar Billy Graham vs. the World Wrestling Federation, which is a quite informative show, so definitely go check that out. And we got all our shows up as well, and the, all the ECW stuff, the global stuff, everything else we've done in near five complete years of our Patreon at patreon.com slash twin sheets. Five dollars a month gets you access to that. So uh, get on it if you haven't done it already. Dollar month gives you access to the Discord and thanks in this segment. $25 allows you to pick a show for the week. Now make sure you pick a show that we haven't done already. If you have done it, then make sure you have a backup choice handy. Also, somebody may have the show that you want picked out already. So think about that as well when you have uh, are wanting to decide what you want us to talk about. So we'll do that and let us know why you want to talk about the show. That way we can make sure everything matches up timeline-wise. Uh, get that information to Bix before 30 days. You've got a two-year rule in effect, Wednesday to Tuesday. 
I'll follow the instructions on the Patreon website and how to do all this, and you should be good to go. And fifty dollars allows you to sit in for a segment of the show and a hundred for the whole show, if you so choose. Patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right. Who we have to, this week is our new and or returning patrons. All right. We would like to thank TJ. I don't know if it's Gloucester or Gloucester. Thanks, TJ. David, I guess, two T-E-W. Thanks, David. Malik Douglas. Thanks, Malik. Damien A. Thorne. Thanks, Damien. And the returning Some Guy. Thanks, Some Guy. We take all you new patrons, all you old patrons that start been there from the start, patrons that are coming along the way. We thank all of you for your support. At patreon.com slash twenty sheets and tell everybody. Let's get that number up. Let's get higher and higher and higher. Let's get the word out there. Especially the new NWO sh- show when it comes out. So uh, that'd be a very cool show. So do it. Get everybody involved now. All right. IWTV, Bix. A lot of new stuff going up up there. Uh, Of course, we talked about the uh, Steve Carino, Colby Carino match last week. So if you haven't watched that yet, go watch that. Wild Side's up, which I got to start back watching some more Wild Side to get ready for the next Exile. But what else is going on? Uh, What's the new, new stuff this week that's caught your eye? Well, we should know, too, that at least for football season, we're recording halftime on a different schedule. So you don't have to tell all that. Well, no. Well, I say it because we have a fairly loaded weekend of live streams coming up as we record this and before the show comes out. And in particular, we want to mention that our friends at AIW, let me make sure this is not not a phone call I need to take. It's right now. It's not. Um the AIW show that would have happened this past Friday that should be up on demand by now. Let me, it is the show titled Sunny Days, featuring an appearance by Tammy Sitch, who I hope is doing better, I guess. Although I would think that she is, if Thorne's booking her for an appearance. But she is the featured, you know, signing interaction and stuff at the live event. And the matches include, I believe, if... Yes, it's... This is the show that features the match that was announced a few days ago as we're recording this. Rhino versus Kaplan. And that sounds like a bit of a violent hoss fight if I've ever seen one. Yeah. Yes. I'm trying to think who what's even the best way to describe Kaplan for no one who's ever seen him wrestle. Just like a kind of unassuming hoss type, I guess. Yeah. I, I can't really think of a better way to put it than... You know, other interesting stuff on that show that obviously we have not seen yet, but uh, Derek Tillander's taking on Matthew Justice. Anthony Green makes his debut to take on Lee Moriarty. There's a four-way with uh, Matt Cross versus Chase Oliver versus the returning Alex Zane. Actually, I'm not sure if he's returning or debuting. I don't remember if he's been at W before. Versus Gringo Loco. So, fun-looking show. Probably will have seen some of it by the time this actually comes out, but since we haven't yet, there we go. And there, as as there are most weekends these days, there are a lot of shows that we're live streaming that we have not seen yet because we're recording this before they happen. But there's also new stuff on on demand that's gone up. Uh, let's see what we've got here. Hold on, I clicked the wrong thing. Now a few East older ECWA shows went up. They already had the second Super Eight up previously, right? I thought so. So I could be 
I'm guessing this is a replacement for like some of the audio issues or something that that had. So that went up this week and also some other archival ECWA. There's one show from 97, October 18th, 97, which includes, and of course, this is a very ECWA lineup, including one match that's kind of surprising, though. Gino Caruso. Oh, versus Mr. Ulala. Armageddon and Viper versus Cowboy Blaze and J.R. Ryder. Devin Storm versus Mike Quackenbush. Glenn Osborne versus Mankind. 30-minute Iron Man match between Reckless Youth and Lance, the future Simon Diamond. Woogie Woogie Brown versus the Orient Express and Persian Prince. A battle royal and a main event of Cheetah Master versus Ace Tarlin. Not the most East Coast sounding card you'll hear on the show. As uh, Just wait until the next segment. How about Mankind versus Glenn Osborne, though? Yeah, that's pretty damn good. Yes. Uh, and uh, also a show from 2013 went up at By Which Point, I think. I think Mark, Mike Tartaglia had bought ECWA by then, right? Uh, probably. Yes, and I'm trying to see anything particularly notable on here. Josh Daniels wrestling in 2013. That's something. I didn't know yeah. he was still going by then. Yeah. Atu of getting knocked out by low-key fame is on the card. And then just as a refresher, that Super 8 that I guess this is a better version of now. This might actually be the Tim Noel version looking at the screenshot. Uh, that's the one where the first round is Ace Starling versus Mike Quackenbush, Inferno Kid versus Devin Storm, Mark the Shark Schrader versus Lance Diamond, and Scott Taylor versus Reckless Youth. All right. So that's that. Uh, latest C4 mixtape is number 70. And the headlining match, I guess you could call it, on the latest mixtape as we record this is The Young Bucks and Bucks Belmar, who I'm not familiar with, versus the Super Smash Brothers, Stu and Uno, and Speedball Mike Bailey. So that's an attractive match for the Young Bucks and Dark Order fans, I suppose, on there. And let's see what else. TWE, our friends over there, put up a new show that includes a Tank versus Derek Neal parking lot brawl. Holy shit, I need to see this. I didn't realize they had run this. Colby Carino versus Kevin Koo. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a banger. Yeah. And the main event for the TWE title, Brett Eisen versus Jaden Newman versus... The former Graham Bell, now just Mark, which uh, I believe that's where uh, Graham won the title, right? I think so. so. That sounds like a show worth checking out. I still haven't watched the one for Messiah Weekend either, so I need to catch up. But sounds pretty good, though, from our friends at TWE. And that's, a, that's about it for this week. You know, there's more old CZW TV went up, you know, going into 2002. So that's cool. You know, more of the usual weekly stuff, Freelance Underground and the like, uh, Tidal in the UK, put up a bunch of archival stuff. So lots of cool stuff going up on IWTV this week. If you want to sign up, if you have not before, go to independentwrestling.tv and use the code BTSPOD. You will not get a discount or extra time or anything, but it gives us a referral fee for as long as you're a paid subscriber. So please, when you're signing up at independentwrestling.tv, use coupon code, well, code BTSPOD. And Viper VPN. Yes, Viper VPN, which, okay. I Something I discovered the other day, um, a certain service that may not may or may not carry AEW pay-per-views in AEW Plus, if you order through their website, they appear to have found a way to identify VPNs. However, if you do the ordering through their mobile app, you're fine. 
I'm guessing it is at the payment step uh, where that happens. So because on mobile it's using Apple or Google's payments, you're able to get around that. So for anyone who has been trying to use it with AEW Plus or anything like that and found issues, um, that's the way to get around it. And whatever fight got, though, it, they, they found a good one because I tried a few other, you know, free VPNs I had just to see and a bunch of different countries. So they, they must have found someone who's very good at handling this kind of thing. Well, there you go. But That's yes. That said, Viper VPN, though, great speeds, numerous countries represented, great privacy features, verified that they do not include server, excuse me, do not take server logs down of their subscribers' activity. So tinyurl.com slash btsvpn gets you their best deal. 60 bucks for three years, less than $1.67 a month. Pa- I almost said Patreon. tinyurl.com slash btsvpn to get that deal and support us in the process. Mm-hmm. There you go. All right, next week up Between the Sheets, we'll have a bigger plug at the end of the show, but 1990, we go back to then, and uh, what a show this is. As we'll have um, all kinds of WWF stuff, a meaty WWF section with news and stuff, including uh, Saturday Night Main Event taping in uh, Toledo, which, which featuring Teddy Biasi and Dustin Rhodes and that whole deal. We got um, news on uh, their trial with well, their court case with the state of New Jersey. We got uh, Vincent Mann crashing Mr. Olympia. I mean, that's all kind of stuff in that section. So there's yeah. that. And by the way, the, the lawsuit, I believe, is in New Jersey tax court. And there is a, a ruling online from that that we can pull up. So that, that'll have some extra information about dollar figures and stuff we can talk about. I'll have a, a lot of uh, stuff that I found regarding a shakeup at Turner Entertainment in the, in the higher up department. Oh, so very interesting stuff there, and especially when you look at what's going to happen in the long run. This is outside of the wrestling newsletters? Absolutely. Uh-oh. Absolutely. I went to various newspapers, so we'll have that. Um, and all the other assorted NWA shenanigans, including staying in the Black Scorpion, when the Black Scorpion's being arrested for, after a TV tape, and we'll say what for, and just all kind of wackiness going on there. And uh, we got the news on everything else around the world, including and actually leading off the show next week, the return of world-class championship wrestling as Kevin Von Erich brings back world-class championship wrestling after Jerry and Jarrett leaves Dallas. And we'll have all the news there, why that happened and everything going on there. And Steve Beverly goes in depth on that story, plus Congi Sports and Fox Network and so much more next week on Between the Sheets. Congi, wasn't that the thing that the Bushwhackers would do? (laughs) Maybe. So be on the lookout for that next week. Me and Bix will go solo, no guests next week. So uh, it's it's a show that – it's one of those shows that's a BTS-centric show. On brand Between the Sheets? Oh, God, yes. We got Matt Watch, and y'all, the Matt Watch favorites are involved. So, yeah, it's going to be quite the show. Is Crusher Bam Bam Bigelow mentioned? Uh, well, there's a Good Heart show. I can't remember if he was on that show or not. But anyway, all that more next week on Between the Sheets. And uh, cover to cover. Should be out by the time you hear this. So be on the lookout for that as we discuss the May 1989 issue of Inside Wrestling which has the cover of Hulk Hogan Admits, I Love Elizabeth, 
like a sister. <laughs> As there is a photo of Elizabeth transposed between Hulk Hogan's hands, and Hulk Hogan has this insane look on his face. So we'll talk about that in a lot more in that magazine. A very, 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 very fun show. So be on the lookout for that as it's probably dropped by now. So there, go listen to it if you haven't listened to it already. And I'll be working on uh, getting Exile on Bad Street done pretty soon for the wild side. So quite a bit of audio coming out in this month. So, yeah, you won't have anything uh, not to listen to. Let's put it that way. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper at B-T-G-Spot. Bix at David Bix. And, uh, Anything going on in your world this week, Bix? The email magazine article I was talking about maybe should be out this week. They they were shorthanded as they were restarting because of certain jobs that weren't filled yet and stuff. So that slowed things down a bit. So that may be out this week. Shocking that there are jobs not filled somewhere because, good God, it's everywhere right now. Uh, And... Apparently, though, apparently they're doing pretty good so far since the restart. They've got their audience back, so thankfully not too much harm done by the brief closure of Mel. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else we want to talk about as far as uh, wrestling bullshit? I mean, mean, AEW had a hell of a damn weekend last weekend for their pay-per-view and everything going on there and possible people, more people coming in like... Kevin Owens, so they're rolling. If you if you're a uh, avid watcher of current wrestling, then AEW should be the one that you uh, focus on right now, as they're hitting on all cylinders in a lot of ways. But I mean, watch WWE too. I mean, if, you, if if you're so inclined, because they have their vision of wrestling. You know, there's room for all these visions of wrestling. Yes, not everybody should be the same. That's that's the best thing about the territories. All the territories were mainly different. And you had all your different, you know, different things going on, different places. Everybody has got so used to there being one dominant force in wrestling that the fact that there's now another dominant force, it's just like a reawakening. You know, I mean, there's it's good. It's a good thing to have, you know, two, at least two major companies. Be nice if we have more, because, I mean, that's the thing. AEW is signing a shitload of people. Mm hmm. It, it'd be nice if some of the people that maybe not being used could go somewhere else and, 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 and do well. You know, let's say a Ring of Honor, even a damn impact, for God's sakes. You know, I mean. Well, none of the other promotions are really running real schedules right now. Well, that's the thing, too. And who knows what's going to happen? That's another thing, too. Who knows what's going to happen with COVID? I mean, AEW is, is, is smoking hot right now and everything, but, you know, who knows what's going to happen where they could be sh- back where we was at. Yes. Running Daly's place every week, so hopefully it won't come of that. And for them, for their business, but because God, that would that would be. Uh, I mean, last year was one blow, you know, of them having to uh, leave the arenas. But good lord, this year, ooh, if that happened, my God. Well, and especially since they have such consistently hot crowds and they have the momentum. And... But the thing, the thing is, though, is COVID gets worse in cold weather. Mm-hmm. It's coming, so. Yeah. yeah, and even COVID aside, I do think they made the right move doing all the debuts on the one show, just as like a perception thing. Yeah, so everything's, like I said, running all of a sudden this for them right now. So we'll see what's going on there. And, and you know, I, Triple H, God bless him, you know, he had a cardiac event, whatever that means. And uh, hopefully everything's got fine with him and he'll be uh, 
he'll be all right off of that. I know he's undergone a lot of stress lately, and I know he may have some type of genetic issue, but um, I'm sure all this stress did not help out either of all the shit going on. So Probably not, no. But anyway, that's it for uh, this segment. So let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, now let's go to the Ultimate Fighting Championships. And Dave Meltzer here, live on the ground. Marco Huas of Brazil, a former Valley Tudor champion who appeared to be the most complete fighter ever in UFC, captured the tournament as expected on September 8th in Buffalo at the World War Law Tournament before the largest crowd in UFC history. Huas, via surprising Paul Barlins of Sunnyvale, California, 13-17 of a match that resembled more of a UWFI Takata Vader match, except in this case the storyline was a shoot, than a UFC match. Huas used strong kicks to the thighs to wear down an opponent who had him by 7 inches and 90 pounds in much easier matches en route to the finals. Barlins was no match for Huas when it came to skill, conditioning, and experience. In the Super Fight, which is a battle of Pancrase Pro Wrestlers and Best Friends, Ken Shamrock of Lockford, California, went to a 33-minute draw with Oleg Tartarov, the Russian who now lives in New Brighton Beach, New York. It was obvious in the opening seconds the match was an all-out tactical war, which Shamrock dominated but never came close to winning. The show going off the air in the middle of the final match was the second-time occurrence out of seven USC pay-per-view shows. Well, one look at the positive side of it, being the ultimate affirmation that the shows are realistic, which is not a factor at all, because at this point, the only people who question the legitimacy of the event overall, the tights within pro wrestling have looked they work so long they can't distinguish the difference. And quite frankly, those who don't believe will delude themselves into believing that they went long, it cost themselves hundreds of thousands of dollars, second time disapproved the global march like Dave, they are real. That's Dave. Dave, run on there. Is an issue that needs to be addressed. When USC started nearly two years ago, realistically, the only competitor who knew the game was Hoist Gracie, who won three of the first four tournaments. The rest were people who knew their discipline, but had never had their skills tested on such a level. Gracie, whose style was based on what works in this type of competition with a 60-year-old family history of playing a game more similar to this than any other martial arts competition held anywhere in the world, was years ahead of the pack when it came to experience. And because of that, the fact he was much smaller than most of his competitors wasn't a hindrance as he was e- easily vanquished most foes. The rest went out there and either blew up or got caught by an opponent who knew what to do on the mat, do someone who didn't, and the average fight in the first three tournaments lasted two minutes. But Julian actually packed two minutes. During the second show, they needed to stretch like crazy just to fill a two-hour format. As time has gone on, more and more of the competitors have learned the game, have learned what to expect of the mat, how to avoid the arm bars. The shows seem to be the prime weapon in the earlier shows. And when the game is learned at top-level de- defense, the Gracie guard in particular, which nearly every fighter went to on their back, can, when done by an expert, block most offense, and thus it turns into a lengthy battle of attrition, depending upon the conditioning level and knowledge of how to conserve energy while fighting of the opponents. This is not the prime reason for a wrestling's turn into a work. The main reason was it gave promoters full book control and lessened the injury risk to major drawing cards, but it is a reason legitimate shooting pro wrestling was never able to gain the level of popularity to enable it to succeed on a professional level. USC, because of the fantasy of what real martial arts fighting looks like from the choreographed movie and television fight scenes, was able to garner significant underground interest at the beginning, and enough fans once they saw it through an amazing level of word of mouth to the point where it has become the first successful made-for-pay-per-view sport. But it now faces a problem. Even with the rule changes 
of standing the fighters up at their stalemates on the ground. The Ken Shamrock Ole Tataro super fight never came close to having a conclusion. When it ended after several restarts, a 30-minute draw and three more minutes of overtime cut from the originally scheduled five minutes because the show was running so long, and no point was either man close to beating the other. Shamrock, after the fight, suggested even more frequent restarts, but that didn't seem, in this case, to hasten a finish. As the competition gets more knowledgeable about what it takes to fight within the octagon, lengthy stalemates among the most skilled and best-conditioned fighters are going to happen with more frequency. It's great for a knowledgeable fan who wants to find out what would happen if this top fighter faced that one, but it doesn't make for entertaining television for the casual fan. And also, if every event has to bow to the laws of being entertaining television, or it won't survive. Shamrock vs. Tatar was an amazing display of guts, stamina, technique, and defensive fighting. It was a better match to Shamrock vs. Gracie. And the length of the fight wouldn't have been a problem. And actually, it would have been to its benefit had there been a winner at the end. Both the Gracie Shamrock and Shamrock Tatar off matches didn't suffer from their length, as the crowd's live would have gone nuts in both cases at the end had there been a finish. But without the finish, for a second time on three super fights, changes need to be made for survival, or at least to maintain the current level of popularity of this event. Here's Dave's suggestion. The tournament format as it currently stands needs no ramifications. The, their rules are if there's time of a draw, both men are eliminated. And in that case, a draw is a loss. And it's nobody's benefit to wage a battle in the ter- of attrition because if it goes too long, the fighter has sacrificed his chance to advance the tournament. And since the big payoff is for winning, sacrifice the shot at big money. And thus far, not one match of the tournament has gone 20 minutes. There are several who have suggested not doing a random draw in the tournament. There were a lot of people who thought it wasn't the tournament's best interest in USC 6 when Tartaroff and Dave Benito, the co-favorites, met in the first round. Although that show was a huge success because of the emergence of David Tank Abbott. A cult, as a cult hero, and the fact that when it was over, the junk consensus was that the best two fighters were the two in the finals. Virtually everyone going to this tournament felt that Marco Huas, the eventual winner, and Remco Pardol were the two best fighters, and they ended up meeting in the semis rather than in the finals because of the luck of the blind draw. It could have met the first round. In view, the ultimate ultimate on December 16th could be, and perhaps likely be, decided by a blind draw. If Tartaroff and Huas were to meet in the first round, for example, there's a good chance they go 20 minutes which will leave the field over for Abbott or Dan Severn. But if they were in the opposite brackets, by the luck of the draw, one of them might hold the more offensive-minded Abbott or Severn to a draw, or even beat them, and take them out, leaving uh, whomever has the easier draw to have an easier tie. Or even if they were to lose a lengthy fight, it might sap the energy from the winner to the point they lose a subsequent fight to a fresher opponent. Whatever problems the altitude caused in Castle Wyoming will be the same, if not more in the higher altitude of Denver. However, seating as politics, USC officials were adamant they don't want their thing to turn into boxing. Dave's suggestion of a change would be to also add politics to the game, but politics are involved in every sport, whether people want to admit it or not. In the championship match in the Super Fight, both which were supposed to go 30 minutes with a five-minute overtime, in the event that time expires, have three judges pick a winner. Don't use it on the undercards. A situation where the ultimate and ultimate ends with co-champions will be totally unsatisfying, and changing on the rules to stand the fighters up, then yield the desired finish for Shamrock versus Tataroff. If it's close, and some people disagree with the decision, hey, it builds up a rematch. And there's no disgrace. Um, excuse me, where I was, damn, I just lost my spot. Where am I? Oh, there's no disgrace to do that. Thank you. 
If there's a bad decision, well, that happens on occasion as well, and allows for a rematch, and the promoters should be careful and pick judges who are both knowledgeable in this game, running the formal martial arts champions who don't know the specific game, but also unaffiliated with any of the fighters, which is much harder than it sounds because of how few people truly know the game, and those who do are generally friends with the top fighters. On this past show, they've been judging. They should have judging. Uh, they should have assuredly picked Shamrock as the winner. And fans have seen enough boxing matches in which one fighter was more offensive and stronger than the other go to distance to be quite accepting of that decision. The Buffalo fans booed the announcement of the draw, but then gave both Shamrock and Tartaroff huge ovations for their performances. So even though there was booing, although not to the level of Gracie Shamrock and Charlotte, but this was more of a UFC smart crowd. When the guys went to the mat in the latter stages of the match, the crowd was appreciative of both men's efforts, but unhappy, it yielded no result. As far as the real problem, which is should going off the air without a finish, hopefully steps be taken to ensure that never happens again, because nothing, not even a bad match, will frustrate an audience more than watching a tournament for three hours being cut off in the middle of the final match. SEG expanded the satellite time to three hours, and live at Buffalo, the show lasted more than four hours, and almost nobody except Bruce Smith left early. Bruce Smith of the Buffalo Bills. Which, going in, one would think it was more than enough. UFC 4, where Gracie and Seven went off the air, only had a two-hour window. And no show had come close to three hours in the past. This show was marred by a 23-minute power failure in the ancient one World tournament in Buffalo between the first and second pay-per-view match. SCG had considered taking legal action against the building, but the odds are it won't because it isn't in the best interest to be stewing arenas. It's hard enough to get their events sanctioned in a lot of areas. The delays between matches are in- inherent in this format, to be fair, and give the fighters adequate rest between matches. And, of course, tons of time was eaten up by the Shamrock-Tartaroff match. They cut two minutes off the overtime, which, when announced live, got a lot of booze, so most fans are fairly knowledgeable. They seem to be because personalities like Shamrock Abbott and Harold Howard and those near Buffalo were over like live like Pedro Aguayo, and nobody else would be in pro wrestling in the United States. But afterwards, nobody complained because it's not like there were going to be a winner in those two minutes. They cut out a planned hype session for the Ultimate Ultimate, where Abbott, Severin, Keith Hatney, Steve Jettem, and Dave Benito would be brought in the octagon and introduced. And even then, the producers didn't expect Paul Barlow's last 10 minutes left before midnight with who was, so it's not like a safe bet. Three hours should have been enough. Most of the time, it will be more enough. But Cable Company's going to be put in the position of awareness in a shoot situation. You can't always end on time. And the rare occasion that does it, not to cut off the show. The fact that it happened on this show is such a large percentage of the systems, including in Manhattan, and most of the modern systems, which run electronically, the warning of everyone was given USC 4 is unforgivable. And that was the reaction from many here. They were mad the first time, but everyone recognized this whole USC is a learning experience. And a lesson is learned with almost every show on how to improve things. And SCG's done a good job, such as not allowing fresh alternates to go to the finals, or doing restarts with linky stalemates, and instituting time limits. But in this case, we have one of the biggest mistakes on the previous show repeated. All right. Um, from boxing, ordering boxing reviews over the years. Um, sometimes those shows went past their uh, allotted time, which was usually one a.m. Um, th- they never cut them off. I never had seen a boxing review that was cut off before the main event was done. So it's interesting reading this that this is what happened. And he does have a very good point that Americans know boxing is fighting. They shouldn't have been so averse to time limits and judges' decisions, especially once the Gracies were out of the picture. And this is pre-judges. As you can hear Dave talk about here, and uh, 
Boy, it does sound like Dave is uh, campaigning for a judge's job, doesn't he? What makes you say that? The fact that Dave becomes one of the judges? <laughs> yes. And Dave mentioning that uh, that people that know the sport should be judges, not necessarily the people that have fought in the sport. In fairness, though, in the early years, if you're trying to find a judge who knows, kind of knows the game, but doesn't have direct connections to fighters, then yeah, Dave makes sense. But Dave, when did Dave start getting tight with the Shamrocks? When does Frank move to San Jose? Oh, I don't know that timeline. But Ken's near the area. Not sure. I mean, they're in the Bay Area, so I don't know. That's interesting. What the you know, thing too about this? But yeah, I mean, Dave, Dave is campaigning. That's absolutely right. <clears throat> so, I mean. Oh, this other stuff I've read so far. Any other thoughts about uh, what what's going on here? Um, they should have had the time stuff figured out better by this point. Obviously, I yeah. don't know why they didn't. Um, I get that it's probably a huge part of the overall expense to get more satellite time. Although that's something else, though, too. How much of did they have enough satellite time? And it was only the pay-per-view companies that cut them off? Or did they not even have enough satellite time? Because those are two separate issues. I think Dave's made me confused with that, too. Yeah, I kind of got that impression because... Okay, for example, Halloween Havoc 98. WCW had all the satellite time they needed. The problem was that even though they had let the cable companies know, or some of them, they didn't turn off the automatic timer. Yeah. But they had satellite time. So that's why I'm curious. And if they have, and if you're paying already for the satellite time, the next thing on pay-per-view is going to be the replay anyway. So yeah, if they have the satellite time, you would think they'd just make sure that they don't end it that early. So my guess would probably be that they don't, I guess. I don't know. <clears throat> it's weird. But I think you're right, though, that Dave seems to be confusing the two issues. Yeah. Dave's the pressure of being there live. The show was not as excited as the show in Casper. The atmosphere live was better because the crowd was larger and both more rabid and more knowledgeable. While Don Wilson in the commentary claimed the crowd ranged from smokers, a term for old-time smoke-filled boxing arena fans, to Power Ranger fans, Dave guessed meaning younger kids, the crowd of Dave was almost exactly like an old-time wrestling crowd or the old urban ice hockey crowds for the NHL expanded their audience. One of the groups, and maybe the demographic UFC draws the best from, according to its own marketing survey, is a group called Disgruntled Pro Wrestling Fans. <laughs> There's always been that, folks. Very few kids, probably 90% male, is a heavy beer drinking crowd, despite the higher ticket prices, whose heroes seem to be Abbott, combined with UFC fans who love Shamrock, and loyal Canadians waving flags for Howard. The few women who were there, on the most part, look like they stepped right out of a Molly magazine which Dave guesses would be the lone difference from a pro wrestling crowd or an old-time hockey crowd. It was the largest crowd ever to witness USC. Roughly 9,000 in the building, which looked to hold 11,500 and about 84.50 paid. I think if you didn't know any better, you'd think Dave was talking about USC in, you know, in the late 2000s by the crowd. Mm. You know? Yeah. 9% male, which, you know, it kind of was maybe a little bit less than that later on. Uh, a lot of women that look like models you know yeah stuff like that so yeah that's a good that's a that's a great house 
Yes. And For UFC in this era? Also, we need to remember something that I don't know if Tave knows at the time. Uh, this is the beginning of the secret SEG deal with New York State about how to ease themselves into New York to get to the point of running New York City. Mm-hmm. If I remember right, it was Buffalo was first, then Niagara Falls, with the idea being that the economy in the area was sagging and that running these big events would help. Niagara Falls, obviously, was the first domino to fall, and then the plan goes the wayside. But it was going to be Buffalo, then Niagara Falls, then the Nassau Coliseum, where you're running in the market but not in the city proper, and then, if all went well, the next New York show would have been Madison Square Garden. Doesn't shake out like that, though. No! Uh, thanks, Bob Guccione Jr. <laughs> Actually, wait, was it junior or senior? Mm, I don't know. I can't remember if it was either the son or the father. But anyway. But yes, it was right. uh, extreme fighting, trying to run in Brooklyn, not being aware of the deal. Was what uh, got the ball rolling. Yeah. All right, Joel Sutton. Yes, Joel Sutton in a dart match, praying mantis kung fu, was awarded the decision in 51 seconds over Keza Coleman Jr., independent pro wrestler, a training partner of Dan Severin. When a dart and referee started a match on blood, Sutton rushed across headbutted Coleman, who had forehead scar tissue for wrestling. He works Michigan Independence as Crom. Sutton suffered a small cut, but Kalman's scar issue opened up. Sutton got on top and began pounding, uh... No, gouging the cut. Gouging, excuse me, the cut. It's illegal to gouge the eyes, but no rule forbid this. And Kalman was getting Hase juice. <laughs> more on that next week more, on Between the Sheets. More on that next week on Between the Sheets. Kalman, who outweighed Sutton by roughly 100 pounds, 296 to 200, quickly reversed on Sutton and was on, the t on top with a forearm choke and appeared to be nearly ready to finish him when ref... Ty Mac pulled him off to check the cut and stop the match. Oh, God, I forgot that he was do did referee work on a few bouts on this card. Initially, Kalman and Seven were furious because Kalman was in a dominant position when the match was stopped. And for pro wrestling, he's used to not worrying about a lot of blood, losing a lot of blood, whether it's hard way or not. However, being taken to the hospital, he was told Sutton had gouged to cut dangerously deep. Coleman afterwards said he only wished he could that they would have at least waited for Sutton to have the advantage or stopped it before he got the reversal because he felt he was seconds from victory when he was pulled off of it. Crowd sensed it also since they were loudly chanting bullshit at the shoot Roy Shire finish, despite the fact that Sutton, the home boy which made his baby face, was declared the winner. Coleman recognized even if he had won, there's no way he'd been able to continue called upon. Interesting note is that the announcer never referred to Coleman's pro wrestler, even though in the meeting with the announcers for the show, he told them specifically he wanted to be labeled as a pro wrestler, since other pro wrestlers have been in UFC, like Seven and Shamrock, and be given other labels as well. Since UFC is trying to show us the opposite of work pro wrestling. Geza Coleman Jr., Bix. You mean Michigan independent wrestler Geza Coleman Jr.? From. And yes, Ty Mac was uh, the last dragon. Bruce Leroy, yes. Let's see, Roy. Yeah. Does anyone have more fights in the early UFCs without appearing on a pay-per-view than Gezek Hallman Jr.? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Also, should we infer that the reason this is not the fight that gets 
uh, sticking your fingers in cuts banned is that John McCarthy is not the referee? Probably so. Because which fight is it that he cites? It's a Tito fight, right? Yes. I forget which one, but there's a Tito fight where that happens, and I think that's the one McCarthy cites as leading to the rule change. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting and makes me wonder how much he's paying attention to these other fights when he's not refereeing. Yeah. Because this should be a clear example that you should have a rule for that. Yeah. All right, another all, uh, alternate fight. Onassis Perongo, Tonkong Kalan, uh, his form, a Filipino living in Canada, be Francesco Fang Maturi, a Canadian bodybuilder, wants to be a pro wrestler in 535. Maturi had surgery to imp- implant fangs in his mouth as a pro wrestling gimmick, even though he's never actually had a match. In his bio, he claimed he was working on perfecting his gimmick. Maturi looks like a cross between the Renegade pre-steroid testing and Fuerza Guerrero without his ass. And was almost as good as the Renegade. <laughs> Perungo, who's 45 pounds lighter, came off like a tough ethnic street kid who studied martial arts fighting, a pretty boy bodybuilder, although Maturi deserves credit for not wanting to quit, even though he was out of his league here. Marungo kicked Maturi at the bell, and Maturi had like a road warrior doing a no-sell spot. So Perungo basically cut his head off. He took him down hard, and the only saving grace for Maturi was that he went right into the guard. Perungo clocked him with punches and headbutts when the openings came. Fang got in a few weak punches from the bottom. Perungo broke the guard. It was ready to get punches. When Maturi's corner finally threw in the towel, Maturi's face was a mess. <laughs> Fangs, Vix. I guess that's where Andre Orlovsky got the idea. And as far as I know, Francesco Marturi never got into pro wrestling. So I didn't, don't recognize the name, though. Also, excuse me, All Elite Wrestling's Andre Arlovsky. Yeah. Another alternate match, Scott Basak of Pancrase Pro Wrestling beat David Hood in 33 seconds with a front face lock. Basak, a protege of Shamrock, looks to have dropped 30 to 40 pounds for this match. He looked to be about 6'3", 230. It was a huge 265 seven weeks ago. You have to hold on immediately, and Hood had no chance. I like that Dave clearly saw him seven weeks earlier, but he's not saying that. Well, there you go. Well, that tells you something. Right there, what I was saying about Dave. Right. And no, but is there any other way to infer that? Yes. That's, that's the exact way. Okay. All right. Main show time. The polar bear, Paul Barlins. Trap fighting. Beat Jerry Harris, or Gary Harris, whatever, G-E-R-O-Y. Jerry. Of, of Kyokushin. Kyokushin, excuse me. Kai Karate. In a minute seven. Varlin, six foot eight, 300, was in much better condition than seven weeks ago. <laughs> there, days on Oh, wait, seven weeks ago. Wait, was you at, wait a, actually, wait a second. Was UFC six seven weeks ago? It could have been. That's what he's talking about, then. All right. Harris was two six seven two sixty and thirty eight years old. Was immediately taken down and Varlins then with punch to the face. Harris was taking turned to his back to avoid the punches, and Varlins rained in more punches for throwing devastating elbows to the back of the head and Harris tapped out. Varlins had a hundred and two degree temperature the day four and was stuffing himself with garlic and grapefruit. But by that afternoon he said he felt fine and his flu wouldn't be a factor. Remember when garlic was the ultimate natural remedy? Yeah. Um I'm going to be so disappointed if we have a Paul Varlin's UFC and we do not get another instance of Dave Meltzer thinks trap fighting is actually a thing. <laughs> Good old trap fighting, like thug jitsu. 
Yeah, no, but the thing with trap fighting is that Varlin's had this whole backstory to it where it's a pan-praise-like submission sport, except it's very obviously bullshit because he doesn't fight like that. Yeah. Hilarious. All right, uh, Mark Hall of Muyedo, a combination of Taekwondo, Aikido, and Karate, beat Harold Howard, Karate Jiu-Jitsu, in the upset of the show in 142. Hall, who had been begging the internet for almost a year, was given the go-ahead just seven days beforehand when Abdulin Nengam of Senegal pulled out. Hall actually got the nod because a few weeks ago he was faced with a hold-up situation in San Diego and basically disarmed the assailant and took him down and put him in a submission hold. Although, <laughs> yeah. How do you Although, tell me Artavi is the matchmaker without telling me Artavi is the matchmaker? <laughs> yeah. Although the announced height and weight would indicate less of a size difference, it appeared that Howard had him by five inches at 55 pounds, as Hall was not a big man at all. Hall had incredible confidence coming in, was acting sure that he was going to win the event. Howard got on top first, but Hall immediately rolled him and began throwing shots from the top and bloody Howard's mouth badly. Hall pulled Howard's long hair to keep it from getting out of the jam and threw in headbutts and punches for Howard tapped out. That's one we don't talk about that, despite all the hair pulling in the early UFCs, it takes them a long time to ban hair pulling. Yep. And uh, Mark Hall for debut here. Yeah. What a way to do A little bit of a run. Yeah. And, you know, but the hair pulling, though, is also so prolific that one of the most famous fights in the company's history up to this point is decided by hair pulling. You know, Hoist versus Kimo. And then at the next UFC, when they did the UFC 5 qualifier that didn't actually end up putting anyone in UFC 5 between Eric Paulson and Jason Farn. Both had long ponytails and had a gentleman's agreement that they would not pull hair. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, has anyone ever had a more complete physical transformation than Eric Paulson? <laughs> Probably not. When I remember when I would first start seeing this, like, big, jacked-up, like, aging Brock Lesnar-looking guy in Josh Barnett's corner— I had no idea that was Eric Paulson. You know, you think Eric Paulson from this era, you think of, you know, this kind of tall, lean guy with a ponytail. Mm-hmm. Not anymore. Uh, no, not for a very long time. All right. Next match, Remco Pardul, Jiu-Jitsu, beat Ryan Parker of Okinawan Karate in 305. Parker was the first karate magazine star in his prime in the UFC. And that was there to prove karate techniques work in a real environment and fell miserably at making this point. Still, he should have been given credit for having more guts than those who won't get near the competition and run down his competitors. Pardul took him down with a headlock and immediately began throwing punches to the face. Fans blew because Pardul simply held him in the hole the entire match for beating him with a forearm choke. And of course, as we would come to know in time, karate techniques can work in a real fight. You just have to know how to defend techniques. Exactly. Yes, but big ups to Ryan Parker here. Yeah. Put his money where his mouth was. Mm-hmm. Got in there and fought. Can't say that for just about anyone else of his elk. No. King of the Streets, Marco Huas, Valley Tudo beat Larry Curitan, kickboxing in 323. Well, kickboxing. But sure. Yes. Curitan, whose wife is a competition bodybuilder, went up from 230 to 250, giving a 40-pound weight advantage. But weight meant nothing here. Huas, who old timers swore the physical at legendary pro wrestler Antonino Rocca. You have the you biggest dick I've ever seen on a man. 
<laughs> use a hard slam and got on top. Kiritana showed a ton of improvements since first UFC reversed it, although Hua seemed calm on the bottom. Kiritana still got a punch in and strong body shots. Hua went for an armbar, but Kiritana was able to escape. Kiritana got, got a punch a headbutt in, for Hua trapped his leg and held on before Kiritana went down. And for the first time in the UFC, the Achilles heel submission was used. This is easy and most exciting match of the first round. And of course, what's notable about that, although I don't remember how Larry Curtin was adorned, although I'm guessing as a kickboxer, he didn't have any shoes or anything. There, there was skepticism that you could get heel hooks and stuff to work without shoes. Yeah. You know, you'll hear from people who went to Pancrase like, oh, that's why we're wearing wrestling shoes and kick pads. So, you know, this is also long before the, you know, the whole leg lock revolution in jiu-jitsu, too. But then again, what's Marco Huis's background, which is actually incorrect here? It says Valle Tudo because he's fought in Valle Tudo fights, but his actual background is Luta Livre. Luta Livre comes from catch wrestling, not from jiu-jitsu. So, of course, Luta Livre has more leg locks, and as a result... He probably much more practice at legs locks without shoes. What a badass looking motherfucker he was. Yes. <laughs> Wouldn't tell anyone his age though. Yeah, because at this point in time, he was thirty-four years old. Yeah, I remember them saying on the broadcasts like it was something like men in Brazil are like women in the United States and don't like to say their age. Was that? But like man, he. I was, Wow, this guy's fucking amazing. Well, it just keeps on going. Well, he he just because he has a mix of skills, he he looks more comfortable in the cage than anyone else has so far. Yeah, because he had the Luta Livre, he had the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, he had the regular judo, Muay Thai, Taekwondo, Capoeira. I mean, he was he was training a lot, regular boxing. So yeah, he was very well versed. Yeah, it it really, uh, uh, there's probably a question as to whether or not he has more success in, you know, international MMA, for lack of a better term, if he starts, you know, if he if he's on that circuit younger, because he's probably got a lot of mileage by this time. Oh, God, yeah. You know what I mean? I, I don't think a younger Huas is necessarily losing to Alexander Otsuka three years later. No, probably not. All right, Varlins beat Mark Hall at 104 next. Varlins 10 inches, 110 pounds of weight advantage is way too much for Hall's martial arts to overcome. Varlins took him down with a headlock takedown, threw some punches and elbows, and then trapped Hall in a key lock, which is called an overhand wrist lock in pro wrestling for the submission. These days best known as the Americana. Yes. MMA and Jiu-Jitsu. Um, so he has some submissions. He does. But he's also a huge man who's not a clean striker, so of course it's in his interest to take people down. Yes. Huas made Pardul tap out in 1227. Huas threw a few kicks to the thigh. Pardul caught Huas in a near front face lock. In all three matches, Huas immediately walked right into the hole against less skilled guys, and the hole was ineffective. Almost as if he was playing possum somehow, and held the hole for several minutes. Huas would hold into the cage to keep him from going down. Pardul held the hole for nearly six minutes as the crowd got bored. Finally, Huas got out of the hole and went for a knee lock, but never got on perfectly, and twice went for an Achilles heel hold, but both times Pardul escaped. Huas on top and basically climbed up Pardul's body, throwing a few punches and knees to the side to get to uh, improve his position. 
until he had Pardul totally trapped in a mounted position. Before who else could rein in the blows straight now, Pardul knowing what was going to happen tapped out first. It was obvious what Pardul was doing and why it made perfect sense. The commentators actually didn't understand what happened until Pardul told them in the post-match interview. You know, they were the best two fighters in the tournament between the long front face law and the weak looking finish. This was not an entertaining match. And boy, can you see the difference between early MMA and modern MMA in this? Because can you imagine what the reaction would be if we had a finish like this now? Oh, yeah. But you know what? Very martial and good on Remco Pardul. He knew he was checkmated. Why take the extra punishment? Yeah. Good for him. And also, now someone could correct me on this, as far as the thing about that it seems like he knew he could play possum and avoid guillotine attempts when he shot for takedowns. I wonder if that's Luta Livre being catch wrestling derived and thus having more wrestling influence because he's more likely to shoot wrestling takedowns, so he's more likely to get caught in guillotine, so he's more practiced at that sequence of events than a jiu-jitsu guy who'd be going for judo takedowns. Yeah. All right. Um, next, we have, this before the super fight, they interviewed Tank Abbott and Dan Severin. Abbott said the only person who could beat him was himself, saying he lost because he wasn't a good enough cardiovascular shape to handle the altitude in Castle, Wyoming. Severin said his body was there in the fight against Shamrock, but his mind wasn't. There was a major dispute going on behind the scenes in his camp the week before the fight. Let me guess. Two words. Phyllis Lee. Yes. And said his mind is the strongest weapon in the fight. He commented Shamrock's strategy against him as it was Shamrock's night to shine. Both said they were going to be an ultimate ultimate. However, behind the scenes, the word was Severin's not 100% sure he's going to end. Severin's plan, if he is to enter, is to go into intense training for the month of November. With no pro wrestling, with the exception of the November 30th match at Cork and Hall against Tarzan Cotto, hmm. which that's the last day of the month of November. So there you go. That was a strategy. His strategy was speaking of what we were just talking about. <laughs> Severin shot a takedown, and Ken caught him in a guillotine. That's mm-hmm. all that happened. It was it, like two minutes. I don't even know what he's talking about with Ken's strategy. Yeah. All right, super fight time. Ken Shamrock went to the 33 minutes of Ola Tataroff. Most of the match consisted of Shamrock on top with Tartaroff in the guard. Shamrock got a lot of short punches and short headbutts in, while Tartaroff used a lot of rabbit punches early. Because they're it legal. Tartaroff, it appeared Tartaroff's knuckles were bruised up, and he went in the palm blows on the head after 10 minutes. After about 20 minutes, basically stayed on, defen- stayed on the defense while on his back. Shamrock's goal was to win by a referee stoppage for blood because he felt he couldn't make Tartaroff submit and claimed no matter what, Tartaroff would never submit. Totoroff has never tapped out the fight or Sambo match since he was 18 years old. He finally opened up a cut over Totoroff's left eye at 13.30 and began doing short head busts open it further. 14.54, referee John McCarthy called for a restart, but they immediately went back to the same position, which caused a lot of the crowd to boo. Shamrock threw strong shots to the solo places and a strong punch in at 17.20. began punching and headbutting the cut. McCarthy called the fight. The call for a second restart at 2016. didn't result in the same thing with them going down. Tatarov going to the guard, and Shamrock throwing a lot of headbutts to the cut. McCarthy restarted him again in 27-25, and this time Tatarov, who had taken a lot of punishment, suddenly found surprising life and threw some punches and bloody Shamrock's nose and split his lip before 30 minutes expired. 
Because they show running long, they went to a three-minute overtime. But this time, Tatarov was having trouble seeing out of his left eye, but hung on until the tire ran out. Both men showed amazing stamina. Yeah, absolutely. They they got up there and they they threw blows. Shamrock especially. And <laughs> by any kind of modern eyes, though, Shamrock clearly won though on damage. Yes, absolutely. He should have been the winner. Which, I think people understand this well enough now, but damage is the primary scoring criteria in modern MMA. The reason this was not well understood was that encoding the official rule, codifying, excuse me, the official rules, there were concerns, I think, from the New Jersey lawyers, I may be getting that part wrong, though, about liability having damage as a criteria. So that's how it became, you know, effective striking, grappling, blah, blah, blah. Not only that, they didn't make it clear that it was stacked criteria. That it needs to be that effective striking or grappling as the main thing, and you only go to other criterion if it's equal in terms of damage and stuff. So now I believe it says impactful striking or grappling to make it a little more clear. But that's the thing. Like, people need to remember, if you have this close fight, you know, like a, I guess the best example would be like a Carlos Condit, Robbie Lawler fight, where someone's landing a lot of touching strikes and not really doing any damage, but someone, but the opponent hurts them big in the round, you're supposed to give the round, the round to the guy who hurt his opponent big, not the guy who landed a bunch of meaningless, you know, volume. So... This is a good look at that, though, look at that we have a draw here that is very obviously a fight that should have gone to Ken Shamrock. Yeah, if there was judges. <laughs> so, I mean, even without judges, if he can barely see out of that eye, you know, different era, maybe we get a doctor stoppage, too. Yeah. And the main event, Marco Huas defeated Paul Barlins 13-17 to win the championship. Bronze is just too slow in both movement and boss's skills and knew if he went to the ground with Huaz, it would be a curtain, so he stayed on his feet. Coits. Huaz was content to fight him in that manner, snapping off kicks to the thigh and occasional punches. Huaz walked to the front face early again, but actually had to move blocked, so it really was just a front headlock. With an arm protected the throat, and after lifting him up, Bronze had to release it. Bronze got very tired by three minutes, and Huaz got behind him at 420. Rollins tried to throw elbows, ended up hitting Huas with his triceps and did no damage. Huas kept throwing knees at Rollins' hamstring, the trolley horse, and been stomped on his feet while Rollins held onto the fence. After nearly five years of hanging on, McCarthy restarted to five minutes, excuse me, not five years, probably felt like five years. Uh, and Huas basically kicked Rollins' thigh with snapping kicks over and over again. Rollins' thigh up close was a combination of red and purple. He lost more and more mobility in the leg until he finally was chopped down like a big tree, and it was timber time. Huas started raining the punches in the corner and threw in the towel. Except for the five minutes where they were in a stalemate with Rollins hanging onto the cage, this was a great USC-style match. It was the first key match where kicks led to victory, where almost the entire fight was standing. That's what impressed me so much about Huas here, because there was nobody that really had fought like him in UFC yet. I mean, for all the kickboxers they had had up to this point? Had they had anyone that actually had a Muay Thai style of kickboxing? Not like him. That's what yeah, I'm saying. Like, no one had really thrown low more kicks. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the thing that really stands out from reading that description of the fight 
not even just the low kicks, but in general, the thing that Huas really brings that becomes so important long-term in MMA is attritional damage, low kicks, foot stomps, uh, knees to the thigh, you know, I... I'd have to look back to see if he also threw body shots or anything, but it wouldn't su- su- that surprise me if he did. Um, but, you know, bank the little things. Mm-hmm. Which is also There's... one of the things that's kind of a problem with the scoring now, though, is that if you don't see attritional strikes causing damage within the round, they're not supposed to be weighted that heavily. So if you're low kicking someone or throwing body shots and they seem okay, like they're not getting winded from body shots, they're not moving gingerly or switching their stance up from low kicks, you're not supposed to weigh it that heavily, which is frustrating and complicated because that's, you know, that's not how those techniques work necessarily. Mm hmm. Yeah, like I said, he was just so different to watch compared to the Gracies and all that stuff. And, uh, and he, he wore, like, regular wrestling trunks, you know, which Shamrock was doing that, too, but still. Shamrock and wasn't no, barefoot, no, though, so it was kind of a distinct no, ba- no, Yeah, no boots. Yep. So, and also he was uh, he was blessed in, in certain areas, right, Bix? Like Antonina Rocca? <laughs> I guess so. Uh, um, I guess. Well, he he, just, I, he was willing to wear a speed. I I don't remember this, but he was willing to wear a speedo on pay per view. So, yeah, he had he had a bulge. Okay, great. Um, but overall, the main thing is that he he just looks comfortable everywhere. Yes, he great. And he, had, he looked like a kick ass version of Gilad from Bodies in Motion. <laughs> the curly hair. Does that make uh, kickboxing legend and UFC one color commentator Kathy Long the the kick-ass version of Denise Austin? <laughs> I'm trying to think who would be the – I guess – well, Kendall had hair, the the, uh, the black guy that was with Jalad. Yeah, well, I was going to say that obviously Eric Paulson is the Tony Little. <laughs> yeah. So. All right. Let's go to some notes, show notes. Don the Dragon Wilson, not our friend Dan the Dragon Wilson. A kickboxing legend replaced Jim Brown on commentary. Aw, with Bruce Beck and wrestler Jeff Blatnick. Without question, this is the best announced favorite show in 1995. Dave's not down on Brown. <laughs> he's not down with Brown as others because Dave thinks he's funny and not in a contrived joke book Keenan Lawler way, but his knowledge of the fighters and disciplines is less than most hardcore fans watching. I bet Dave wouldn't have told Jim Brown that. But Wilson was excellent. Blackton was much improved from the last show, and Beck is learning his subject matter and has improved with every show and did a great job here as the host. I like. I always dubbed the Bruce Beck-Jeff Blackton team, and I thought Don was a good adjustment to him as well. They were an overall smoother announcing team and better tactical announcing team with Don Wilson, who unfortunately only lasts, what, two or three shows? Yeah. I think he comes back for one much later, but that's about it. Um, Should have brought Dan in. <laughs> Isn't Dan a teenager at this time? 
Yeah. Well. Who okay. cares? But while Jim Brown did not have the knowledge that you probably would have wanted in that role, he clearly liked what he was watching and overall acquitted himself well. Well, Jim Brown was 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 known to throw some hands every now and then. Well, that's why Davey wanted him. I believe. I think it was Art Davey. Man, Men and women. <laughs> no, but Art Davey exactly. wanted wanted like kind of a real life slash movie tough guy figure. And well, yeah, Jim Brown has has the aura exactly, and he but he clearly liked it and clearly wanted to learn and clearly got very into the whole Gracie thing. He wasn't shitting on the body like no. some people would. Do. Oh, like like a Bill Wallace or whoever. No. Yeah. And, you know, the best moment he gives us during his run in those first six pay-per-views, the finish at UFC 4 where Hoist chokes Severn out, you know, in the eyes of most people, out of nowhere, because no one's ever seen a triangle choke before. Do you remember what Jim Brown's reaction is? No. Because remember, that was Blatnik's first show. So Blatnik has not done jujitsu yet. He is there as a an Olympic wrestling legend giving wrestling insight. So Dan's his guy, you know? I mean, especially Dan Severn was a contemporary of his. So he's all into Dan Severn. And, you know, the whole time he's doing this commentary, Dan has him right where he wants him type of thing. Then there's the big tap. And Jim Brown's reaction is classic. He immediately turns. I, I forget if you can see him, but he's clearly turning to Jeff Platnick and he says, don't you ever talk to me about wrestling again. <laughs> oh, man. But that's so, the thing. Hey. Like he he liked it. He clearly wanted to know more. He clearly had huge respect for the Gracies and what everyone was doing. So. As that type of experiment goes, it was a home run. Like, I don't think you could have gotten better out of Jim Brown than you got. No. No, it could have been a whole lot worse. All right, next baby, Ultimate Ultimate from the National Western Event Center in Denver. Had five confirmed for the show. Abbott missed his show because of a spray and wrist, a soft tissue damage to his hand. Severin, Steve Jettum, winner UFC 3. Keith Hatney and David Benito look to be the next UFC fighter to go into pro wrestling with Pancrase. Is being managed by Phyllis Lee. Both Tataroff and Huas were offered two of the ten remaining, uh, two of the remaining three spots. And Dave's almost sure that Tataroff is in. I just realized something, by the way, with whatever the Phyllis Lee drama was. Isn't it interesting that when she moves into this world from pro wrestling, that for those who don't know, her main thing, as far as I know, before she got involved with Severn, was um, was managing the Malenko Wrestling School. And it's interesting to me when you think about it that there's no Malenko, Gotch, etc. presence, you know, through her. It's Shamrock. And I wonder yeah. how that fits into all that. I mean... Yeah, she probably had some pull. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially because, you know, from what Waldman said, all the Malenko guys in that era, at least when he came in, were doing, like, at least once a week, were doing shoot-catch wrestling training with Sammy Saranaka. So, 
I wonder why there's no one from Florida or anything going through her into these tournaments. Yeah, it makes you wonder. Although, didn't she have a falling out with the Malenkos before she moved on to this and then had a falling out with Severn? Oh, wouldn't surprise me. All right, the ultimate, yes. Uh, we, the, the field was Abbott, Jenim, Severn, Varlins, Huas, Hackney, Tartaroff, and Benito. And if you couldn't get Hoyce between... Uh, that's basically all the winners and the most impressive non-winners. Yeah. So it's about as good a field as you could get. For that time, yes. Who else was a mystery man all week, as he hid from everyone? Part of the reason may have been to give him mysterious aura. In fact, he wouldn't even release his age, but it was believed they have been 35 or thereabouts. But he's been doing Velazuda for a long time, because he was doing... He was any, doing the anything goes stuff in Brazil in the early eighties. Um, he was he was out there because he had the gimmick. He didn't understand English. As it turned out, he broke his hand a few for the fight. Went to a different hospital than all the fighters were told to go to, so nobody would find out. And nobody knew about it until after the show, which is why he threw only a limited amount of punches and concentrated on thigh kicks. You know, I know it's nineteen ninety five. But you can only keep that information secret for so long, you know? Mm. But, hey, eh, whatever. Hey, Every time I punch, you probably won his opponent. Sorry, we started breaking up, I think, what? as I was talking. But hey, he kept his secret long enough was all I was starting to say. Okay. Every time he threw a punch, it hurt him probably won his opponent, but he still threw several punches. I showed this spirit again. Although about 4 a.m., Dave bumped into him with his hand and finger in a cast. Many of the fighters... Other, other fighters end up in awe of him. Shamrock said he thought who else was holding him back and not doing enough to win, and only doing enough to win. And there's plenty more they didn't show. Varlins ended up almost a fan of his after his fight. His first words were, that guy's awesome. <laughs> I hope someday I'll be that awesome. <laughs> Van, like... That's how I felt about him. Say what you will about his skills, though. Outside of the ECW stories where he comes off like an asshole... Everything else we've ever heard about Varlins makes him seem like a pretty nice guy. He follows me on Twitter, so of course I want to give him his props. Well, didn't he pass away recently? Paul Varlins? Yes. I'm trying to remember, did he die? Didn't he die of COVID or something? Yeah, he died in January. Wow, that's right. Wow. You're right. I think it was COVID, okay. right? Yeah, well, he followed me anyway on Twitter, so wow. Well, I, I think he I, did. I, yeah, I think he followed me too. But the thing is, we've had so many people die of COVID. It's, it's hard to remember the folks that yeah. died in January. You know, wow. But right though, like that. Um, outside of the ECW stories, all the stories from people around UFC, he always sounds like a super nice guy. Yeah. But, wow. I. I Hey, I forgot about that, because I, I remember reading that now. Mm. The remaining slots being offered along with a sizable appearance guaranteed out of Horse Gracie or Hicksaw Gracie, but nobody seemed confident they would accept it. Abbott's TV interview remarks about people being invited and not accepting, and it showed they were mentally losers, already appeared to have been directed at the Gracies. As this past week, Horion Gracie, who manages Hoist, was dickering with SEG while Hicksaw asked for a huge amount of money. Shamrock went in a tournament, as he's only going to fight super fights because he doesn't want to fight three guys in one night. I don't blame him. Before the show, they were talking about Harold Howard for the final slot, but by his performance here, that's out the window. 
The other name being abandoned about for the final slot is Gerard Gordo. No. Also, an ultimate basically triple the prize money from with one hundred fifty thousand dollars to the winner and fifty for second place. Wait, so what's the final field again? I just read it. All right, let me read it. To I you mean, again. I, I want to hear it relative to the field that's mentioned here. Abbott and Jenham, Severn and Varlins, Huas and Hackney, and Tataroff and Benita. So, and that's the final field, and who wasn't mentioned here? Uh, Benito? Scroll. Benito was in there. He lost the. He, well, he fought Tataroff, lost to him, but yeah. No, but who wasn't in the original lineup Dave had, I mean. All right, well, let me go back. I'm scrolling up. So, yeah, okay, so they said Abbott, Severn... Oh, he did say, wait, uh, Jenham and Benito. Wait, so Abbott, Severn, Jenham, Hackney, Benito is who he has here with Attack Tower of an Huas offered two of the remaining spots. So I'm trying to figure... Oh, wait, was Varlins announced for... No. Okay, so Varlins is the, ends up getting the, the yes. last spot. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Abbott was at ringside, got himself over huge to the crowd. He was a lot nicer to everyone this time around, hugging many of the fighters after the show. On the previous night, he had gone into an altercation at Jim Kelly's bar near the arena, which ended up with the police coming. At ringside, he put on a show and was mobbed by people wanting autographs or photos with him. When Brawlins won his first fight, Abbott started laughing at him, and he kept playing to the crowd, which responded in a loud We Want Tank chant that was all on the pay review. In the background, but not really noticed by the announcers. When Varlins won the semifinal, it was even louder because the fans knew Tank had beaten Varlins last time, and here he was in the finals. Yeah? And on these two cages, Abbott took off his shirt for a big pop and teased like he was going to do a run-in. None of this may pay review. Abbott was actually the first choice to face Shamrock in the super fight, but because of his injury, Tartaroff got the nod. <laughs> Take Abbott doing something like this? I'm shocked, Dix. Shot. <laughs> he would take over the crowd. But, uh, this would become a pattern. Yes. Clearly the biggest buy rate this group's going to get with the possible session bringing back Hoist Grace would be Shamrock versus Abbott, which Dave sure is in the back of everyone's mind as he attended the main event for the first preview in 1996. However, it's a risk. If Abbott doesn't do well in the Ultimate Ultimate, he, he won't be allowed to wear gloves this time. During the Shamrock Tartaroff match, about I bought... Abbott stood up at one point and stole the crowd from the match by motioning as if he was falling asleep by how boring the match was. All this made him more popular as the show went on. It appears some of the shenanigans at the ringside was just to get himself over to the crowd live because of his trainer and best friend came up to Dave after the show and said he thought the show wasn't as good as the last one. It wasn't. And if he wanted to see more punches thrown. He joked about it saying, of course we all know that the real fight doesn't begin until they're on the ground. Huh. What about old Tank Abbott here, Bix? You sh surprising his chicanery? No. Come on. He was a showman. He would have been a major star today. You know that? Yeah. Also, something that just hit me, and I'm not sure I've ever thought about this before, how much they were on the outs with the Gracies by the time UFC 6 happens, it was probably more reparable than it would be later, but if I'm Hoist... Seeing that now they have this new star who's a big former like high school and collegiate wrestler with big punching power, but who also does this gimmick where he doesn't have a, you know, scholastic wrestling background. 
I wouldn't want to go near that. Oh, no. Because if you lose to him, you are not losing to, you know, former good college wrestler turned street, turned street fighter David Abbott. You're losing to street fighter Tank Abbott. Mm-hmm. And they can't have that. So I don't... I mean, once Tank is on the scene, I kind of... I don't blame them at all for not putting Hoist back in. No. Because what's the upshot? Yeah. All right, a lack of toe-toe punching was surprised that this tournament was almost designed to go that route. With only one pure grappler, Pardul involved, but in a realistic fight, even with a group of guys whose skills are standing up and punching, it still usually ends up quick on the ground. It comes down to who can perform best in that environment. Pardul was considered by many a favorite because he had a strong grappling resume and spent one month in Brazil with enemies of the Gracie family, learning this style of fighting. He was heavily criticized afterwards for tapping out so soon because apparently there were escapes from the situation he was caught in. And obviously oh. that that part is true, that you can get out, there are ways out of mount, if anything, against guys who don't have like elite top games. You know, these days it's, you know, for a lot of Pfizer, it's easier to get out of mount than a theoretically more neutral position like half guard or whatever because a lot of wrestlers like to use half guard as kind of like almost a lever or a fulcrum or just something they can kind of use to base themselves off of to strike from top but this is much earlier yeah so he thought he was checkmated he tapped out instead of getting brain damage good for him mm-hmm Shamrock ended up with $30,000 for the draw as opposed to $50,000 if he had won said he was somewhat disappointed with his match so it's tougher, more tiring match than his match with Gracie and Charlotte. I think this time it was tougher because Oleg was stronger. Oleg is more dangerous with leg submissions. Gracie only has chokes and arm bars. He can't beat me without them. Oleg knows leg locks, knee locks. His punches hurt me. Gracie couldn't hurt me. It was a harder match stamina-wise. I was always moving on him. When Oleg hits me, I feel it. When Gracie hit me, it was like a fly. And you know what that probably goes to more than anything else? Hoist was not some um, awesome athlete. No. You know, but it's his family. Kent's also tied with Oleg, though, too. He is, but Oleg is a guy who was doing, you know, presumably Russian state-sponsored, you know, athletics for years. Yeah. So, of course he's going to be stronger and more explosive than Hoist. Yeah. And I don't even mean that in a steroid way, if anyone's interpreting it that way. I mean, because he's probably been in elite athletic training for a lot longer than most people in those tournaments. Yeah. For the match, Samurai thought his strategy going for a win on blood was solid, but in hindsight, he felt he should have tried more submissions and less punching. He said where the strategy didn't work was that he did succeed in hitting and butting Tataroff over the eye and opening the cut, but didn't succeed in drawing enough blood for the referee to stop the match. He said he believed Tartaroff wouldn't submit even if he got him in a submission move, and that was Tartaroff would have his joint ripped out and submit. And because of friendship, was reluctant to go to that length. He said if he could knock Tartaroff out, he'd recover and be fine. If it was stopped on blood, Tartaroff would be fine. But if he ripped out the joint because Tartaroff simply wasn't going to tap, it could end his career. That's an interesting attitude. Tartaroff going in claimed he believed there's no way Shamrock could catch him in a submission move, and that's why he believed he'd eventually win. Shamrock felt that eventually he'd have been able to win because he couldn't even hazard a guess how long it would have taken. But saying he would have could have fought all night if he had to. Shamrock felt to get a winner, they needed to restart the fight more often. It felt McCarthy waited too long for the first restart. 
Shamrock said if they restart the fight more often, you'll get a winner in more matches of this type. Yeah. And they changed that. I mean, you'll see more restarts. Yes. Earlier. The, the show that ends up probably having the most influence on short-term changes, I guess, would be Ultimate Ultimate. Because yeah. there's a lot of stalemates, and there's, you know, the whole thing where Severn has tank back-mounted for what seems like half the fight. Yeah. And it's just kind of slapping at the side of his head. And it would lead to eventually uh, McCarthy saying, like, no, if you're just in that spot and not doing anything, just waiting for someone to save you, that's a TKO. Mm-hmm. And or as uh, McCarthy would name it, the please help me whisper. I feel bad that I tripped over that. Please help me whisper. Ah, please help me, Mister Wizard. Position. Thank you. You eventually got it out. I did. The stories of the two having heat over Shamrock saying he whipped Tatar off like a puppy dog were probably more hot for hype purposes than anything else. The Shamrock doesn't like the badmouth people. The exception being Gracie, because only Gracie's statements about him in Black Belt. By the way, that's something people, I feel like, don't really remember. I'd have to check when it started. I'm guessing it's after UFC 1, at least. But throughout most of his run in the UFC, even though people think of, you know, Black Belt Magazine as mainly being karate bullshit, and it probably was, Hoist had a column in it every month. Yeah. Yeah, he did. All right, the first run of the Ultimate Fighting Championship appears to have done about a 0.85 buy rate. 200,000 buys, 1.8 million. Oh, that figure can be misleading in a number of ways. UFC traditionally does much stronger on the replay showings and pro wrestling events. For example, the last UFC did an additional 0.2 just on replays. In addition, we received no estimates on how much UFC promoters, some of our entertainment group, will have to rebate the cable companies and merchandise for consumers for make goods for those who didn't see the finish of the main event. The total, even figuring in a strong replay showings, will probably fall from UFC 7. UFC 7. Or 6. Excuse me, 6. Although, the less the track to show, there's much of a surprise. UFC officials were figuring to increase based on September being an easier month to get people to watch television as compared with July, but with a weaker main event, this reason seemed to be offsetting. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think there's much else you can say about that. I think Dave's pretty on the ball there. Yeah. Although, it's interesting that they were able to get, like, another 50,000 buys or thereabout, maybe, I guess a little less, on the replay. Yeah. That's an interesting figure. Yeah. I wonder if it's the fact that it's a tournament... Mm, or something about it that you're getting this experience is what makes people more like inclined to buy it even as live sports on replay I don't know it's possible because to me in theory wrestling should be the one that does the most replay buys and then you kind of go from there but it doesn't necessarily seem like that's the case no I don't know. Weird. All right, let's go to the indie scene. And uh, we have an interesting story about the Warrior. We kind of talked about this before on the show. so But we're going to rehash it here because we had this take place during our week. Jim Helwig canceled his September 29th and 30th dates in Massachusetts because he was mad when he saw the Renegade on television copying him 
because promoter Wendell Weatherby was the one who put WCW in contact with Rick Williams to do the Ultimate Warrior gimmick. Hellwig and Weatherby had a long-time relationship dating back to when Weatherby was Hellwig's limo driver during the glory days in WWF. But Hellwig said their relationship was over after having seen the Renegade on television. Others find it hard to believe that Hellwig had never seen the Renegade before, particularly since he was in Los Angeles, negotiate with WCW on July 16th. And Renegade worked on that pay-per-view show. It's doubtful Hellwig actually watched the show, however. The new main event on both shows, the first show is in Blarica, Massachusetts, don't know what a second show is. Would be a Renegade versus Kamala. That sounds delightful. Uh, <laughs> there's no way in hell that Hellwig didn't know about the Renegade. You know, I don't. Especially if he was at Bash at the Beach, which is what the story says here. You would think so. Yes. Imagine if he signed with WCW at th- that point in time and was on the first Nitro. Hmm. How different that changed some things. I don't think we get I don't think we get Hogan Luger per se. Maybe maybe get Hogan Warrior, hmm. which could have been be even du- it would have been even dumber yes. to do Hogan Warrior on free television, the rematch. Huh. But yeah, imagine him you know in the fold in the early days of Nitro. It'd been a big you know big time name that would have been there, but. Uh, Wendell Weatherby Bicks, uh, for people who may not know who he is, that may have not have heard us talk about him before, uh, rehash that. So, Wendell Weatherby, real name, Wendell Robinson, he had been Warriors driver, he worked as an indie promoter and I think manager, and yeah, I mean, they had been buddies for years, and... I guess the other thing he would be known for is that when Warrior tried unsuccessfully to import HDH, it was via an address to Wendell Robinson. Yeah. And the thing is, is how funny is that the, he's the one that got the renegade in WCW? Well, where was Rick Williams from? Exactly. But from Massachusetts. The guy that was Warrior's limo driver got the fake Warrior in the WCW. <laughs> da 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 da. <laughs> oh man, hilarious! All right, let's go to the IWF. Speaking of Massachusetts, and uh, they r- ran Winchester on September the seventh. We had Freight Train Dan over Kid Delicious Cody with GQ Johnny Rodeo as his manager and the outpatient in a triangle match. Okay, wait, 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 wait. We have a manager named GQ Johnny Rodeo. <laughs> yes. Is this like a, a Russian rock singer or something? <laughs> I have no idea. Rock singer? What the hell am I even saying? And we'll have more on Freight Train Dan in, in, in just a minute. Oh, boy. Uh, Mike Hollow beat the Russian Mauler, managed by Shazam, Snooky Fink, <laughs> and Violet Flame, beat Steve King and Jamie West. Sounds like a mixed tag match. Violet Snooky Flame Fink. was around for quite a while, wasn't she? Yeah. Snooky Fink. What a fucking name. That makes me think of uh, a cross of Snooky and the Fink. Snooky and Dirty Show and the Fink. Whoa, my goodness. The Bulldozer over Tim McNeeny. Antoine Waugh, or Tony Roy, <laughs> over the Smooth Operator. And then our main event, Man Mountain Rock over King Kong Bundy. Or now, as Wade accidentally typed it, King Kong Bundy. King Kong Bundy. 
uh, Freight Train Dan during intermission surprised his girlfriend by proposing to her in the middle of the ring. She said yes. Well, that's nice. And obviously this is not Freight Train of... Uh, no, it's Freight Train Dan. $5 fame. Oh, God. It's 1995. It's not Freight Train Fulton either. I would think. Mm. But there you go. There's IWF in Massachusetts. Wait, IWF is, is Kowalski, right? Yes. Yes. Now here's IWF in Deer Park, New York on September 11th. And what a show this is. Opening match, Mikey Whipwreck over Kid Ego. I Primo, think he became someone else, but I'm not sure. Primo Carnera third over Special Delivery Jones. Sure. Mike Norman and Paul Loria over Psycho Bates and the Italian Sensation. Raven went to a double disqualification with Virgil. <laughs> you have the biggest dick I've ever seen, oh man. That, 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 you know, it's hot fights, and this is a cock fight. Wouldn't hog fight have made more sense? Hog fight, yes. Man. <laughs> it's amazing they, had the, they could even lock up with each other. And then we had a lumberjack match. Jim Powers over Skull Von Crush. And then our main event, Chuck Williams, wrestling as Chuck Williams and not Rock and Rebel, beat Stevie Richards by disqualification. <laughs> Wasn't the old Deer Park venue a Jewish community center? Yeah, I think so. That must have been interesting. <laughs> what a show this is, big. What a mix of talent. Sure. Uh... Wow, I, I really don't know what I think of that show. Raven and Virgil in 1995. Who's the referee? <laughs> hey, if only Marco Huas had been involved. I mean, it would really, I mean, it'd really been a, a hog fight, but... Uh... For the Antonino Rocca trophy. <laughs> but... ECW should have ran Raven and Virgil. Imagine that in the arena in 1995. <laughs> the fans would have done if Virgil showed up. Well, they would have cheered him. and then, <laughs> But then, uh, of course, they would have done their other stuff. But You mean the mid-90s ECW habit of chanting the name of every black wrestler at at a black wrestler? <laughs> yeah. And Primo Carnero third against S.D. Jones. Jesus Christ. Yeah. For those who don't know, that's Big Guido. Yes. All right, now let's go to the Trans World Wrestling Federation. Oh, I didn't know that uh, Frank Tunney and uh, What's-His-Face got back together. <laughs> Trans World Wrestling Federation, it's the Samoans. You know, they used that name in the late 80s and were still using it into the 90s. They ran North Shukil, Shukil Pennsylvania, on September 9th. Uh, Shukil. Shukil uh, or Shukil? I think it's Shukil. Because, um, oh, when... Um... When they do the bit that Smothers is really Vito Marinara in Smokey, I believe that, uh, I believe Candido pronounces it Shuckle. Nor Shuckle. Joe Sposta will probably uh, turn us to the right way. But they ran there to high school in front of 2,000 fans. Kid Flash, the Kidman over Johnny Rebel, managed by Johnny Glitter. This can't be right. Coco Samoa over Bob Starr. Coco Samoa? It can't be the same boy, can it? Especially since he was he ever even really affiliated with the No. Allies? No. Huh. Can't be the same. I don't know. And then there's this match. What a fucking match this is. 
Sioni, aka the Barbarian, Samu, and Mustafa, as in Mustafa Saeed, of the Gangsters, managed by Captain Lou Albano and Alpha, beat Jack Hammer, Steve Smith, and the Tahitian Warrior, managed by Royce Prophet, aka Tom Kusadi. Who probably pay for Mustafa's uh, <laughs> part on the show. What makes you say that? And the Tahitian warrior is interesting because that's Samu's old name from uh, Florida. So what a we've, basically, we've got the head-shrinking Samoan gangsta party SWAT team <laughs> winning this match here. And yeah. Jack Hammer, best known for his Memphis run, he was the Earlier guy that year. who looked like a... Well, not this... Oh, yeah, yeah it was. 95? I thought it was 94. No, January 95, yeah. He was the Crusher Bones, Jack Hammer, yeah. He was the dude that who looked like Road Warrior Hawk, Sting, and Danny Davis all had a baby. Managed by the guy who looked like a fake Sir Oliver Humperdinck. Diamond Jack. Diamond Jack, yes. Uh, the rest of the show, Little Louie over Sleazy. I like Ty how only one of them uses their Little King name. Yeah. Typhoon beat Bastion Booger in a body slam match. What do you even expect? <laughs> Sean Foley beat Dan Steele and Jay North, Dennis and Menace, in a uh, two-on-one match. And then our main event, Brutus Beefcake over Jim the Anvil Neidhart. Now, Sean Foley, this was his debut. <laughs> he helped promote the show and was responsible for the big turnout at his high school. Well, good for him. Yeah. And... Yes, Ed Leslie worked a lot of indie shows when he was in WCW. Oh, God, yeah. He was every weekend. He worked the Anvil a lot in that era. That's one of his common opponents. It's funny, too, that he's do doing Brutus Beefcake while he's on TV as Zodiac, though. Well, he can't be Brutus Beefcake in WCW. You know that. You know what I mean, though. I he's, know. I know. When he, once he's the booty man, you're clearly supposed to understand that he's the same person as Brutus Beefcake. Yeah. Yeah. Which also I just realized, all those names he has in WCW, maybe not initially with Zodiac, but after the gimmick change and stuff, they're all supposed to be the same guy. They're all supposed to be Ed Leslie. Yeah. Which is kind of weird when you think about it. That he yeah. went through all those changes, but like, they don't say it, but obviously Disciple is supposed to be Ed Leslie. Yeah. So. The, the man the man with no name. So. Man with, uh, well, wait, the Butcher, Brother Brudeye. They never actually went with men with no face, right? No. Uh. So, do you realize how much bank he's making between his... his you know, hundred fifty to two hundred thousand a year in WCW, and however many indie bookings he's taking, I got to think he's getting at least five hundred a shot, right? We know Tom Casati took care of him, so on this show. <laughs> All right, ECW, nothing going on in our week news-wise. What a rarity! But we do have a Cactus Jack promo on television, and this is one of the best ones of this era. This is, you know, early in his uh, awakening, so to speak, in ECW. So let's go to Katniss Jack. And this is on YouTube because the network does not have it on the network, mainly because, well, you probably understand once we play the clip. I once asked Tommy Dreamer, Tommy, what is it with you? Is it ignorance? 
or apathy. And he said, Cactus, I don't know. I don't care. Bye-bye. When you are an ignorant person, Tommy Dreamer, you're a very ignorant little boy. Ignorant and selfish. And I don't know which one bothers me more. Because you stand there and you try to drape a banner over the name of Cactus Jack and say, here is the original hardcore wrestler. Only shows just how ignorant you really are. Because you're not even close. You're not even close. Does the name Ray Stevens mean anything to you? Well, it doesn't mean a lot to the general public because Ray Stevens was one of the original hardcore wrestlers, Tommy. You know where he is now? He's in need of a heart transplant because the years of boozing, partying, and red meat have clogged his arteries to the point where his body is barely functioning. But he can't get that transplant because he doesn't have the money. Harley Race has been a millionaire several times over, and his body lies broken, and his spirit lies battered. Why? Because he was a hardcore wrestler. How many of you have dialed up the dynamite kid and said, Kid, thanks for the dive down to the concrete floor. Sorry to hear that you don't have a pot to piss in. Or a window to throw it out. But thanks for the memories. You see, Tommy Dreamer, the problem with being hardcore is, by the very nature of the name, we give of ourselves, of our bodies, of our hearts, and of our souls. And for each one of us who gives, there's bloodthirsty lowlife fans out there only willing to take. How many of you shed a tear, Freddie Gilbert? And if you did, was it not just to feel sorry for yourself that you'd never see Eddie showered in blood anymore? So, Tommy Dreamer, the fact is this. Get off the trip and answer my phone call. Raven has given you an out. Don't you understand? You've got the perfect excuse to just walk away. And Raven is allowing me to do that to you because I'll tell you something, Tommy. To do what I did for you in that ECW arena and DDT you on the floor just proves to me how much love I really have in my heart. Because you gotta love people an awful lot to be willing to do what I did for you. So Tommy, I don't mean to yell. I don't mean to get upset because I like you. And I only want the best for you. And that's why I'm saying don't make me take this on a public forum. Forget all those losers! Answer my call, because he who lives and runs away returns to fight another day. Obviously, the music uh, intertwined was probably the reason why this didn't make the network, but Jesus Christ. Well, he, he is so on fire with his promos in the, at this time. And a lot of it is because it's fully sincere. He believes what he's saying. Yes. He is very concerned that he has ruined his career and his life. Yeah. And that he's also become this negative influence as well. And the most he's going to have to show for it is maybe 
picking up some Nitro bookings as a member of the Dungeon of Doom. Because he threw away his WCW career. He's a world chat team champion. Yep. You know? And spit on the belt on TV without asking. Yeah. Uh, but you know what, though? I wonder how he would look at that now. I think he would look at it differently. Well, here's what he told me five years ago when I did that Fighting Spirit story. I think a lot of the passion for the promos came from a place, a very real place, where I thought that I had burned my bridge in WCW and that I would never be welcome in WWE. I thought I was kind of doomed to this existence, then he laughs a little, where I performed for people who didn't fully appreciate the sacrifices the guys made for their entertainment. I loved performing in front of the ECW audience, but I needed a reason to turn, so that was the part of my mind I went to. I did have some problems with all that was expected from us, and in the long run, how underappreciated it would be. So Paul Heyman had to talk me out of trying to get back into WCW just as glorified Monday Night Enhancement talent. I really thought that with my run in ECW, combined with the job I had in Japan, combined with a couple nights a month on Nitro, I could make a pretty good living for my family. I didn't expect anything beyond that. It would have been interesting if he would have went back to WCW in that time period. I mean, would he have been what what they were wanting Sabu to be? I mean, he already had the cachet there, so it wouldn't have to be too too much work to get him reintroduced. I mean, it would have been interesting. Or would they have looked at him differently? Now, there there is such a thing as Nitro, and they're bringing in these different guys who they weren't bringing in before. Well, and also, major difference, who's in power that, and who's not. Flair's out of power, Kevin Sullivan's Kevin in Sullivan. power. Kevin Sullivan would have used him. I mean, would have pushed him, too. Yeah, maybe he would have been in the Dungeon of Doom, but he, but he would have been in the Dungeon of Doom because Kevin Sullivan would have wanted to be around him. Yes. He would have been Sullivan's top lieutenant, which Sullivan didn't have. Yes. Now, I feel like we've had this discussion before. If Foley does decide to go back to WCW in this period... It changes WF big time. It does, but also... Does Hogan work with him? No. You think Hogan sees him as too far, uh, too like, how do I put this? i tell you one person that does work with him, though. Who? Savage. Yes, and that would be something. <laughs> now I'm angry we never got that. Or, how about this? Benoit. Oh, I'm sure they would have worked together. Uh, Arn, you know, part of the whole Horseman Dungeon of Doom thing. Yeah, I don't Hogan think again, maybe Sting, Sting again. You know, possibly. I mean, it, uh, Hogan doesn't have to work Cactus. I mean, it, yeah, would they? He probably would have been involved in that uncensored thing and everything, but there would have been a whole lot of other people. But boy, it changed WWF because as much as you know, Rock and Austin are you know the the catalyst for the WF being what they would become, what's the indelible image of that era WF? Hell in a cell. Exactly. And also, Mick doesn't go to the WWF. Undertaker's career is totally different, too. Exactly where I was going. I'm not sure Undertaker has the staying power he does. Probably not. Because... He had lobbied for Mick to come in because he knew Mick was someone he could have good matches with. He was sick of being booked against 
comma monsters. Bundy. And you know, some of those guys were fine, but he wanted something other than just a generic WWF monster style wrestler to feud with. Yeah, if if Foley doesn't come in because he has a feud with Diesel, Nash leaves. You know, I guess they do him a gold dust, a little bit, a little bit more to it. You know, maybe. But after that, then what? Vader, I guess Vader, possibly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely. I mean, the WWF's totally different without Mick Foley there. So, yeah, that's one of the big what ifs. Yes, but, and as far as the promo, just to circle back, that Dynamite Kid line has always stuck with me. Especially since considered the history between Foley and Dynamite Kid, too. Yes. So, yeah. There's a lot that goes on there. Just tremendous work. Mm-hmm. All right. The MEWF, the Mid-Eastern Wrestling Federation, they ran Essex, Maryland, and Bingo Bills on September the 10th. We have Cat Burglar and Ramblin' Rich over Mark Schre- Mark the Shark Schrader and Earl the Pearl. Randall Rich Myers. Yes. Joe Thunder over Johnny Taylor with Joe Cool in his corner. Oh, what a match this fucking is here. A main event in any uh, armory or hall in the in the mid-Atlantic area, the upper mid-Atlantic area. Hat Myers, Johnny Gunn, that jobber Tom Brandy, and the Rock and Rubble over Dangerous Devin Storm, Metal Maniac, and Jim Powers. Is it possible to have a more Northeast Indie 1995 <laughs> match than that? <laughs> well, maybe the next one. <laughs> Morgus the Maniac over Glenn Osborne. Oh, man. This is a this is an all-time car right here. Playboy Bobby Starr over J.R. Willett. I thought he's Hollywood Bob Starr. Whatever. Axel Rotten over Bob Starr. The new sensation, Adam Flash and Mighty Quinn Nash over Gino Caruso. Oh, and Damian Stone, Little Guido, to retain the MEW tag titles. <laughs> oh, my God. Raven over Chad Austin with Stud Lee Osborne in his corner to retain a Mid-Atlantic title. Oh, my Corporal- God. We've just got one of the best typos <laughs> I've ever seen. All right. So, Corporal Punishment, the guy I've been there forever, Corporal Punishment, and the torch has it. Corporal Punisher Man <laughs> over Lucifer by disqualification to retain the MEWF title and your main event Cactus Jack over Crash the Terminator Hugh Morris oh my god what a show yeah there was a lot here also nice to see that we're getting more torch results than usual this week yeah the to- you, you gotta make sure to always look for that. The Torch always oh, had indie that? results that were not in the Observer. It, well, in certain eras, they have way more than others. And the, yes. in this era, not in this era, they they have a lot of indie results. I mean, you get in the early nineties, no. Late nineties, no. Mid nineties, yes. And also, well, early nineties, there's a lot of Midwest stuff too that's not in the other music. Yeah, but it's it's, it's not a lot per se. Not it's not a whole lot. Sure. Wow, that is a that is a show right there. My goodness, that would be like, you know how uh, people look at the uh, Ring of Honor shows in the early days and have all the the East, the East Coast All Stars. This would be like a Ring of Honor show in 1995 among <laughs> the East Coast All Stars. <laughs> Jesus. All right, let's talk about the National Wrestling Alliance. 
They held their annual convention on September the 8th in Orlando, Florida. Although the only promoters attending were Dennis Corluzzo, Steve Ricard, New Zealand, and Howard Brody from Florida. Woo, what a convention. They basically decided to keep Dan Severn as a champion as long as he continues to be a key performer in the UFC. Jim Cornette had talked about joining, but wanted someone else's champion, such as Brad Armstrong. Here we go. Cornette said his longtime friend Dennis Corluzzo and Howard Brody have been asking about joining the NWA and he wanted to be polite about turning them down, but right now he has no interest in doing so. In regards to what was reported here, Cornette said it was simply a discussion he had with Brody, who said he was negative about Severn being champion. He didn't suggest Brad Armstrong to be the champion or say he'd join if Armstrong was champion or not Severn anyway because he said he liked Severn. He said Severn is limited as champion by the old standards because there are only a handful of wrestlers who could be challengers for him. And said in the conversation with Brody, he was talking about NWA champions of the past. In the past, the champions were guys who could go into a territory and make the local wrestler, no matter what his style was and ability was, look good. And he could conduct himself as a wrestler rather than a gimmick. Brody asked if there was anyone he could think of that would fit that bill, and Cornette came up with Brad Armstrong's name off the top of his head without any serious thought. He didn't mean that he wanted Armstrong to be the champion, or even that Armstrong wore the title to begin with, or that he wanted Armstrong to have the title, and not that he was suggesting Armstrong for the title. He said Severn had more name value in some places than Armstrong because of UFC, but also pointed out that it doesn't necessarily correlate to wrestling, because Dan Severn was ever huge at the UFC show in Charlotte. But when SMW came to Charlotte, using Severn just down the road, they only drew 180 fans. And none of the wrestling fans attended seemed to be UFC fans. Why is this news? Why is this here? <laughs> because it's Jim Cornette talking to Dave. That's why. And, it, you know, it's involving Dan Severn, who's a hot name, UFC and NBA champion. So this is news, Bix. I'm just sad that Keza Kalman Jr. is not mentioned at this point. I mean, you read this, and yes, Jim Cornette is suggesting Brad Armstrong to be the NWA world champion. That's what it totally is. Oh, I didn't mean that. He just, his name came up. I, I would join in. I, I would join NWA if he was the champion. I mean, it's basically, it's what he's trying to say. But then, hell, it doesn't matter anyway because they're about to be out of business in two months. But but Brad Armstrong's NBA champion, I think that would have helped in some circles. Maybe. Maybe in the South. I don't know. What? So, any thoughts on this? Honestly, no. <laughs> oh, man. Hilarious. This felt like it should have come out in Matt Watch, but we will have that error. Spoke to Jim Cornette of Smoky Mountain Wrestling the other day. Oh, just wait till next week's show. Oh, All right, Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Is this about Kongi? Well, it's about a few things. There's like Matt Watch heavy show next week, folks. Wait for the plug. Uh, Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Biggest show of the weekend was on September 9th in Johnson City before 400 fans. Oh, if they're... If they're saying 400 a year and that's the number hildebrand's calling in can you imagine how badly that show drew yes i could all right they take a couple of segments for a movie called a box of moonlight which isn't a wrestling movie but has wrestling seeds landell did two matches in the name of uncle samson doing a lex luger stars and stripes gimmick the first was against mosh who went by the name of 
Fidel Castrator. <laughs> With a fake beard that nearly came off during the match, a cigar, and a machete. He then wrestled Saddam Insane. Thrasher, who was in military fatigues, who kept trying to cut Landell's hair. Landell won both matches. I had no idea that Kurt Brown and Johnny Legend ever wrote a movie together. I'm looking for this movie, right? Oh, the clip, the clip is on YouTube. We can play it. The, uh, it's on uh, movie clips. So it's legit. Um, so for, I have to... it up already. I mean, I can play well, it. All right, well, let's go to it. Let's watch this, shall we? We gotta watch this. Yes. The, the name of the clip on YouTube is Fake Wrestling. And it's got John Turturro and Sam Rockwell in this film. Yeah, among it's a box of moonlight. It's not a box of moonlight. Yes. Dave. All right. German will... Actually, wait. Did I leave my little filter on? Okay, yes. I should turn that off because we don't have VHS to answer. Ah! Uncle Sam said... Oh, come on. Hey. Dig in, man. Save some room for dessert. You like wrestling? I like college or high school wrestling. Not this garbage. Hey, this ain't no high school shit, man. This is professional wrestling. That's my guy right there. Uncle Sampson. Ranked number one by the PWP and the WPW both. Find some Cuban guy from Cuba. Jesus! Get away from me! I know that was a dubbed-in noise, but still. Come on! Get away from there! He still hit him in the head. Yeah! yeah. yeah. You Very obviously Sam. gimmick scissors. Sam's coming back. Look out, Shaking off a blow to the head like that, man! You know it's all fake, don't you? What is? The whole thing. Kicks, punches, the chair smashing. They plan out every fight, who's going to win and who's going to lose. It's all fake. Everybody knows that. Uh, Al, I know you're smart because you've got a scientific-style job, but you're not using common sense. If this fight is fake and everybody knows it's fake, then why in the hell would anybody waste their time sitting around watching it? That's a question you might want to answer one day, Mark. I know the answer. And this is what's happening all over America now. This country's being taken over by smart people with no common sense, and that's why I'm out here, man. Just me, my instincts, and nature. That's all you need. See that moon up there? Look at that moon! Shit, you're in the city, you wouldn't even be able to see that. The three-quarter moon. Just about to slip into its second phase. Well, I don't know about that, Al, but the Indians call that a creamy corn moon. What? <laughs> um, Buddy Landell in that gear looks completely different. A lot of tassels. Yes. Wow. Also, Sam Rockwell's jaw must be hurting from chewing all that scenery. <laughs> Hey, Sam Rockwell, uh, he's a hell of an actor. God bless he, him. He is, but he is putting it on strong here. <laughs> so is, uh, I guess... Uh, John Turturro? 
No, I was going to say, well, no, John Turturro is pretty understated here. I was going to say that uh, I guess Saddam Insane is not in the movie. No, I didn't make it. But we Fidel Castrator did. Fidel Castrator. Yes, and also, if we can't expose the business, we can just be in a movie that exposes the business. Gort, Terry Gordy stole the top belt after losing by DQ to Brad Armstrong, although Gordy actually gave the belt back. He stole five days before he stole it due to the wonders of the fans taping. <laughs> Landell got a great babyface reaction. His first major show in that role, going to a double count out with Tommy Rich. Bob Armstrong, the Punisher's first blood match, saw Gordy throw a chain to Punisher, but Bob got it and used it first. All right, here are the results with star ratings. Thrasher over Scott Armstrong, one star. B- Buddy Landell over Het Mosh, two stars. At Robert Gibson, that's the, uh, t- that's the movie match, by the way. And Robert Gibson over Al Snow, three and a quarter stars. Landell over Thrasher, star and a half, the other movie match. The first blood match was a dud. Armstrong over Gordy by DQ, two stars. Landell, Tommy Rich, double count out, two and three quarter stars. And then the street fight for the uh, Smoky Mountain Tag Titles, Heavenly Bodies over the Thugs, Tracy Smithers and Dirty White Boy, three and a half stars. And no clips for Smoky Television during our week because it's not on YouTube anymore. It goes from September 2nd to September 16th. Hmm. Yep. Music? Huh? Music rights? Um, I wouldn't think that took the whole episode out, but who knows? You never know. Alright, uh, now we got USWA, and that show is on YouTube, but the problem is, there's no audio. So it does us no good. Is that an <laughs> upload issue or an old copyright flag thing that didn't get rectified? Yeah, uh, I would guess that probably was somebody would need to put that back up, because that happens. Where where they would and for a while there they would take out the whole audio track from a video. They don't do that no more. Chris, I just found the September 9th show. Yeah, but is there any sound? Oh, I mean no, the Smoky show, not the USWA show. You did. Yeah, let me make sure this one has sound. Yes, it does. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, what happened? <laughs> it wasn't on there before, but there's really nothing of note. Okay. Well, I'm curious to see, would they have had any clips from the Johnson City show on that show? Uh, no, because oh, yeah. Johnson City was September the 9th. Same night. It was that night. Oh, yeah, yeah, wait, you're right. So, the clips okay, that I'm seeing... Okay, this is a recap show. Okay. Yeah, it's a recap show. So, these are Knoxville clips that I'm seeing? Uh, Barberville, Kentucky. Well, the arena clips, I mean. Uh yeah, I mean it's a the recap show. show. It's a recap show of of the Buddy Landell story, basically. It's a, it's a basically. Oh, uh, hip- okay. Buddy Landell. Okay, now I mean if I do want to play, okay, I do want to play the promos now and, and uh, the okay. Tommy Rich. All right, so this is all right. They, they turned on Buddy in Barberville, Kentucky, the previous weekend. Okay. They beat the shit out of that dude, left him bloody. Okay, what right. timestamp should I go to? I'm then? sending it right now. Oh, you're sending a timestamp. Okay, very good. Cool. All right, so we're going to have Jim Cornette and Tommy Rich uh, start off going over um, after the beatdown and what happened there. And then Landell will cut a follow-up promo with Chip Kessler. So let's at least we'll, we'll watch that. Right. It's good. A beating of his life. Buddy Landell, when you turned your back on the militia and started losing matches, 
You got booted out. You got court-martialed. You know, you always wanted to be like the wildfire. I was a world heavyweight champion. You never was. You was always jealous. Now then, after tonight, you're one bloody pump. And the next time that you cross the malicious path, brother, we're going to stop you just like the North did the South. I would call General. Let me tell you something, Buddy Landell. I want you to listen real good, punk. Maybe you can't even listen anymore. We might have busted your eardrums along with everything else we did. You're court martial. You're out of a militia. You're a deserter, a turntoe, a traitor, a coward. You couldn't beat Shawn Michaels, so you tried to blame me. You couldn't beat Brad Armstrong, so you tried to blame me. And then you lost us another match out there, and you tried to blame me. You're a loser because you're a drunk and a junkie, and you've admitted it, and everybody knows it. The only way you could ever get in the ring to begin with is to take a couple of sips of that false courage, fortify yourself down at the local tavern. You were always jealous of Tommy Rich ever since he joined the militia because he was a world champion and you never were because you blew it for yourself. You almost lost your family and you almost lost your whole career and I'm the one that saved it for you. You would have been a broke, drunk land in a gutter if it wasn't for Jim Cornette. And what do you do? You put your hands on me. You punch me in the face. You try to break my leg with that figure four. I got news for you, boy. If you're in any kind of shape to get back in a ring, then if you do, and you got the guts or the false courage to get back in there with the militia, and especially Tommy Wildfire Rich, we're going to leave you laying once again in a pool of your own blood, punk, and this time you'll be in worse shape, because nobody, nobody crosses the militia, nobody crosses Jim Cornette, and nobody's going to mess with Wildfire, or they're going to get burnt. Well, buddy, some very, very strong words there from yeah, Jim Cornette and Tommy Wildfire Rich after your violent altercation there in Barberville, Kentucky. What it all boils down to is this. I'm my own man, and I was tired of playing Army. Now, I'm a professional wrestler, and I'm in this business to make money. And I thought Jimmy Cornette could help me out to do that, but he's an egotistical egomaniac, and he had other plans. Now, Tommy Rich is all fired up about being the new lieutenant. He's even got the crew cat haircut to match. Oh, yeah, you beat my brains out, Jimmy Cornette, but I'm going to tell you something. The whooping that I took from you is nothing like the beating that I took from drugs and alcohol, and I overcame that, and I can overcome you. Now, if I've got to put up the suits and the ties and the boats and the cars and the diamond rings and all of that, that's exactly what I'll do, Tommy Rich. I'll be my own one-man militia. But go to the bank with this, Jimmy Cornette and Tommy Rich. You'd rather go through hell with gasoline britches on than come it my way. Because when you put your hands on me, Jimmy Cornette, and when you put your hands on me, Tommy Wildfire Rich, that's the worst mistake you could ever make in your life. Bam, bam, Terry Gordon Punisher. I'm going to deal with you down the road, but right now, Tommy Rich, tonight in Johnson City, Tennessee, is going to be my first opportunity to prove to everybody that I'm the better man than you are. Call me an alcoholic. Call me whatever you want to, Tommy Rich. But the bottom line is this. I'd never in my whole career want to be like you, never modeled myself after you. You say that I'm a wannabe. Well, let me tell you something, Tommy Rich. You couldn't carry my jock strap. You couldn't lace my boots up because I'm 10 years younger, 10 times better looking, and I'm 10 times a better wrestler than you are. Jimmy Cornette knew that. That's why he made me the top lieutenant. 
You're just a stumble, bum, drunk. The best thing that you can do is go down to the local crawl and fall and knock you down a couple of courts and get you some false courage and come up to Johnson City tonight, brother, because I'm going to kick your stinking brains in. I'm going to be my own one-man militia, and I'm going to take care of you. And, Jimmy, I pray to God that you come and stick your nose in on it because I'm going to take care of you, too. God damn. <laughs> Talk about cactus. Buddy Landell in this time period, with starting with the whole promo before the Sean match and going to the rest. Woof. God, he was so good. And also, uncharacteristically for this late and smoky, when he's clearly just overworked and exhausted, Cornette was fantastic here, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love this view. The, the Landell Cornette story rich all that stuff it's a great feud it's just it came at the bad time of the of the, of the company when they were going down and yeah but man what a great feud yeah mm. and it also one thing i love too is it all makes sense it makes sense that this match is you know representing knoxville against the wwf is the one where Budrow is like, I need to tell my story on TV, blah, blah, blah. I don't want Jim Cornette to interfere, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it all makes sense that this is why he and when he decides to share all this on TV. And then it just flows directly into the turn. Like, it's fantastic. And, I mean, he had been a babyface in Memphis in 86, against Dundee and he cut some great promos in that but that's a short short run this is his first time in really as a babyface since then and holy shit he's amazing you know and, and he you know talks about being from Knoxville and finally you know puts all that out there and, you know as part of this character Whew, man so fucking good so fucking good yep. god bless him man just tremendous stuff all right, now, back to USWA, as we said. Yes, that video's on, too, but there's no sound. Now, before we talk about TV, the night before TV in Ripley, Tennessee, on September 8th, Bill Dundee and Wolfie D had an incident. Dundee was selling photos of himself at PG-13, and Wolfie D wanted to cut of the money. It started as an argument and turned into a fight. Later, reportedly, Dundee pulled out a weapon, which some reports say was a knife. Booker Randy Hales then suspended Dundee when he showed up for TV on September the 9th. Originally, Dundee's suspension was to be for two weeks, but he's gone to work for rival promoter Burt Prentice's Ozark Mountain Wrestling. So at least for the present, he looks to be history. And Brian Lee and Patanak have also left. This is it. This is where we have that thing. I mean, that happens. And then Dundee comes back in a couple of months. And that leads to the whole cyberpunks feud and you know, the creation of cyberpunks gimmick and everything ends up leading to the breakup of PG 13 cyberpunks for a while. I mean, yeah, there's a lot that's, that comes out of this creatively, but this is real. This is a real thing that fucking happened. Now, well, and also something else too, what? a real world world consequence. Once everything gets patched up, this kind of leads to USWA guys being able to work for Bird on their off days. Yes. Now, was Wolfie D in the right? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Because him and Jamie are in the picture. 
yeah, and I believe the way that he and Jamie told the story in the shoot interview they did years ago for High Spots, it was basically that Bill had a photographer, ran up to Jamie and Wolfie one time, and quickly just photobombed a photo, and that's what he was selling. So he already kind of had heat with them over it. That is amazing, isn't it? Bill Dundee does not need to do that, because he's Bill Dundee. Yeah, and then, look, here's the thing especially. I don't know how often there were photos sold of multiple baby faces together if that weren't already an act together. But if the policy is that that you're going to give some of your gimmick money to the heel who's helping you stay over, then of course you give part of the money to other people in the photo. Yes. And especially with how important gimmick money is to a babyface in this territory, especially this late. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a really shitty thing to do on Bill's part. Yes, it is. Absolutely. To his son. Yes. That's the other thing. And good on Wolfie for confronting him on it, too. Yeah. And he and he didn't go over his head to the office or anything. He, no. He he went to him man to man. Mm-hmm. He did the right thing. Yeah. And Bill still just loses his shit and pulls a knife on him. Because he's Bill Dundee. Yeah, Bill pretty Dundee, much. Bill Dundee is hot, hot, hot the temper. He's hot tempered. And you and I both know he still carries that knife everywhere. Oh yes. We've heard stories. Yeah. So, Bill was in the wrong. So he, that's what happened. But hey, they brought what they did. What what wrestling promoters do when they they patch up their beef or whatever, and they turn into business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there you go. Yes, and in the end, this actually worked out well for everyone. Yeah, Brian Christopher teased the heel turn on the September Knife Show. Billy Jack Haynes scheduled to defend the USWA title against Doug Gilbert. Christopher said he wanted a title shot to see a beaten Haynes in a non-title match. Gilbert refused to give up the shot. Dave Brown told Brian he thought Gilbert deserved a title shot, and Brian started complaining that everyone used to hate Doug. Now they're all backing it. This dispute was settled when Hale said that Christopher would get a shot at the winner next week. Dave's not sure what happened in the match other than Haynes retained the title. It's not a heel turn. I mean, you would think by now Dave would understand Memphis babyface layers. Yes. I mean, that's what this is. This is a babyface layer situation. Yeah, I mean, he's only been watching their TV every week for the past dozen years or so. I know. I mean, it's it's, it's so obvious. It's not nobody turning heel. It's just the layers to the babyface's story. Now, in fairness, he may not have seen the TV yet. Yeah. it's pro- That's probably part of it, that he's going ba- by what people who saw the TV are telling him. But then, well, shit, they should know. If well, they're watching. Yes. <laughs> really. Just James Armstrong, the roadie, when being interviewed by Dave Brown, called him Murphy Brown, and later pushed down announcer Corey Macklin. Lawler did interview by telephone, so Dave guessed he was in Connecticut. Probably Saturday, right. Saturday, though. Hmm. Yeah. All right, uh, that was TV. All right, the Minnesota Coliseum show on September 11th. Brian Christopher gained the USWA title from Billy Jack Keynes on the September 11th show in Memphis, which was headlined by Jerry Lawler beating Jesse James Armstrong before 1,080 fans. His believe this will be Lawler's last appearance in the area for a while since his workload increased with WWF. 
Brandon Baxter's feeding with TV announcer Corey Mack would come off the September 11th Lawler-Armstrong match. Baxter interfered, and Armstrong's about to win the title when Macklin made the save, and Lawler wound up winning. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right, let me see if I can find this clip, because this is this is hilarious. All right. Um, okay. All right, okay. All right. Let me go to... Okay, so let me go to the beginning of the next week's show. Which has a clip from our week. Okay. I uh, so I'm gonna send this to you, Bix. And you'll get it's Lance was off. So you'll get Lance's reaction to what happened as well. Ah, come on, guys. Oh, you'll love Lance's reaction. No, yes, just like are, everybody friend. else. That has nothing to do with this. This is getting totally out of hand. Oh, head, it's so. getting totally hey, out of hey, hand. Come on. You got a speaking problem? Hey, you got a speaking problem? You feel all the Come on, man. Christopher, the new USWA heavyweight champion. He ended a four-month reign of Billy Jack Haynes by winning the title this past week. Yes. It was agreed right here last uh, last week. Doug Gilbert stepped aside in the match with the stipulation that he would get a little cash and also he would get the first return match. And I'm happy to announce to you that promoter Eddie Marlin has booked that return match today right here. Doug Gilbert against Brian Christopher, USWA heavyweight title at stake. Be on the line. I'll be a son of a gun if we haven't got a lot of news happening, too. Hey, what was this thing with Corey? That crazy Armstrong gets out there and jumps uh, Corey right out here well, on television. No doubt about it. I, I last week recommended that uh, Armstrong be suspended. Corey said he would like uh, you know to maybe have a chance to get even with him a little bit later on. But... Uh, uh, anyway, the committee has met, and the committee decided uh, Armstrong will not be at television today. He's suspended for te- from television for one day as a result of putting his hands on Corey last week. Well, that was a very good decision. I'll guarantee you that, and I go along with that suspension 100%. Big news coming up on a tag team battle right. royal. That's going to okay. be interesting. So, <laughs> I love Lance. God, I love Lance. And... <laughs> And uh, so now we're going to get Corey's revenge. So let's go to Lance and Dave as they talk about the September 11th match at the Coliseum, and you'll see what Corey Macklin does. Well, I um, never cease to amaze at how much fury can be pinned up in one body, and this guy is full of it. He is worse now than I believe I've ever seen him, and he's always been bad. Talking about Billy Jack Haynes. And now claiming he's going to come out with a full Nelson and he's going to hurt people as if he already has not been hurting people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talk about broken shoulders and a little bit of everything else there. We uh, we had a match uh, a few days ago which uh, was also one with a lot of interest with Jesse James Armstrong. Yes. Going against the King. Unified title was at stake. Interesting goings on, especially toward the end of all of this. We've got some highlights. I didn't see it. I'd love to right now. Boy, catches him with a right hand that time. Staggers the king and takes him down. Jesse James Armstrong. Putting it on Jerry the King Wall. Drops the boot down on the king. 
Armstrong leaning in a lot and a little celebration from Jesse James Armstrong. <laughs> Brian Gerard James's dancing is not as smooth yet. <laughs> no. He's got something over there. No, we don't have Also, boy, does being in this promotion showcase what a large human being he is. Yes. Armstrong slams Lawler right into the top turnbuckle. Referee Bill Rush warning him that. Like he's only small in the sense he is smaller than Billy Gunn. <laughs> Jesse James Armstrong. I guess the reason we didn't notice it as Roadie is because he was hunched over all the time. Armstrong. Yeah. Oh, look at his hair at this time, too. Come on, Brandon. Yeah, Brandon's hair is long. Blonde. Not even old enough to drive over here. Got his suit on with no shirt. Oh, but the hell. I love uh, Road Dog overselling, getting crotched on the middle rope to uh, account for the fact that he very obviously could not crotch himself on the bottom rope the way, I mean, excuse me, middle rope the way he did it because he's too tall. His timing on registering and selling and bumping for the punches is fantastic. Oh, ref bump. Here we go. Yeah. Just James, not that Lawler with a chain. And it's for it! <laughs> Brandon wants Adam. Punches Brandon falls over in the process. 
Corey would get better at this. It's not crazy to call Sienna for that, though. I'm not sure it's the wisest thing you ever did, but you can see the fans' reaction, and I certainly understand you want to get at Armstrong and Brandon Baxter, too, and especially, yeah, yeah, how about that video we just saw here, Mr. Baxter? Better watch yourself around here, huh? I want to start off by saying this has been just another one of those weeks. Let me say that I am sick and tired of the USWA. I am sick and tired of this place. A TV studio. We've been here for about two minutes. Keep this going. For 30 that, right? years, the same TV yeah, studio. Yeah, keep going. The USWA's in a rut, isn't it? You, you old man, and Lance Russell together, probably equal about 200 years old. This ring has been here for about the last 50 years. I am so sick and tired of it. Let's talk about my first day here. What happened? Randy Hale takes my guts. What else happened? You hate my guts, too. Lance Russell, from the very first day I was here, started knocking me. The whole USWA is against Brandon Baxter. And now, what happens? You have a conspiracy. You put it all together. And I'm sucker punched by a moron like Corey Macklin. He's not too far away. Be careful. He may come out here after you again. And uh, he doesn't want to have to do that. You need to stay there and just listen to what I have to say. Because I'm just a little bit hot at you right now. This week he's cost me all kinds of money. I had to go to the dentist. I had to get a cap put on my tooth from that sucker punch you gave me. And I'm not going to put up with that. I beat up Miss Texas. I beat up Randy Hale. I beat up Jimmy Valiant. And now I guess I'm going to have to do it to Corey Macklin, huh? Is that what it is? Well, I guess so. And I guess that's what I'll do. But right now, there's two guys in the ring who are about to get slaughtered. Alright. The team of the future. The th so there we go. <laughs> Also, everyone remember that Brandon is eight, like 18 at this time and has only been a manager for like a year and a half. Yeah. We've only been in Memphis for like half a year. Yeah. Is he? He's... So. <laughs> yeah, this uh, is the first place he worked outside of Global, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I can throw a punch too now. But I just fall when I throw my punch. <laughs> All right, the rest of the results of that show was Stephen Dunn over Pat Tanaka. Asshole Rotten went to a draw with a spellbinder. Miss Texas over Uptown Karen and Downtown Bruno in a handicap match. Doug Gilbert over Trace Smothers by disqualification. PG-13 over the Heavenly Bodies retained the USWA tag titles. Christopher over Billy Jack to regain the title. And Jesse James over the King by DQ to retain the unified title. Well, King, whatever. All right, Louisville. Of course, they're a week behind, so they're running some different stuff. Uptown Karen and Brandon Baxter of Miss Texas. Doug Gilman and Brian Lee didn't take place when Lee was announced to have transportation problems. He quit. PG-13 over Pat Tanaka and Axel Rotten. Jesse James Armstrong beat Stephen Dunn, subbing for Bill Dundee, who had those transportation problems as well. <laughs> so it was three days after the knife incident. Brian Chris with Billy Jack Haynes by DQ, so Haynes retained the SWA title here. And PG-13 and Doug Gilbert over Tracy Smothers and the Heavenly Bodies in a non-sanctioned grudge match. And Lawler and Jesse James would come back the week later. So you get your week Mid-South Coliseum stuff here a week later. So there you go. USWA. I was watching this religiously at the time uh, through America 1. So uh, 
Yeah. Fun time period. Ozark Mountain Wrestling, speaking of, they ran September 14th in West Memphis, Arkansas for Hunchdown fans. Ricky Burton over Sean Taylor. Terry Golden over Reggie B. Fine. Brickhouse Brown over Christian Devereaux. Future Shock over Moondog Spot. And the Colorado Kid over Bull Payne in your main event. So there's your Ozark Mountain coverage. No Dundee on this show. Not yet, no. Not yet. All right, let's go to the Confederate Wrestling Alliance, Bix, in Dallas, Texas. Is it still Confederate at this time? Look, scroll down. Look down. Oh, I see. Okay. The Dallas Sportatorium has continued to draw about 500 in the past two weeks, largely due to a lot of promotion held from local rock station KEGL. On the, the September 8th show, Killer Tim Brooks turned babyface with Scandler at Bar's fireball for Chris Adams hit him in the face, and he turned on that bar. Jeez, after reading that sentence, it's funny to believe it's still being written in this decade. <laughs> They're starting a tag tournament next week with the Sicilian Studs, Chris Adams, Killer Brooks, High Voltage, not WCW's High Voltage, Alice Porto and Sean Summers, Scott, Sam Houston and Scott Husky, Randy Rhodes and Bubba Monroe, Al and Action Jackson, also calling a King Kong, Chip the Firebreaker, Curtis Thompson and Bull Payne, and Jimmy James, uh, Jimmy James and Bobby Reese, and Johnny Mantell and Bill Irwin. Now, this show drew 550. That's the number that the Torch got for the Sportorium. It's the right. We had Bill Irwin over Bobby Perez. Scott Pussy went to a draw with Johnny Mantell. Bo Vegas and Devin Michaels, high voltage, over Alex the Plug Porto and Dapper Dan. Sam Houston over GQ Knight. Sicilian Studs, Guido Falcone and Vito Mussolini over Action Jackson and Al Jackson. Chris Adams, no contest for Killers and Brooks in that whole deal there. What's your main event? Any thoughts on the Confederate Wrestling Alliance, Bix? I mean, it's interesting that we're reading Confederate Wrestling Alliance results on a show where we just had a promo where making fun of the South for losing the Civil War was used for heel heat. <laughs> yeah. But they would change that soon. Someone would tell them that was not a good idea. Well, it's hey, there's still a lot of people down here that still think that's a, a heel heat thing to do. So, mm-hmm. and let's close out this section with some news on the magazine. The newsstand, Wrestling Magazine, business appears to be falling at a rapid rate. In recent months, Norman Jacobs, Napolitano Max, folded three of the four titles, even just one bi-monthly magazine. In addition, rumors are flying that the second incarnation of WCW's magazine is about to go under. This is WF Magazine, which underwent a recent format change, the Aptimax Wrestling World and New Wave Wrestling. Part of this is because paper costs are tripled, not to mention the magazines themselves need to upgrade their content to reflect that virtually all fans know it's a work. Anyway, any magazine that was marginal one year ago is on the verge of being defunct now because of paper costs. And I'm just going to guess that maybe one of the reasons that uh, New Wave Wrestling is still around is that it basically exists as an infomercial for buying stuff from Mike O'Hara. Mm, pretty much. Pretty much. So, yeah. The end of an era. Yeah, so which magazines were these? Oh, shit. I don't know. Uh, I mean, based on stuff... That I wasn't buying wrestling. I, I, I had bought some wrestling magazines in 1995, but it was like Wrestler and uh, Inside Wrestling. I, I mean, as I'm... far as stuff that still would have, like, existed by this time. Let's see if the list on Wikipedia... So I guess I should look for Jacobs in here to see. Okay, Ringside Wrestling, is that lasts until 
thousand. So that's not one that's closed here. And these are all from Starlogged, apparently. Uh, Superstar Wrestlers. It it has ending in ninety four, but I'm guessing it's one of the ones that ended here. Uh, all stars, heroes, and villains lasts until two thousand. Wrestling power had lasted until eighty nine. Wrestling scene was already gone, and the original wrestling world was Norm Jacobs too. So we clearly there's some missing here, or the dates are wrong, or both. There you go. Unless they're listed as Napolitano. Let's see. Uh, not that I can see. And wait, uh, well, wrestling being event is gone already. If he was involved with that still, so yeah, that's about it. Yeah, but yeah, Devanera. So I guess TV wrestling might have been them too, right? I don't remember the magazine. So, but yeah, there there was some shrink in this era, but that would change again with the Boston boom. All right, let's close up with the World Wrestling Federation. The U.S. Court of Public Appeal, Public Appeal, the U.S. Court of Appeals, Eighth Circuit out of St. Paul, Minnesota, issued a 30-page ruling on September 11th, affirming the original verdict in the Jesse Ventura lawsuit against Titan Sports. The three judges hearing the appeal voted two, in favor two to one of Ventura, with Circuit Judge Morris Shepard Arnold writing a dissenting opinion. According to the suit, Ventura earned $1,000 per week by verbal agreement when he started as a color commentator with Titan in 1985, although he had signed a standard wrestler's contract. In March 1986, Ventura quit Titan to try to make it as a movie actor, but returned that fall under a different verbal deal. In late 1987, Ventura hired Barry Bloom to negotiate regarding his appearances on the NBC Saturday Night's main events with Dick Ebersol, but those negotiations broke down, and when 1987-88 season began... Ventura was a part of the shows. A few weeks later, in Bloom's negotiations with Dick Glover, Titan VP, when the subject of videotape royalties came up, Glover told Bloom Titan's policy was to pay royalties only if it was a tape featuring one performer, because he believed that company that was company policy. Ventura signed a contract waiving the rights to videotape royalties and remained with Titan through the summer of 1990. It was later discovered that Titan paid Hulk Hogan points on the first three WrestleMania videotapes, and by 1988 was paying every performer on the show for video rights at the major pay-per-view shows. Between 1987 and 1990, Glover and Bloom met annually on the contract, and each year Bloom brought up whether Titan had changed his videotape royalties policy, and Glover told him no every time, despite the fact that every performer on the pay-per-views by that time was getting paid a fee for videotape sales. Ventura filed suit in December 1991 for videotape royalties when he found out that Glover had lied to Bloom in negotiations and the jury ruled in his favor for 801,33606. Also another 8,625.60 for other merchandising claims. Titan argued Ventura wasn't entitled to royalties from 1985-1987 before he signed the contract with Bloom because he had an oral agreement with the company. They also argued the court erred in awarding his post-1987, him in post-1987, because the contract he signed waiving his rights to the royalties, and they challenged testimony of Ventura's expert witness, who gave the jury a figure they felt Ventura had been defrauded by, not earning points on the videos. The court ruled that they couldn't find firm evidence that the original ruling was an error. The dissenting opinion by Arnold was that Ventura was paid to be a commentator, and that's all he did, it was already paid for. It had made an agreement with Titan regarding royalties, and thus wasn't due any further money from Titan. 
He compared the case to a studio musician case, 1957, where the musician was, played a, was paid a flat fee for work on songs recorded by the Glenn Miller Orchestra. They ended up making a lot of money and later sued for a piece, sued for peace, and court ruled that he had no agreement with Miller, entitling him to a piece, and was turned down. Ventura was worried $109,000, largely on videotape royalties. When the court ruled, Titan lied to him in contract negotiations, saying nobody received a percentage of videotape royalties except wrestlers in the case of a best of Roddy Piper or best of Jim Duggan type of tape. It was later revealed in the trial that Hulk Hogan, Miss T, and others had received royalties on tapes that didn't bear their name. Titan had argued in the Court of Appeals that Ventura had made a deal and shouldn't be able to recover royalties. But the jury in November, 19, November 1992 ruled that because Titan Vice President Dick Glover had lied to Ventura's agent Barry Bloom in negotiations, that deal should have been nullified. Ventura is now due both the $809,000 plus accrued interest, which we figure well over a million, plus all court costs, so the total figure is to be the $1.2 million range. Titan has one final avenue to appeal, going back to the same court and asking them to overturn Monday's ruling, which is something that only happens in rare occasions. Okay, first of all, November 1992, what does that have to do with anything? Where did that date come from? The trial was in April 94. I have no idea, but that's what Dave has here. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's the first thing. The other is, holy shit, is that dissenting judge an asshole? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that specific Glenn Miller Orchestra case, but, I, and I'm not a lawyer, but that's not the point. It's not, oh, you were hired as a hired hand and then this thing made money. It's he was defrauded into signing the contract for that on this point. That's not the same thing. Yeah. That's interesting that the dissent is so a far, well, I guess far afield is the right term, from what actually happened. That's curious. But look, you know, and people get confused about this with this case all the time. Like, what's the deal with Ventura? So it's a few things. When there was the whole thing where they had to pay extra to use him for DVDs and all that, that's because there was a specific royalty rate that due to this trial, they had to pay Jesse on home video. So that's why, you know, during the DVD boom, if they could cut him out without it interfering too much, they would. But if it was something where he was all over it, like, you know, the Hogan DVDs, best of Saturday night's main event, etc., they'd man up and just include the Jesse commentary and pay him. So that's the deal with that. And then the reason he had this compelling case that other people didn't have was that they defrauded him into signing a contract that didn't give him videotape royalties. Hmm. I don't think we know of anyone else that was defrauded, even if other people tried suing. You know, Steamboat yeah. had his lawsuit that I don't think went anywhere. There are the more recent ones. And, you know, Network is a whole other thing, which Jesse doesn't appear to be fighting them on. He's not getting paid for that, so... Th that's what makes Jesse unique with all this. Um, I wonder how much it's costing them at this point to fight this too. Because once it started hinging on the fraud, it's not like they were setting a precedent, you know, that would affect yeah. them in a direct... I mean, they set a legal precedent in the legal sense that's been cited in other cases, but... You know what I'm saying? Like, unless there are a lot more similar cases and no one ever sued over it that we know of, 
it's not like they're really out much more here. Like, do, do you get where I'm going with this? Doesn't this feel like kind of a waste of money on their part? Yeah, it does. Es- especially since they're not weird. monetizing the historical video library at this time. No, it's, it's, it's weird. You know, isn't the million dollar judgment enough? Do you really want to keep paying Jerry and friends however much to do this expensive appeal? I mean, it's the whole Ventura WF relationship is just so so. There's so many different uh, ebbs and flows throughout the '90s. You know? Yeah. It's like I don't know. You really don't know what to think at times, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, but Ventura, I mean, he's he's well within his right to get his money, as we said before, you know? Yes. Now, so, one thing I've wondered, too, I mean, he was, I believe he was working on this appeal. If they had Jerry McDevitt and friends to their full effect on this case at trial, would it have changed much? And then in this case, I don't think so. I think the specifics of it mean that it would have wouldn't have gone that differently. Because remember, their resources are split because Jerry and friends are working on the steroid trial when this is going to trial. Yeah. And, you know, historically, what's looked at as the big, you know, uh, victims of that are Charles Austin case, Jesse case, and to a degree, the World Wildlife Fund thing, because that's when they signed the agreement that they end up violating Mm-hmm. Um, well, wildlife fun thing, I don't know. Probably, would they have not signed it? Probably not. Um, Jesse, I don't think it would have changed. Charles Austin, I think it could have changed. Because I I gotta think, if it's Jerry McDevitt and wrestling smart lawyers, although this is newer for them at the time, still, they're immersed in it, I don't think they come up with this idiotic Oh, wrestling, you know, it's not idiotic in a grand, in a, in a bigger sense, but at the time to claim, oh, you assume the risk, it's a dangerous activity, accidents happen type of thing. Yeah. That's a problem when you're just a few years removed from arguing to all sorts of government bodies that it's not that. Yeah. They're like, this is according to Charles Austin's lawyer who told me this directly. What cost them the case was all of that deregulation lobby that he was able to point to what, okay, you're now you're saying it's, it's, you know, unsafe with assumed risks. Why weren't you saying that a few years ago? Why were you trying to get it deregulated, et cetera? So I'm sure they have a better defense if it's Jerry McDevitt. I don't know what that looks like, but I think it looks like a different case. Just not the specifics of what that would mean. Um, now, do you think Dick Glover deliberately lied, or do you think that he was misled by other people in the company? Because I gotta think he was high up enough that he knew who was getting paid for videos, right? Yeah. He had to. He must have. Also, I'm just looking through some notes I have. So here's what the appellate ruling from here in 95 says about who they paid royalties to. The re- the rest of what's here is redundant to what Dave had. But this is this has more details. 
1985, 1986, and 1987, Titan paid videotape royalties to Hulk Hogan and Marvel Comics for WrestleMania 1, 2, and 3, despite the fact there was no featured performer in these productions. During 1988, Titan paid videotape royalties to all 54 wrestlers appearing in the Survivor Series, all 57 wrestlers appearing in WrestleMania 4, and to all 38 wrestlers appearing in SummerSlam 88. Again, these payments were inconsistent with Titan's stated policy, because none of these videotapes had one featured performer, and beginning in December 1988, Titan paid royalties to all wrestlers appearing in videotapes of pay-per-view events. So that's interesting. Yeah. That they started do so wait, wait beginning in December so I'm confused here. So wait a second, why what does that mean that they made it official policy in December eighty eight? I guess. Yeah. Because otherwise that doesn't make any sense because you just said they are they paid on the on the nineteen eighty eight pay per views. So I guess that's the only way that makes sense, right? I guess so. Again, I don't get what the point of them pushing this so far is. What are they afraid of? I don't know. I've never really thought of it that way before, but when you think about it, it's very bizarre that they pushed this as far as they did. Yeah, but it's Ventura. Hmm. You know? Yes. So, okay. I I knew I had something from Dick Glover giving his side. This is an excerpt that I took in some notes of mine from his affidavit, giving his side, okay? Yeah. So this is Dick Lover under oath. This is not testimony per se, but it's sworn sworn statement. In early 1985, Titan Sports sought to obtain each professional wrestler's assent to the booking agreement. Although Ventura attempts to portray Titan Sports' efforts to obtain his signature to the booking agreement as coercion because Titan presented the booking agreement on a take-it-or-leave-it basis, it is important to understand that his express grant of all his publicity rights were legally required if Ventura was to participate in Titan Sports' licensing program. Pursuant to the terms and conditions of the 1985 booking agreement, Ventura granted Titan Sports all his publicity rights for WWF live events, television programs, and products. And I should note, before I skip ahead to later, that's something else that was at issue, though, which was that that was his wrestler contract. The 1985 contract. So, anyway, move on. In September 1987, at the time I first spoke to Mr. Barry Bloom, Ventura's professional talent agent, Ventura had already completed his wrestling career. When I did speak to Mr. Bloom, the topic of our discussion was Coliseum Video's proposal to do a videotape of Ventura's wrestling matches, not his commentating activities. At the time, I correctly and truthfully represented to Bloom that Titan only paid videotape royalties to the wrestlers featured on the videotape, and that if Ventura agreed to the proposed videotape, Titan would pay such a royalty. Titan Sports conducted the distribution of its programming in the supplemental video market to Coliseum Video, blah, 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 what the videos usually consisted of. Insofar uh, as any wrestler or group of wrestlers were featured, prominently displayed to the videotape, it was Titan's policy to to pay 25% of its net receipts from videotape sales to a talent pool for the wrestler or wrestler's so featured, example, a Colcomania, and then explaining how the re- the reason that the wrestlers on Survivor Series 87 and WrestleMania 4 were all paid was that there was no main event on those shows. Um, and, you know, just a little bit more giving the side, the side and that the commentator is not featured, they're to hype or whatever. 
he claiming he didn't reaffirm it year after year. Okay, here's the thing with all this. And a lot of this just kind of repeats the same thing over and over. Do I think there's some truth to this? Yes. Do I think he's being careful with how he tells the truth? Also, yes, because here's the thing. Not, there's nothing in this affidavit about the fact that they were paying royalties to other people that weren't featured. That's the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think we've gone over this enough. Yeah. All right. So uh, lots. To, this is from The Torch. Lots of talks within WF and media circles this week regarding a woman planning to file criminal charges against several WF wrestlers for an incident late last year in Anaheim, California, after a WF event. Tataka, Chris Chavez, has been suspended from WF, apparently in connection with the alleged incident. Other wrestlers have been mentioned, although not suspended. One wrestler mentioned as a primary offender in the incident was part of the layoff list several weeks back. Speculation says the woman may be bringing this up now, partially because the announcement that WrestleMania will be in Anaheim reminded her of the incident, or provided an opportunity for leverage concerning the media publicity that could result before WrestleMania, given the nature of the hotel room story. Thankfully, we've come far enough that we did not do not need to include the second part of that sentence anymore. Yeah. And okay, do we, I think we should actually talk about this before we talk about the next thing because the next thing, to me, opens an interesting can of worms. Um, even though it's related. Okay, the story, as it's always been, is that the other wrestler in question was Jimmy Del Rey, correct? Mm-hmm. Who was fired several weeks earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it didn't go to court. We don't know exactly what happened. But, by all accounts, Tatanka was considered someone who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and Jimmy Del Rey was never back in the company. Yep. I guess that's kind of the only way we can put it, right? Yeah. Um... But I think we have more to talk about with the next thing. So let's move on to what uh, Wade has here about Oakland. Gene Oakland acknowledged the Tatanka WF situation on the WCW hotline and says something about every time someone drops their pants, there's a lawsuit. Whatever that means. <sighs> Chris, what just happened a week earlier? First Nitro. Yeah. What, ha what allegedly happened the week of the First Nitro? The Hogan um, thing. Hey, at, yeah. 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 Boy, is it interesting who's saying that and at what time, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Especially since she has... I have to pull up now what I have from the K. Kennedy stuff, but I don't think she or a lawyer has reached out to Hogan yet, right? No. I don't think that happens until a few weeks before Hogan sues them, right? Yeah. <sighs> okay. So if Okerlin thinks something happened, who did he hear it from? Did he hear it from Hogan? Or did he hear it through the Minneapolis grapevine? Yeah. Makes I mean, you wonder. Yeah, because, you know, and as we, I think we've talked about when we've talked about this before, um, Hogan did kind of admit once on Howard Stern that something happened sexually. You know, not the consent versus no consent part because he talked about how Lynn, the only thing Linda had on him was a mistake in Minnesota as far as cheating on her. Yeah. Um, but boy, is that something I did not expect to see here? 
that is, I had no memory. I mean, I was getting the torch at the time. I had no memory of that Oakland thing at all. Um, let me see. Okay. The her, I have her counter suit. So that should have the date of everything. Okay. September 2nd is when she says the alleged assault happened. Um, she retained the law firm. Does it say what day they reached out to Hogan? Because the Hogan complaint I have does not have the whole thing, and it does not say what date they reached out that led to him filing this countersuit. Excuse me, he filing this suit. Because he was claiming they were trying to blackmail him. Uh, I don't think I have that. I mean, maybe one of the news stories. Because I think we covered we covered the week the lawsuit was filed, right? Yeah. Yeah, that I would have to pull up to check. Uh, let's see. Affidavit. I do. Is this not? Okay, here we go. The letter they delivered was December 15th. So she has not made contact with them yet. Or neither has her lawyer, as far as we know. Mm-hmm. Pro tip. If you hear that your friend may be being accused of rape anytime soon, don't say this. <laughs> he probably didn't think it was serious. You know? But why? Why is... Well, Coke no Hogan way, what are the odds this is unrelated? Well, I mean, it's probably high, but... that it's You mean that it's related, not unrelated? Well, it's, it's a, he doesn't think Hogan's going to have anything come out about him or anything that's going to happen. Hogan uh, Hogan ain't the talker. I mean, yeah, yes, it's Gina Okerlund, someone of a certain era who would say that type of thing in 1995. Yes. But a week, you know, I mean, a week or less after... Ho you know what Hogan would later of when later Hogan would be accused of raping a woman who didn't but who did, whose lawyers have not reached out to him yet there is it's if it's an if it's a coincidence it's a hell of a coincidence i mean it absolutely and it absolutely is possible it's a coincidence yeah but wow boy does not that that re that's something that I mean, it reads badly now regardless, but with the hindsight of the Hogan stuff and the specifics of where and everything, it reads even worse. Yeah, I mean, it's not good. Yeah. All right, WF, stay with the torch. WF Source indicates Jeff Jarrett and WF Brass are scheduled to actually talk again this week. Last few weeks, I've seen just the exchange of formal legal letters. The plans to actually have conversation against the positive signed towards reconciling. But there's still a long way to go, including egos having to put aside. Looking back on the situation, it doesn't seem like the situation should be irreconcilable. From what can be pieced together, Jarrett was worried about his standing in WF and how he's being portrayed. He was, as originally reported here, supposed to break up with a roadie at In Your House 2 and then wrestle at SummerSlam. However, Jarrett knew the roadie was drug tested for the In Your House event and thought he wouldn't pass. Thus, the following could have been a scenario for Jarrett had he gone along with WF's intended plans. He would lose Intercontinental to Shawn Michaels after not having gained any prominent wins as champion the previous several months. Roddy would break up with him and leave him lying in the mid-ring, even though Roddy was most likely going to be suspended or fired. He was going to be exposed to being a phony singer, and if Roddy did get suspended, he would have no one to feud with, all of which would be taking place in front of his hometown fans in Nashville. 
it seems pretty solid that the road that roadie now just James Armstrong will end up staying in the USWA for the foreseeable future. Okay. I think the main place we've talked about this in detail was the Patreon show about the Jerry Jarrett torch talk from this era. Yeah. Where he kind of gave what he said was Jeff's side, which seems to legitimately to some degree be Jeff's side. I did listen to the episode of Jeff's podcast about this when it came out. Um, I mean, this all seems largely true. And as we discussed when we did the Patreon show, Jeff was absolutely right. Yeah. Jeff Especially was absolutely... when you throw in the drug test thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's review. And one thing not mentioned here, but that Jeff stressed on his podcast, you just put us together. Yeah. The song has some moment, like the song got over the, you know, why not do a few videos and songs first? Why are you rushing this? Exactly. So on top of everything else. So we, it's a, they are rushing this program. They're doing the big angle where he's exposed as a phony in Nashville, which has all sorts of meetings on top of being his hometown. Brian may be failing a drug test and is going to be going away, even though he's still set to lay Jeff out and do the angle. And on top of everything else, it's a backward storyline if you start with, if you start the breakup with Jeff being exposed as a phony. Because then Rhodey's already gotten his comeuppance. I mean, Jeff's gotten his comeuppance from Rhodey. And also, like, one thing that's become clear about Jeff's personality from the podcast is that he's very much a read-the-tea-leaves guy, but that maybe he's overly logical about it and is not taking people's emotions and stuff into account and other X-factors. Like, he's thinking, they're spending this money on this expensive video, you know? We've only been together a few months. This is getting momentum. You know, they're going to want to do more. He's thinking like that. Or, you know, in 2001, he freely admits he did not think Vince was shoot-firing him on the last Nitro. At the time, he was like, it's on TV. I know I'm getting paid through the end of my contract, and it didn't become clear until maybe a couple months later to him that, no, he was not going to WWE. Because he's like, it was on TV. I was one of the top stars. Uh, when WCW closed, you know, why not? But so, he he held Vince up for money, and, and, you know, and Vince Vince holds that held that grudge for many many years. And remember, though, in fairness to Jeff, though, with that, Jeff was not asking for money that he was not due. He was asking for the money he would be due on the pay per view because he feared they would not pay him after the fact. Yeah. So it's I get but I get but I agree with you. Like that was short sighted on his part to not consider that and how they saw that. Yeah. It really is a shame that they had they had this path they were on to what easily would have been the best thing in the company all year. And they were I guess the best way be to excuse me. The best way to put it would be too clever by half on this one. Yeah. All right. Torch. WFL to press conference in Winnipeg, Manitoba, on September 13th, and announced the lineup for In Your House Four, which is different from what was originally announced in the, in the area. 
The headliners were Diesel versus Bulldog and Sean versus Dean Douglas. The rest of the card featured Undertaker versus William Mercy, Razor Run against Sid, Bamba Big against Gold Dust, Hakushi against Skip, Smoking Guns against Yokozuna and Owen Hart, and Bret Hart with two members of the CFL's Winnipeg Blue Bombers at ringside against Isaac Yankum with Jerry Lawler. Only five of those six matches are on pay-per-view with a local involvement in the Bret Hart match that probably won't air. Michaels, Paul Bear, and Ted DiBiase are at the press conference and all introduced their theme music. During a local interview, Michael said he plans to wrestle until he's 35 and said that Jeff Jarrett left the WF because he was scared of him. Some context for that, by the way, we should note they were working Sean's age down at the time. Yes. Because, okay, let's see. Sean at this time is, what, 29? Or is he, a little, is he in his 30s already? Uh, Okay, he just turned 30. Just turned 30. And I believe they were... In media stuff, putting him in his mid-twenties? I don't remember that, but, I mean, he... They worked his age down a little. That I definitely remember, but I don't remember exactly how much. I don't remember that story. It was in the Torch. I remember specifically Wade mentioning some media where they worked his age down. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he doesn't wrestle... Well, he wrestles later on, but uh, he was retired... When he turned 35, yeah. So his initial Before, retirement is he's still still only 32 for the initial retirement, and then when he comes back, he is 37. Yeah. So, and, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Brett thing wasn't on the pay-per-view, which, you know, is to be expected to considering. Yeah, and, okay, so the advertised matches before the injuries were... Diesel Bulldog, Sean Douglas, Mabel Undertaker, Goldust Bigelow, and what was the fifth match? Oh, tag titles. Mm-hmm. Came sm- smoking guns against Kid and Razor. Yeah, and Bigelow and the Goldust match became Janetti. Do you realize how much better a show that is, even with all the changes, if Hakushi versus Skip is on the card? Well, it's a good undercard match. Yeah. And, you know, this show, between the injuries and everything else, it went from a pretty good-looking two-hour pay-per-view to being one of the worst WWF pay-per-views of all time. Yeah. It is what it is. Yeah. And the one thing I remember that always sticks out, too, is in the torch, in his review, Bruce Mitchell being like, can you use Bret Hart as the substitute of Sean? For Sean? He was there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, would have would have helped for sure. Uh, did but, Sean get beat up again? Is that's what that way I'm hearing sirens? Uh, <laughs> maybe I don't know. I don't know. We're, uh, you're not in your normal place, so that's why I'm in the same basic neighborhood. But yeah. All right, uh, Raw. Oh, oh man, yawn real quick. All right, Raw. Put a preview of the two minute matches and a review of the history behind them. McMahon said they were throwing out the first pitch of the new fall season, and today's show was so good, Cal Ripken was calling sick to see it. Very timely line there by Vince. That Cal had just broken the all-time uh, consecutive game record by Lou Gehring uh, before Raw. So, this is, I'm trying to figure out what day. I want to say September the 5th. Yeah, either 5th or 6th, one of the two. Yeah, 6th. So... And Raw's in the eleven. So, of course, Raw's tape, but they're doing the the audio in in the studio, so they're they're current. 
The new show open aired with a helicopter flying from the moon and footage from the roof of Titan Towers. We talked about that on the show we did about the week before, where there was talk about the secret taping, and then the newsletters thought that they were going to tape Raw on the roof of Titan Towers. Yes. No, not so fast. Which, by the way, they probably should have done that. <laughs> At least once. been different. No, but also doing the emergency taping to combat the Nitro. Yeah, probably. I mean, if you, especially if you would have had the cool look with the show on the roof. And and then it all ends up being moot because the, it looks good, but the new theme song sucked. And well, it's only about a month, month and a half before they go back to the old theme song in a new opening montage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. So, a great thing to do at a time where you really need the money. <laughs> Especially. Vincent Lawler opened the program. As Razor Ramon made his way to ringside, they replayed the Ramon Dean Douglas single from SummerSlam. Lawler hyped Ramon's feud with Douglas, who later talked about Bulldog constantly being passed over for title shots. Commentary went dead for a minute, in order, and another one is becoming a new tradition of technical glitches for the WF. Either that, or they had second thoughts, at least at the last moment, or something they had said in mini commentary briefly. Well, that's what happens when you have uh, the commentary like this. Well, also, the, 1995, for some reason, did have more production glitches than a lot of periods in the WWF, and I wonder if that's because of the budget issues. Sounds that way. If four minutes Bulldog was on offense, they broke to a commercial. As they returned, Rage kicked that pin attempt at the body slams. At 7.30, Ramon began his comeback, catching Bulldog come off the ropes. Ramon scored near fall. At about nine minutes, Dean Douglas interfered, hit Ramon from behind. One, two, three, Kid ran to the ring to make a save. Kid developed top rope, meant to hit Douglas, but Douglas moved, and Kid landed on Razor. Kid then tried to save Razor from Bulldog's attack, just like Razor helped Kid against Douglas on Superstars. The referee DQ'd Razor for Kid's interference. As he went to commercial, Bulldog was beating the Kid. And then McMahon interviewed Razor. Lawler from the broadcast we blew McMahon and blamed Kid for causing Razor to match. And then Kid came out. So let's go to the clip. Welcome back, everybody. Right, and now McMahon has gone up into the ring with those two losers. So we got three match. losers in the ring. A couple of weeks ago, match, took yeah. unbelievable sums out of you. The match with we'll Davey Boy seen. Smith, the British Bulldog, yeah, a used, moment ago. Used him as a fire Dean hydrant. Douglas, a thorn in your side. The man whom you will face at In Your House. That's and of right. course, Dean, Dean, Dean take Douglas, school. no stranger to you either. One, two, three, kid, and a matchup recently last weekend on Superstars. Please don't compare uh, the intellect of Dean Douglas to that of one, two, three, this, kid, uh, whose IQ is the same as a shoe size. Making reference to the intellect. Of Dean Douglas. He's and brilliant. What about it? I don't know whether here tonight, whether or not he proved his intellect or not, but he came he down did. here, interfered in the matchup. Tell me Come on, you're man. Go ahead and say it. You gotta say the kid just raised the match. Just watched your back. And from there, Dean Douglas leaves. Well, you're talking about all this stuff. Yeah, I didn't realize he was gonna talk when I got on. And he disqualifies Razor. Razor. My point is, is it se we've seen this in the past where. There is a talking segment they're clearly not happy with, and they have Lawler hammer the point home in post on commentary. So I'm guessing that's what this is. Yeah. Loses the match. Right. Because, because of the kid. Of your interference. Good, Obviously, good. Dean Douglas unquestionably would feel at this moment he has a superior intellect. He is superior. One second, Vince. 
I cost him the match. Right. What about last week when he came down and cost me the match? Huh, Razor? What about that? Uh-oh, wait a minute. This is getting good. Yeah, I'm Razor. not saying this was intentional. I was simply talking about the intellect of, of one Dean Douglas. The fact of the matter one. is... No, let's get back to the other match. Come Dean on. Douglas. I didn't cost him the match, Vince. Razor, I didn't cost you the match. Last week, you cost me the match. You know something? You always treat me like a little kid, Razor. You know? You know, you're one of my best friends. We look like he's going to throw a temper tantrum. You don't give me any respect. Nobody took me seriously when I beat you the first time. Hey, wait a minute. That's right. He did beat him. That's right. I got to beat you again. Yeah, go ahead, kid. Next week, I'll beat you again, Razor. Yeah, what about that, Greaseball? What about it? Next week. <laughs> this is great. Oh, wait a minute. No, he did. He Aren't did, McMahon. Are getting a little carried away here? I mean, all because perhaps of Dean Douglas. Are you challenging Razor Ramon to a match next week? He's watched your back. Yeah. yeah. Exactly right, this is Vince. It. Razor Ramon. He's afraid of you, kid. If it's going to take for me to beat you one more time. <laughs> For you to give me Look some Ramon, respect he's sweating already. and not treat me like a little kid anymore. The next week, Razor, as much as a good friend of you, as you are to me, I will beat you next week. Wow. Listen to this. What about it, Razor? Huh? You scared of the kid? I love it. The Razor. Kid. How do you react to now this? You know, McMang, anything can happen. In the WWF. Yeah, and you can get beat by the kid again. I make history at SummerSlam with a ladder match that they will talk about forever. Yeah, and you proved tonight you'll never be the same. The <laughs> British Bulldog out here making a lot of waves. Yeah, making you a loser. You Dean lost to him. Douglas, some bookworm wants to take the bad guy to school. That's right, because you need it. You're so stupid. And on top of all that, my little buddy, the one, two, three kid who I made famous. Yeah, by a loss to him. (laughs) Wants a piece of Razor Amon. One more time. I can't blame him. You're on the world's well, biggest losing Chico, streak. If you want it, huh? If they want it, huh? Huh? Say it. Oh if boy. You want it? Who cares what he wants? Then you got it. Oh, the bad guy, Razor oh, Ramon. Razor Ramon accepting the challenge of the kid. They are the champ. Okay. At Lawler's first, so overbearing there. Yes, but it's also very obviously Vince breathing down his neck in edit one that he's saying all that. So at first yeah. I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, wait a second. What is Vince taking issue with that he's doing the heavy-handed Lawler commentary over it? And then once Kid starts talking, I realize it and Ra- Razor's response cemented it. Vince did not like that Waltman did not go obvious heel to the point that Razor, by being Razor, came off much more heelish than him. Mm-hmm. 
did you have the same reaction to that? He did. And I think that's why Vince tried to touch it up, because this doesn't work for what the actual angle is. No. It needs to be Kid being bratty and stuff and being the character that he's going to be when he turns. And he's just not doing that. He comes off pretty reasonable. And of the two, Razor's the one who comes off like the asshole, which is not the idea. No. So, not great. But we all, well, we also need to remember there's a whole lot of weird shit going on with the click and Vince at the time as well. Oh, yes. I mean, okay. The match with the official turn, that the Sid Razor matches, when does that air? I don't remember. It's within, it's within a month or so, right? Yeah, I don't remember air dates. <laughs> okay, but I'm just saying roughly, roughly. It's fairly soon. The thing that people never remember about that anymore is that one of the reasons for the click consternation... And a sign of how bad things were getting with them and Vince is that Vince was going to use an existing non-title Sid Razor match, you know, once Razor gets the IC title from the Dean Douglas thing, obviously. So it's at least October, if not early November, to take the belt off of Razor without his knowledge. They taped it as a non-title match with Kid as referee and fast counting and doing the turn and Sid winning. Then... They started advertising it leading up to Raw as a title match. And then once Scott Hall and whoever got wind of it and they smoothed things over, they had Gorilla Monsoon announce that because he was skeptical over Kid's recent behavior, that he was making it a non-title match again. So you get what I'm saying? Yeah. We're only like six weeks away from that. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot going on. They announced Men on the Mission versus Owen and Yoko for next week's Raw, which would be a heel versus heel in that regard. Spoken Guns will beat Brad Rafford and Brooklyn Brawler. And then we get Goldust, who uh, has a segment here where he talks about The Undertaker. So let's go to Goldust, shall we? About how many weeks in are we of these? It's not long. Uh, like a month. Okay. Kill the brain, and you kill the ghoul. Night of the Living Dead, 1968. Just for context, since people can't see this, this is the promo where he actually is in the hills in Hollywood and overlooking the city at night, as opposed mm -hmm. to the green screen stuff. And he's wearing a funny hat. Yes. Outside of my magical, mystical land... There are evil, dark ghouls that walk astray in the darkness. They call themselves the creatures of the nights, blanketed in purple and black. Their spirits hypnotically walk the earth. They follow the footsteps of their leader, the one Grim Reaper. Undertaker. You see, gold sheds no darkness. Look at it. Gold only sheds light. The 
black evil cloud that now hovers over the World Wrestling Federation will soon be sent to the heavens, never to be heard from again. Courtesy of Gold Dust. Oh my goodness, two Wang Fu, eat your heart out, stay tuned everybody, Charlie Michaels, the Intercontinental Championship again, Psycho Zen! That's the best part. Uh, do you want to explain the two Wong Fu reference for people that may be young and don't get it? So I believe it was that summer, right, where the movie To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar came out, which was about a group of drag queens played by Patrick Swayze, John Leguizamo, and was it Wesley Snipes? Wesley Snipes, yeah. And, I mean, what's actually kind of funny about it, I mean, he's... He's not actually in drag, per se. No! That's not what drag is. No. But anyway, not that Vin- I'd expect Vince to make that distinction in 1990. Oh, he's got long hair, and uh, he's, got, he's, wearing, he's wearing that hat. He's androgynous. Yes, but the the big thing here, I think, is that this is the first glimpse we get of this being something that could work. Yeah. Taking him away from the cheap green screen. There's some ambiance. It's still kind of weird. You're still not sure what they're doing. But there's something there. Yeah. And look, whatever anyone wants to say about Dustin Rhodes, he deserves props for having no fear going into this. Oh, he went full force. He definitely went full force into it. Absolutely. God bless him. Probably an heir to Isaac Yankum Lawler's attack on Bret Hart's SummerSlam. Isaac Yankum then won a squash match. Then man asked Lawler why he was suspended for its attack, and Lawler says because Bret Hart insulted his mother. <laughs> Todd Penn goes to In Your House update. Penn goes about Owen and Yoko for has DQ and then sells on purpose and then grill him on soon. Declared if someone de- gets DQ'd, they will lose their title. And then Shawn Michaels beats Sid to retain the IC title. During the ring introductions, Barry Dudinsky plays Shawn Michaels' merchandise. In a short sound, by Michaels in the locker room, he walked past a ladder and flinched. Nice touch. That is cute. Uh, Michaels went on offense early, although Sid eventually dropped Michaels' face first in the ring apron. Man, man, and Lawler heavily played the Indian main event. Michaels almost counted out to Sid stomped him at ringside. Sid closed on Michaels and applied a bear hug. Sid choked Sam Michaels when Michaels made a comeback and scored the pitfall to two super kicks. Michael celebrating the ring, doing a strip tease, taking off one layer of tights and tugging at the final layer. And then Doc interviewed Sean and Diesel afterwards. They showed clips next week's Raw to close the show. So there you go. Raw's uh, efforts against Nitro in their first head-to-head battle. Not great. No, but, I mean, they, they, they guess when, you know, they got Sean and Sid. I mean, that's kind of a big match, so... Yeah. Yeah. And we already talked about all the ratings and stuff in the WCW section, so we won't, we won't go over that again here. Uh, told that former USWA wrestlers Doug Basham and Susan Sapphire were the creatures of the night. Hmm. I don't think that was Doug Basham at all the t- all the time, was it? I I'd have to see video I don't to see which so. one would be Doug Basham. Cuz even, yeah. even if he had yeah. even if he was clean-shaven, Doug Basham's a pretty distinct looking guy. 
Yeah, I don't think they were the same all the time. I mean, well, remember, too, I think there were two, forget if there were two women or just two guys that they switched out, but remember the internet bullshit thing was always people thinking they were Shane and Stephanie? Oh, that was a thing that everybody thought first, but... Yeah. No, but my point like, being, I don't think anyone would think... Like, based on the, having the guys who people thought was Shane, I really don't think that would be Doug Basham. Yeah, it didn't even look like either one of them. Also, the little I've seen from this era, I, I obviously could have regrown it, but I, I remember Doug always having the goatee. Yeah, I mean... Trying to find a picture of the creature tonight right now. Okay. Let's see here. Now, again, right. I think there were two different guys who they switched out. All right, I'm opening the image now. All right, Bix, get ready. I'm sending it to you in the Skype chat. Okay. Let's see. There is no way that that is Lyle Douglas Basham. All right. Well, let's let's look at this one. All right. And I don't remember this, what Susan Sapphire looks like. So this is an earlier one. This is before they got too deep in the gimmick. This is before they had more makeup. You mean? Yes. That you're sending me now. I see it a little more, but I still don't think that's Doug Basham. Alright, well, to to uh, concrete this, here is Doug Basham. 1995 Doug Basham, you mean? No. Now, oh, just just, just the, the best quality photo you could find? It's the first one that pops up. <sighs> I see enough that it wouldn't surprise me if that guy was Doug Basham, but I don't think it's him. But I said, I, you know what, I, I, it's the nose. That's what looks similar. Uh, and Susan Sapphire. All right. Not a good picture of her anywhere. So, oh, well. Sapphire comes up. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's definitely not her. So, there you go. All right. Uh, latest on the injury situation. Gold does not injure his hip, but worked most of the sh- his shots two weekends ago. So, it's incorrect. He went home after television. One, two, three, kid injured his hand and missed a few shows Labor Day weekend, but was back this past weekend. And Diesel scheduled to return on September the 15th. Now, the Sean Diesel thing for ESPN Baseball Tonight was postponed again, again until October. I have no memory of them doing anything for ESPN on Baseball Tonight. And by that time, baseball was in the World Series. So, yeah, I don't know nothing about that. All right, Michael's Torch has this. Michael's interviewed on a Toronto radio station on September 11th, I the September 17th WF event in Toronto. He was overly critical of WCW, but this interview took place before Eric Bischoff's bashing of him on Nitro. But he did take his shots. He talked about blading and said that was something that was done years ago. The WF has brought wrestling out of the dark ages. He added again, you'll find other Mickey Mouse promotions doing that kind of stuff. But self-degrading, self-inflicting wounds to myself personally and the others in the World Wrestling Federation is obsolete. We are about family entertainment. We don't want moms and dads bringing their children to the shows and being grossed out. When asked about whether he wanted to become a crossover star like Hulk Hogan, Michael said, well, let's see. I'd like to, but I'd like to be good at it, though. He said people stood behind Hogan for years only to find out he was a liar. I'm not saying that to be mean or whatever, but it's the truth. 
The Hogan thing sounds like Sean. The first part is so Vince. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's definitely coach. Coaching. God, I want them to hear my hand up your ass. <laughs> yeah, that you, you can tell the difference in tone. That, that That's obviously him being coached. Yeah, I mean, here's the number one reason you know this. An actual wrestler who broke in through the territories would never refer to that as... I mean, he didn't use the term self-mutilation like Vince did, but he would never use the word self-degrading, self-inflicting wounds to myself. Not just the territories. He grew up in San Antonio. <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, the bloody territory. His mentor is Jose Lothario. So, yeah. Not so fast. I, I'm surprised he didn't make a reference to Ted Turner's promotion. <laughs> yeah. Alright, Torch said, make an appearance of America Online this week. We're Dean Douglas and Doc Hendricks. Both acknowledge their past. Hendricks talked about the free birds. Douglas talked about his role in ECW and said he understands the need for a national promotion to be more family-oriented. Well, good on them, I guess, for uh, not being 100% in character. Shawn Michaels, kiss my grits. <laughs> Crowds have been weak the past two weeks, with most of the smaller cities... With Undertaker versus Kama and Michaels versus Sid headlining Canada, and David versus Bigelow headlining in Florida. Well, what the let's talk hell about is that? Well, let's talk about that tour, shall we? The Florida tour was one of the most disastrous in the history of WWF. Aside from a crowd of about two thousand in Jacksonville on September the tenth. Hello, I just heard something hit your mic, and then yeah, sorry, I'm back. I don't okay. know. I, I, hit, I hit a button by mistake. Uh, none of the shows cracked a thousand. Oh, we're just leaving yeah. that in. Okay. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> None of the shows cracked a thousand, and the two dates were canceled. Goldust won up being cheered in most cities because when he took off his wig, everyone re recognized him as Dustin Rhodes, and you can't boo a Rhodes in Florida. The main events are scheduled as Razor Ramon versus Mabel. However, he missed the entire tour with back injury, so I had a nerve problem, and Mo took his place, losing every city. Mabel's expected back for TV on September 25th. One of the two cities were also canceled due to poor advances on the Canadian tour. Now, Kissimmee, Florida, on September 11th. The Torch has a report here. Hakushi over Rad Radford. Savia Vega over Duke the Dumpster Drossy. Bertha Bay over Lunger Blaze, where a feet on the roast to retain the women's title. Bulldog over Bam Bam Bigelow. Goldust over Bob Holly. Jacob and Eli Blue over the Bushwhackers. And Razor Ramon over Sir Moe with a small package in the main event. The night four in Jacksonville had the same results. Stream B shows in Florida drew abysmally under a thousand most nights, and the tour was canceled due to the poor turnouts. Wow. What a shitty house show card that is. Uh, did they My expect God. this to draw? Well, I guess they thought Razor and Mabel would. Uh, and we don't have any attendance for any of these, by the way. Oh? Well? Okay, wait a second. What's our week covering again here? Well, it's about 2,000 in Jacksonville, um, and none cracked 1,000. But what's our week covering here? Uh, the 8th through the 14th. Okay, so at least on historyofwwe.com, Orlando on the 11th, 600. That's Kissimmee. Oh, yeah, it says, a, a, yeah, wait a second. 
Is Kissimmee in the Orlando market, though? Mm-hmm. Orlando Kissimmee, yes. Okay. So that did 600. Lakeland, the next night, want to take a guess? Uh, about 800. Not next night, excuse me, two nights later. 450. Mm. And then on the 14th, 900 at the Manatee Civic Center. So I guess they barely outdrew Beach Brawl. <laughs> barely. And then just to see how this company's two different worlds at the time, right after our week on the 15th, weak for the city, but strong relative to everything else at the time, Montreal over 5,800. Yeah. And then Toronto a few days later, 5,500. Canada was one of their hot hot bases as always. Yes. And then uh, with Pat Patterson having just retired again, poor uh, PCO uh, has his schmoz and is basically done. Yeah. All right, Superstars. Torch told about new Superstars. It showed off a slightly new look with similar graphics package and a new opening similar to the Fox Music video or similar to the Monday Night Football and Smoking Mountain Wrestling openings. Jerry Lawler replaced Doc Kendricks on Color Commentary. Highlight Music Video now closed the program. Mania now features a different set. Top Egg now films in segments in the studio set with more traditional backdrops. Otherwise, it's not that much different on that show. Action Zone, only when the most changes, is now patterned after the NFL pregame shows air at the same time it airs. Bengal and Doc host the program. Jim Ross's only on-air role is hosting a weekly Raw's Report segment, which isn't breaking any new ground in terms of content based on the first week. The set is sharp, with a glass table and a blue backdrop. It's segment-heavy with highlights of matches from superstars and various high-maintenance post-reduced features, plus fast facts like bumpers, paid commercial breaks. Certainly markedly different from the original philosophy of Action Zone, which was providing an alternative to the talk show desk format of the NFL pregame shows. But if you can't beat them, join them. And then Action Zone becomes the tiny doc show. Yeah, they're, they're, they're wacky, wackiness. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, it, it's that Christmas 95 show. Oh, my God. It really was something, though, how the original idea of Action Zone was literally the NFL pregame shows suck and are boring. Here's some action. And then and then, and then they become like an NFL pregame show. <laughs> um, I guess the one good thing is you would have the Action Zone exclusive matches. And, well, uh, originally, would... yes, but they get rid of those here. I thought they still maybe did one. No, no. When it became a recap show, that was done. Because remember, Challenge then, is gone too. Yeah. And then they did the um, the thing where they had the wrestlers uh, do their talk on, on the camcorder. They asked the questions. Those were always entertaining. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, because sometimes you get the wrestlers out of character. Yeah. So. Yeah, Duke, Duke Jersey came across well in those. I'm not sure what that yeah. says about anything. Oops. Didn't mean for that to start playing. But, well, since I don't think we've ever played it, let, let's hear and see the uh, original version of the Superstars theme from this era, shall we? Here we go. Heartbreaker. Englishman. 
I hate that. I mean, it's obviously they're trying to rip off Hank Williams Jr. and Monday Night Football. Well, also what I was going to say is, ah, uh, yes, Vince, with his hatred of everything Southern, gets a fake Bocephus. Yeah. <laughs> Not good. Okay. And this this lasts, though, until the end of syndicated superstars, pretty much. Surprisingly. Yes. I never liked it, uh, but I do find some of it funny, especially Bulldog Englishman. Yeah. All right, so from the September 9th episode of Superstars, we have promos from Sid and Sean to hype up their Raw show. And Sid, uh, Sid's quite funny here. So let's go to... Sean, great technical wrestler. Yes, you are. A hip-shaking idiot. Yeah, yes, you are. <laughs> hip-shaking idiot. A fool for taking this invitation to dance with the devil. Yes, you are. A chance that hell... I just said, no, you don't. Big Sid, the heartbreak kid's gonna put you down. One, two, three. And finally close the final chapter on his deep dark. Welcome back, everyone. Yes, indeed. Thanks, Sean. Okay, whoever produced Sid's promo there deserved a raise. <laughs> that was fantastic. Hip shaking idiot. <laughs> and then goes into the yelling still. It works. Yeah. And then also for Superstars, we get Dean Douglas making his full debut. So let's go to that clip. Having uh, tremendous problems now. Against Dean the kid. Douglas hopefully will yep. end this matchup. Two and make it. Come on. Go ahead. What do you got to say about this? Is, is, there a... any, is there anything higher than an A? Plus? Wait a minute. This capacity crowd chanting Razor. Off the rope and a clothesline. And Dean Douglas, look at this. Now, finally, we'll put an end to this. Two and make it. Hey, come on. Hey, wait a minute. The goes coming down the aisle. Oh, no. Come on. Here we go. Here comes the bad guy, Razor Ramon. And Razor's had an incident. He's seen his friend of one, two, three kid pulling it up in there. The kid can't take any more. And Razor, I believe, wants to put it into this. And this is what Kid was talking about in his promo. Dean Douglas trying to humiliate the one, two, three kid. And the kid still is almost. He's got a victory over Dean Douglas. Yeah, but there's your winner, Dean Douglas. Take the Razor Ramon. Uh-oh. On the kid, all upset. Over his loss to Dean Douglas, he has nothing to be upset about. I would be. Like he's upset with Razor. What's going on here? Like his mom had to come down to school and bail him out of trouble. Stop it. There's some bizarre goings on here. Speaking of, okay, um, man, the more things, the more the more things change, the more they stay the same in that company. Because, huh? Isn't it something the chain instantly gets heat, and in his first TV match, he doesn't bump on every punch like they want people to, like they want <laughs> heels to. I guess I should say. Yeah. Because okay, look, 
it's the house style. I get it. I think it's bullshit to have to try to force people into that to take all those extra bumps. But boy, did it look weird seeing Scott Hall do the Razor Ramon punches in a row and not see the heel bumping on every one of them. Yeah. Because that's how we're used to seeing that Razor Ramon spot look. Mm-hmm. But that's the reason why. It, it, Shane is not wrong for not bumping on every punch if no one told him to. But once it's the house style, you can see why it looks out of place when someone does not follow it. But again, it's just yeah. like, it's such bullshit. Like, because there's if that got him heat, there's no way anyone actually told him he was getting heat over it. You know? Yeah. It's it's the usual it's that's how the bullshit that bullshit always is in that company. How often do you think anyone gets heat and are actually told that they're getting why they're getting heat with the other wrestlers and and the office? Think of every story we've heard from Jericho to Douglas to DDP. So much of the time no one tells them what they're doing wrong. Yeah. It's just you know, high school bullshit. I don't know. And, on top of everything else, I'm guessing that it wasn't just the delivery of the promo on Raw that lit Vince to tinker with it. It was probably also that I don't know if he was actively booking this angle or whatever. Razor absolutely looks like he just stepped in and cost Kid the match. Like, yeah, Douglas was doing the pull him up at two thing, but that's it. Yeah. And it's not like he was at a particularly vulnerable moment when Razor came in. So it's too bad that they have what should be a good storyline with Kid and Razor here and are just ruining it. Mm-hmm. And also the way that Douglas is kind of just in the background of their program. You can see a lot of fingerprints of current WWE here in a way you can't with a lot of the older stuff. Yes counterproductive jumbled booking weird punishments just all that like you can see it here it's kind of interesting it's been there for years I mean, it's been there for years it's the, that's the way they've all the way they've done business it's just the cracks have become more obvious as vince gets older etc well yeah both mania on september 9th and the debut of action zone on september 10th the new action zone each did 1.3 ratings for the past weekend, Mania did a .9, Action Zone 1.3. So after two weeks, the ratings for the new ET Life format are considerably down from the old format. Yeah. Fans don't want to see that crap. Yeah, and they probably should have just done enough at one of the tapings to have an exclusive match each week or something. Yeah. That If you don't want to do a whole show, you don't want to do a full slate of tapings after you got rid of Challenge, okay, fine. I get that. They should have at least had exclusives. Yeah. The Fox special with Lawrence Taylor versus Bam and Bigelow and Shawn Michaels versus Deez airs on September 30th at 11 p.m. in some markets and midnight in others, depending upon if the local Fox affiliate carries an 11 p.m. newscast. What markets would Fox have an 11 p.m. newscast in? Uh, none that I know of. <laughs> I guess maybe in certain time zones? Like maybe in Mountain there is an 11 Fox News? I don't know. I wouldn't think so. Yeah, I'm just thinking out loud. But anyway, um, the whole tra- we've talked about it a little before. The whole trajectory of that WrestleMania 11 special is so bizarre. 
So it just sneaks up on everyone back in early summer or whenever it was. When seemingly Vince had a deal with NBC, but it was so short notice or whatever that he didn't actually advertise it as anything. He said, do you remember what it was? He said, he said something like that the top matches from WrestleMania would be airing. What was it like this Saturday after the game on the Proud is the Peac- a Peacock Network or something like that, he said? Yeah. It was very strange. And then whatever happened, it fell through. They had some weird dealings with the networks in this era. Very yeah. weird. I, 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 I don't understand how this all happened. I don't either. I don't think it was ever explained really how the NBC thing came together and blew up either. I don't think there were ever any real details. Yeah, it's all, it was all very weird. Yeah. All right, uh, Torch, Raw's this weekend only, uh, not only had the handicap man, the, the WS Raw this weekend not only had the handicap being taped two weeks ago, whereas Nitro was live, it was taped the Nitro SummerSlam with no rest, and the wrestlers were not informed of the angles ahead of time and had no time to work out their plans. Both factors led to a blow-up backstage by Razor, who was upset and frustrated with the circumstances. He calmed down quickly, though, and then get into a fight with Paul Orndorff. <laughs> Boy, this certainly sounds like 2021 WWE. Yeah. No one inside WWE has indicated, this is still a torch, has indicated that Jenny Tyler could take him raw live more, than, more often than once a month in response to Nitro. If Eric Bischoff reveals finishes of Raw matches every week, they may have to respond somehow. The only definitive reaction by WWE after Nitro thus far is the decision to move Lawler back to Raw. He'll also continue to do superstars, well, Doc Henderson is just your action zone. Another interview word for at least the ne- next 10 weeks. My man didn't want Raw to take a step down in terms of announcing just as the Monday Night War began. As a result, Lawler will miss most, if not all, the next 10 Monday Night USWA cards in Memphis because voiceovers of the Raw programs are always done on Monday afternoons in order to add all the current event references to make the show seem live. Hendricks also works behind the scenes overseeing and coaching the wrestler interviews. Yeah, I mean, Lawler was not announced on Raw for a while because he was working Memphis every Monday night. And because they did the voiceovers on Monday. And that's one of the main reasons why he's not heavily involved in the Smoky Mountain feud, too. You know? Other than the other reasons that we we talked about before in the show. But, yeah, he couldn't be there. You know? They, They would get him here and there, but, yeah, he wasn't there every week. Right, he can't do Sundays because that's his travel day. Suddenly, you have yeah. less options for someone like that. Yeah, and then th- there's this to close out. Shawn Michaels and Diesel were said to be fired up last week after the shots WCW took on Nitro the day of, at the WF. Imagine Michaels' state of mind this week after getting the after the green belt comment by Bischoff. Well, being that Shawn does not actually have a martial arts background, the only reason he would actually care is. If it's, it's because he's 1995 Shawn Michaels. Yeah. Which I could still see happening, but only because he's 1995 Shawn Michaels. Mm-hmm. All right. That is it for us this week. We will return next week in between the sheets. And we'll go back to 1990. Ooh, one of my favorite and again, ever. And again, no guests next week. Oh, why is that? I just didn't feel it. All right, so World Wrestling Federation, we have news on WF and Fox Network. Oh. And also how that affects Fox's negotiations with Kongi Sports. Oh, boy. 
We also have uh, news on WF and their suit against the New Jersey State Athletic Commission. Plus a Saturday night main event taping in Toledo. Talk about featuring a hot angle with Ted DiBiase and Dustin Rhodes. And we have the debut of Saba Simba as well as Vince McMahon crashing the Mr. Olympia contest. Oh my God, yes. And a certain favorite wrestler of our show is in a dilemma over a job offer that is presented him, allegedly. So we'll talk about that. We also have the uh, great Muta in New Japan and a bloodbath against Hiroshi Hase. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about SWS, FMW. They're starting to get hot. Conan makes his Arena Mexico debut. And the way our week's set up, we have an eight-day week. So we also had the big anniversario show featuring Ryo De Alisco Jr. and Cien Caras hey. in one of the most legendary matches of the era. The record and arena-breaking match. Yes. Also, we'll have um, more on Kongi Sports as Joe Pettacino talked to the torch. Okay. We have Joel Goodhart, Joel Goodhart running a tri-state show in Philadelphia. So we'll talk about that. Big show featuring Jerry Lawler and Terry Funk in the main event. We also have news on George Scott's NAWA, other indies. We got um, USWA the, the turn, announcing a tournament to crown the new unified champion. Plus, uh, Eddie Gilbert having some major issues on television. So we'll talk about that. Um, we got news from uh, the other ter- the independents. NWA. Very interesting business story in NWA revolving a uh, situation involving internal broadcasting systems and a major player leaving. I went in depth on this one, folks, so be prepared. This is an right. interesting, interesting story. We also have an update on uh, Sting's appearance at John Arezzi's convention from a few weeks earlier. Hey, I was at that. We have uh, all kind of other television news. Including uh, Sting and Black Scorpion uh, doing a couple of angles. We'll have that. Our bar debuts as the Juicer. We'll talk oh, about that. Well. We got news on uh, Tony Zane and an unfortunate incident that happened to him uh, after a TV taping, which he worked as the Black Scorpion. One of the Master Blasters decides to take a bus home to Detroit. News on Ric Flair. But our main story in the week, The Return. Of world class championship wrestling. Oh boy! As Kevin, as Kevin Von Erich has taken over Dallas, as Jerry Jarrett has left town, and uh, we have a big rundown of this from Steve Beverly and Dave Meltzer. All that and more next week on Between the Sheets. Did you consult Texas Roundup, or will that be my job as we're recording? Well, I, I think I did pretty good with uh, with Steve and uh, Dave here because I'm so, pretty sure there is some fir- there is a first hand account of that first world class show in Texas Roundup that we have. But anyway, all that more next week on Between the Sheets. All right, Bix, thanks as always. You're the rock of the show. This is Chris saying so long from the peak day of Georgia.
Patreon special edition episode number 59. I'm your host Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host David Bixenspan. And basically we're going to talk about a topic that we touched on here and there on the Between the Sheets shows, but definitely not like this. And this is the perfect type of concept, this Patreon series, to do a show like this, as this is a... Goes through quite a few years here. This this uh in, this subject in particular. Yeah, pretty much. Let me look at the data. Last thing we have here. Yeah, over four years. Just over four <laughs> years. The show is uncom- encompassing. Yes, and probably could have went longer, but actually, yeah, I'm looking been... at it now. It's about four and a half from when it actually yeah, starts. But... Four four year, a little over four years from. No, excuse me. Five, uh, yeah, four. No, I'm doing it wrong. A little over three from what we used as the anniversary to peg it to over four and a half from when the notes start. Yeah, so uh, long drawn out stuff here, but uh, a very interesting subject as we're going to talk about Superstar Billy Graham versus the World Wrestling Federation, which seemed like it's been going on and off for 30 years. (laughs) <laughs> but we're only going to focus on these years in particular. Yes, and the reason we're going with August ni- August as the anniversary to peg it to is that that's when he announces his lawsuit against the World Wrestling Federation. But we'll get to that later because he doesn't exactly file it right away. Yeah, but it starts back further than that. All right, now, week of July 15th, Arsenio Hall Show. 
July 16th, Hulk Hogan, during his uh, legendary interview with Arsenio Hall, talked about superstar Billy Graham and Bruno Sammartino and uh, all the hubbub they've been drumming up about steroid usage. And, uh, yeah, he's got some stuff to get off his chest. So let's go to the Hulkster. Have you ever heard of this? I, I saw a guy on a program named Billy Graham, not the Reverend, but mm-hmm. a wrestler. What's up with him? Well, superstar Billy Graham, apparently, um, in the 70s, was one of the top wrestlers, one of the top draws. I was a big fan of his. And he just came out during all these drug trials and admitted steroid use and abuse. And basically, he's saying basically. that these are all the reasons his body's falling apart. But basically, um, basically, there have been several other wrestlers like Bruno Sammartino, who didn't have any problem working with Billy Graham at the time. He's on steroids and putting all the money in his pocket that have completely turned into hypocrites and knocked Hulk Hogan and said Hulk Hogan's never seen the inside of a church, and I doubt if he even says his prayers. And there was, there's been all kind of allegations, but Billy Graham was a top draw during the 70s, and, and he apparently was a heavy-duty steroid abuser. Yeah. Um, before we say goodbye, um, I know you called me, and you wanted to come and and uh, straighten this thing out yes, and, 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 I and tell the you truth. Come out here. Yeah, would you like to say anything else to your Hulkamaniacs? Well, I'll tell you, you know, um, steroids, like cocaine and a lot of other hard drugs, or class three drugs, if that's what you want to call them, the federal government calls them, is a dead-end street. And basically, basically. Um, as far as kids trying to get into athletics, and this is the 90s, the era of the fitness, stay away from those type of drugs because basically they're all kind of side effects and adverse reactions. and. From what I can tell you, I've got a wife and two kids, and I don't want to miss one second or do anything that's going to take one second away from my life to be with my wife and kids. And as far as these kids go, if you work hard, if you train 20 years like I do and start as soon as you can, I mean, you can get what you want out of your body. It just, it's a little more intense. You've got to be a little more uh, dedicated and be a leader. Don't be a follower because that's what this whole thing's all about. And that's what we're trying to bring to the, the front of the WWF and Hulk Hogan. We're a bunch of leaders, not a bunch of followers. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Hey, hey, hey. Yes. Um, uh, no, very quickly, and I have to ask you this question. Um, I was so... Okay, we don't need this. This is when Hogan gets flustered when he asks him what should happen to the doctor. But we don't need to go further than that. Um, what an asshole. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it's, the, it's Hogan. We, I mean, this is what it was, and... People ate it, you know, ate it all. You know, they they didn't get any blowback from this from most people. So, you know, yeah, it's what it what, but it's what caused uh, Graham to go nuclear on Hogan, though. Well, yeah, um, but how many times do you think he said basically there? <laughs> uh, basically, about six, seven times, maybe. Basically, according to Steve Beverly, in the entire interview, he used it. 22 times. Yeah. His go-to word, I guess. At John Rezzi's Wrestling Fans Convention in New York over this past weekend, Graham was scheduled to donate his wrestling boots and a custom-made tie-dye tuxedo to an auction. He also donated a frame 11 by 14-inch personal autograph photo of Hulk Hogan himself, which he claimed was one of his prized possessions up until recently. Putting up for auction shows my real disdain for Hulk's appearance on the Arsenio Hall show. So in that photo was me... Was me doing a symbolic way of showing that I'm washing my hands of him. When I saw the performance in me, was like a piercing stab in the back. I can't get over that shit. How in the hell did Theodore Densmore think that that was going to, you know, because it's the world wrestling federation, Chris, 
But shit, fucking uh, Eugene Dinsmore would have probably been better attorney in that case. Well, he is a wrestling savant. <laughs> it. Well, luckily they didn't have to worry about this. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Let's keep going. And poor, and and you could tell that Billy was you know crushed by Hogan doing that thing on Arsenio. But what did you expect? I mean, really, what did you fucking expect? Yeah. Actually, you expect that go out there and you know put it all out there for everybody. Yeah, I, I'm I, Billy's right. Yeah. So what we have next now is the separate Inside Edition story. Um, at first, second, I got confused with the other one, but it is a separate one. Which and airs sometime in October. I could not pin this down at all, but thankfully there's nothing directly surrounding it that we have here anyway. So let's move on to that now. And this in part addresses Graham's upsetness with the Arsenio interview. So we start with this clip here, which is so I look at how I have a time this well under two minutes. The undisputed king of the ring is Hulk Hogan. Hero to thousands of Hulkamaniacs, as his young fans are called, the Hulkster preaches clean living, prayer, and vitamins as the keys to success. I'm the last great American hero since John Wayne died. Forget the baseball players. Forget the football players. Hulkamania is what tears Madison Square Garden in every major arena down around the country. But some of his former colleagues say that the gospel, according to Hulk Hogan, is not quite kosher. The kids are believing that if they take their vitamins and say their prayers, that they're going to grow up to be some super athlete. Well, I got news for you. You can take your vitamins and you can say your prayers, but you're never going to grow up to be 300 pounds with 24-inch arms unless you take steroids. Dave Schultz is a former professional wrestler with the World Wrestling Federation. So is superstar Billy Graham. They both watched the Arsenio Hall show last July when their old wrestling friend Hulk Hogan appeared and made this statement. But I've trained train 20 years, two hours a day to look like I do. But the things that I am not is I'm not a steroid abuser, mm -hmm. and I do not use steroids. But Hulk Hogan's but, former teammates have a very different story to tell about his past abuse of steroids. I myself personally have injected Hulk Hogan with anabolic steroids. I brought him into my home. I let him sleep in the house. I gave him food. And in return, he gave me steroids. He showed me how to use steroids. Any thoughts on what we just watched? Here's the thing about this stuff is no matter how much of this is probably correct and true, a lot of people would see these two guys as, as malcontents and they have an agenda and they're bitter. And that's why it, it, it needed somebody to be in this that didn't have something that had already happened that they come out and say, this is what's going on. Somebody who would have been perceived as someone who had maybe more credibility. You know, Schultz, you know, God knows, been all over the media forever. It says Stossel. And Graham, you know, Graham is Graham. But if there had been somebody else who, they, who could have come out and they could have pointed to them and said, you know, this, this person right here, they're not like that. They're, they don't have an axe to grind against the World Wrestling Federation or whatever. 
I think that's what this whole controversy needed to mm-hmm. to get it to that next to that next level of public consciousness. You know? Yeah. And I feel like it hurts Schultz at the time more than it does Graham. You know. I mean it's it's just it's the same old song and dance, you know. The same old malcontent. So these guys, they're bitter because they can't get they can't get work. But they're also them. not going to say anything until they know they have no chance of getting a job anymore. That's how it always yeah. works. So that's wrestling. Yes. Well, let's go to the part where Graham and the Schultz two come back up, and that goes through the end of the segment, and then we'll talk about this more. That way. Billy Graham, World Wrestling Federation champion of 1977, is retired now. He suffers from devastating physical problems caused, he believes, by his years of steroid abuse. He wants people to see the price he paid for his moment in the wrestling spotlight. Billy, what is it that you want from all this? What is it that you want the Hulk to do? I want him to be honest. I want him to tell the American public because of the overwhelming evidence of testimonies like people like myself and the common knowledge of all wrestlers who know him for years. He's taken steroids from the late 70s through the whole decade of the 80s. You know, I want him to come clean. He owes it to his fans. You see, he owes it to the children of this country. And as you heard, superstar Billy Graham told us he wants to spread the word about the dangers of steroids. Is that He's now Glass? making appearances in schools so kids oh, can see for themselves um, how he has suffered because of his unhealthy pursuit. Nancy of Odell? No, 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 no. That's Nancy Odell's on was Entertainment Tonight, but she was. On, she, I think, she was on Inside Edition too. I, I before. know you're talking about. That's though, Nancy. Yeah. That's, I think that's Nancy Glass. Let me look. Make okay. sure. Nancy Glass. Yes, Nancy Glass. Wow, that's a blast in the past. But, uh... Here's the thing. Yeah. Especially at the end. Graham's right. In large part because someone who we thought was his friend used his name to lie and shit on him. Mm-hmm. Like, in terms of everything like he said about Hogan so far, and the later stuff is a little dirtier, but I, if it was honest, and I do believe it was, it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. Like... Up to this point, though, he really isn't—he really isn't shooting that many daggers, you know. Uh, well, Ho- he wasn't until Hogan did Arsenio. And not the Hogan point, He's not going that far yet. Yeah, no, not really. Schultz point, is. <laughs> Schultz is, but still, but but Graham, Graham just seems sad. Yeah, exactly. You know, and understandably so. To hear this entire show. Support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.